So we are rolling. Uh, I'm just trying to think where should we where should we begin with this? There's so much to to uh, go through. I think maybe let's talk about the story first of of Ong's hat. Okay. Um, let's start with the settlement and Pine Barrens and the story of Jacob Ong. What uh, what can you tell us about that? It's debatable, according depending on who you talk to, but there is a forgotten town or a lost town in in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey, which is near the Lebanon State Forest. And it's called Ong's Hat. There's different stories as to how it got that name. But basically, um, in the early days of the late 1700s, there was charcoal manufacturing going on out there, which was their main industry. And basically that just means burning trees and chopping up into pieces of charcoal, which is then used for you know, barbecues or whatever it was used for back then. And there was a, a gentleman named Jacob Ong, um, who supposedly was a dandy and a bit of a ladies' man. And uh, this is where it gets murky, but some sort of altercation happened between him and a woman. One story is that she snatched his hat off his head and stomped on it, and then he got angry and threw it into the up in the air and it stuck in a tree. Another is that she grabbed it off his head and threw it into a tree. Somehow it ends up in a tree. And it becomes a marker for, well, where do I turn? Well, that road where Ong's hat is up in the tree. And it just became Ong's hat, Ong's hat, Ong's hat. And it did become at some point a settlement, um, but it was never really an incorporated town per se. But it but it definitely is local. It's still local. There's an Ong's hat road that's still there. Um, <clears throat> if you go to any of the restaurants out there, I think Anacapa is closed now, but there's a couple other places out there that you can say, where is Ong's hat? And they'll point you to a region on the road that basically is like an old settlement, which you can find ruins, like basically like foundation pieces and, you know, pieces of twisted steel. Who knows what they were? But there was there was people living there at some point. Um, can we pause real quick? That's Cool. Um, so uh, another thing I wanted to ask is just because I'm not familiar. What what is the Pine Barrens exactly? Is it just an area of land in New Jersey? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, are you familiar with what Pine Barrens are? No. Okay, so they have them in Long Island. Even Pine Barrens basically is where you, you look and you see trees that almost look like they were planted, and you don't see foliage underneath them. It's because the ground is sandy, and so it's a barren. But pine trees tend to grow there, so you'll just see pine trees and nothing much else underneath it. That's a pine barren, so it's just pine trees. Gotcha. I mean, there might be a little bit here and there, but mostly it's just barren soil underneath pine trees. Gotcha. Do you know what the initial purpose of the settlement was? What I mean, I'm assuming that precedes the charcoal industry, or no? I don't know. I mean, you know, who knows why people were living there? Because it's mostly a barren and a bog mm-hmm. in that region. So I think charcoal manufacturing about is about all they could do, and they were probably there because of the pine trees, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Um, outside of that, you know, there was people that were moving westward from the East Coast, and that's really that's the long and short of it was as the East Coast started to fill up with people, more people started moving west, and that's eventually how the West got settled was people kept moving to the edge of where there were people, and then that became the edge of where there were people. And then they would move beyond just to the, just beyond the edge. So there's usually people that, that didn't like to be around a lot of people. 
the expanding frontier. The expanding yeah. frontier, yeah. So, um, just some other other uh, questions about the uh, the settlement as well. Um, there actually was a dance hall, or that's controversial. No, it's it's not controversial. There was a dance hall. Um, there there is um, there's a couple of buildings that you can find out there that definitely look like they date from the late 1700s, early 1800s. I mean, remnants of the building at this point. But there was definitely people living there and people, you know, having social lives there. I think the dance hall was a barn, if I remember correctly, from what I've read. Again, conflicting stories about this because it's very murky history. But the most that we do know is that there's an area that's designated as Ong's Hat today because there was an area where people lived in the past called Ong's Hat. And the story of why it's called that, you know, there's like four different stories as to why it's that. But it always has something to do with Jacob Ong and his hat being thrown in a tree. <laughs> yeah. So, And I can see that. I mean, that makes sense. It's like, you know, if you ever lived like in rural areas, there's some weird names and you ask people why. It's like, well, that's where the dog tripped, you know, so we call it Dog Trip Creek. It's like, okay. <laughs> I grew up in a, a town, uh, Massachusetts, called Hudson, which isn't weird, but it's um, uh, there's a lot of uh, conflicting reports of why it was named that. Like, right, really has nothing to do with the Hudson River. It's not close, but there's right. settlers and whatnot, and it's just kind of funny when you ask people. So, I like that. I like that. There's there's not a lot of clarity to that story because you know I don't think mythology needs clarity. It's not history. It's mythology, and so I think the fact that nobody really knows. I think that adds some kind of romance to it and some poetry to it. Absolutely. Um, so uh, Isaac Haynes is a, is a name that comes up uh, as far as the settlement goes. What do you know about him? Not much. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he, a, a real guy, I assume? Possibly. Okay. Again, murky. Okay. Um, so uh, I, uh, just going further with the uh, with the timeline here, mm-hmm. um what can you tell us about the Institute of Chaos Studies? Okay, so history here is that there was a mathematician at Princeton called John Tukey. You can Google John T-U-K-E-Y Ong's Hat. And it's the earliest reference I can find to Princeton scientists and mathematicians talking about Ong's Hat. And what they, what they were doing back then is there were um, some ideas they wanted to get into the mainstream, but they were so uh, edgy that nobody wanted to actually put their name to these ideas because it would be academic suicide. So they were publishing under a pseudonym, Pondicherry, who is not a real person, and they were publishing these articles in real uh, scientific journals, and they had this guy's address as Ong's Hat. This is the first reference I can find in modernity to Ong's Hat and chaos mathematics and science and all these kind of things coming out of Princeton. Tukey admits to this in, a, in an interview that's online. This is the earliest thing I can find about, about people from that milieu actually going out to Ong's Hat. And he did say that it was kind of a summering place where mathematicians would go to kind of get out of the academic, you know, Ivy Wall arena and then like lounge in the grass and talk about things they couldn't, they felt like they could not talk about at Princeton because you have to remember that especially in the early days of World War II, those guys were being asked to do a lot. I mean, they were asked to, the Enigma machine was being cracked, and like there's all kinds of things. Please come up with a nuclear bomb. It's like all the stuff was, a lot of that was happening in Princeton, and they were being asked to do an awful lot under the cloak of secrecy. So talking about weird ideas at the university, 
probably not a good idea, especially when you have military people sitting around. Like, you know, like, well, that sounds pretty perverse. I wonder if he's a communist, you know, or like, or, or, or a Nazi back then, you know, so, which became communist later. Um, so they used to go out into the fields around that area and, and hang out and talk about the more outrageous kind of far out ideas. And if you look at, at things like quantum physics, there were some far out, back then, far out ideas like the Everett Wheeler Graham theory. Well, there's multiple universes. You know, it's like talking about that in front of a military person could probably label you as a nutcase and, and, and possibly somebody who could be exploited by the enemy because you might have something wrong with you mentally or at least, you know, you're a bohemian. <laughs> so they, they could, you know, they could work on you. So um, there is evidence of that, right? Um, the Institute for Chaos Studies... Whether or not that was a real institute or not, questionable. Um, <clears throat> the the tie into uh, the Moorish Orthodox uh, Church actually tells me maybe not completely relevant in the sense of something that really happened, but I think it may be a metaphor th- for things that were happening because the Moorish Orthodox Church is is an offshoot of Moorish Science Temple. Moorish Science Temple actually has a real history. Um, as does the Morse Orthodox Church, but we're going to talk about these two branches. So the Morse Orthodox, this, the Morse Science Temple has a history um, that, tra- that uh, traces back to somebody called Noble Drew Ali, who is a real character, um, a real person, not his real name, obviously not his birth name at least, but the name he preferred, and so we'll call him that. And then another person called Wally Fard. Now, Wally Fard is where it gets weird because Wally Fard is not the name of a person. It's a title. And it's been held by several people over the years. So it gets passed down. It's a generational thing. Every generation has a Wally Fard. So the Wally Fard that bought the land in Ong's Hat and started the the Institute for Chaos Studies, was that a real person? Maybe. Was his real name Wally Fard? Most likely not. Because if you look at the history of Wally Fard, he's a couple hundred years old at this point, right? So it's a title that we know that much, right? But who it was and who held that title... We don't really know. Um, so the Institute for Chaos Studies also parallels a strange thing that was going on in that area at the same time that had to do with the Morse Orthodox Church. Now, the Morse Orthodox Church is an offshoot of Morse Science Temple, and the Morse Orthodox Church is a group of jazz musicians, bohemians, poets, and people that like drugs and sex. So it's a very beatnik kind of era thing, um, but it also has a lot of academic credentials in that there are real historians that are members of it. There are real musicians that have done very real things. So it's kind of this underground secret society type thing, but it's, it's kind of a a bohemian secret society um, made up of people that, you know, are kind of outcasts on the fringes of society, usually artists and poets and, you know, people that like to do drugs that doesn't discredit them. It just says that those are the type of people they are. And they did have, Interchange with some of the people that were coming out from Princeton. So there was interplay there between the science and the mystical, right? And that's where that happened. And so the ICS, I think, is a metaphor for those, those, those meetings that were happening in the Pine Barrens where people were meeting specifically at one cabin that I'm not going to name who, who owned it, but I do know who that person was. And he was a host to a lot of those meetings. And so out of respect for not throwing him overboard and, and, and giving away his name, there was a cabin in that area that was owned by somebody from New York that was a host to a lot of these meetings that were made up of quantum physicists, 
and mystics. And so I think the ICS kind of grew out of that and may have actually become, uh, you know, a, an unofficial kind of organization, but I don't know that it was ever an official one. So as far as the... the I have a couple questions, oh, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Can you explain what the, what the title Wally Fart is a signifier of? Yeah, so basically um, it's, from, it's from the Moorish Science Temple, and it's kind of the, the standard bearer for that generation. So Wally Fard will always, there will always be a Wally Fard, or somebody will take the title of Wally Fard. It's kind of like Concaliastro um, uh, um, is a perfect example, right? Or Saint Germain. There's like this, there's, there's, there's like been how many Saint Germains over the years, like over the centuries, right? So this character that keeps popping up, and there's always somebody that takes this mantle of this name, and they do these things. And Wally Fard is one of those people that, you know, or one of those names that pops up and somebody takes, I am now Wally Fard. Maybe they think they're actually a reincarnation. I mean, that's fine if they think that, but it's a person taking on the name, which is taking on the mantle of "I am here to do some things for to further the Moorish uh, temple and and to fur, further the the, the, um, the kind of the um, the business plan of the Moorish temple." You know, like I'm here to, to do those things, and and then that person disappears, and they're always mysterious. They come out of nowhere. Because they take on this name, you don't know who they really were before. So there's like this fuzzy past, and then there's like then they go away, and there's like then you don't know where they went, right? So basically, it's like if I had a a, a fake ID that I could pop up and say I'm this person for like six years, and then I burn that ID and I go back to being me. You know, there's no way you can find out who I was and where I came from and where I went. And that's the Wally Fard kind of the legend. And, and I think that's on purpose. It adds this aura of mysticism to it. And so the Wally Fard that supposedly bought the land um, for the ICS um, was one of those one of the last Wally Fards I've heard of. Actually, I haven't heard of anybody popping up using that name since. And that would have been the seventies. Okay. And just to clarify, that is different from the host from New York that you are aware of. He he maybe maybe but maybe not right yeah. And then in terms, I of, think they may possibly have been the same person, but. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. And then in, in, in terms of without, you know, without pushing it, obviously, like in terms of why you withhold, we are, you are withholding the identity, is it because of some sensitivity of who this individual was or just? That and the fact that I don't have permission to, to tell. Got it. And the fact that I suspected that that person was the Wally Fard of that generation, and I don't want to throw him under the bus, you know, and I don't talk to that person anymore. I don't even know how to get in touch with them. So I don't, like I said, they disappeared. They're off the radar, so I don't know how to get in touch with them anymore. Okay. I mean, I might reach out to people that could reach out to people, but even those people, that's a, they're a generation ahead of me, so a lot of those people are passing on, have passed on. So it gets a little hard at some point. Uh, as far as the, uh, the um, I guess, do you have any insight into what types of things were actually talked about uh, with this Institute of Chaos Studies, with this? With these two groups sort of converging. Oh, can, I, and, yeah. can I ask one more question yeah. about that too? So w- that you said that you did find a newsletter with reference. Was that kind of yeah, there, yeah? There's a there's an uh, interview with John Tukey that references scientists going out and using this this area and talking about this area and using that as the address for this fake character that was publishing these articles. Right. Yeah. So and so and that and the suspected purpose of that, of course, was to um, further some of these ideas that were that were not part of the mainstream. Without 
committing with, academic career suicide. Right. Yeah, yeah. Without without taking any kind of uh, authorship for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, have you actually ever seen any of those newsletters? Or I have not. Okay, They're, you could probably find them. Um, I don't know where you would find them because it's a pre-internet, pre-digital. And that stuff gets hard to find. I mean, even stuff from the ni- early '90s is, you know, almost impossible to find. There was, I mean, but, but I can understand what was happening with with the, you know, we'll call it the ICS for lack of a better terminology. I can understand what was happening with the ICS because I was in a group that was very similar that happened on the West Coast in the early '90s in Santa Cruz. That there, there maybe is two places you can find reference to that group. One is me. Referencing that group because I most of my work I, I dedicate to those people um, by name, some of them, and another one is where a person was logging into uh, a, a memorial page for one of those people that passed away and said, you know, I remember when we used to hang out in the fog group is what it was called, the formless ocean group or the fog, and it was the same thing. It was equal part scientists, mathematicians, and physicists, and crazy artists. So the formless ocean, ocean group, yeah. It was called the Fog Group. It was in Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. But it was like, again, you can barely find any reference to it on the Internet. But it was a group. But it was just pre-Internet. you know. So it's going to be hard to find stuff that's pre-Internet. Uh, just going back, like, how about the... Uh, how, okay, go ahead. Cool. Um, so just talking about some of these these ideas that were exchanged and conversations had, mm-hmm. do you have any insight into what those sort of things, what folks had actually talked about? Yeah, I mean... I wasn't there in the 70s. I was way too young, but I was in some of those later conversations. And basically, um, when you get quantum physicists and and artists and poets in the same room, you find that, um, surprisingly, there's a lot of things they agree on. So, for example, um, there's there's sections of Joyce's Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake that they'll talk about. Like, well, what I think they're talking about here is the interplay between consciousness and... And the quantum level, and, and this is how it fits. And so they start really talking about some like out there things that are really not that out there. If you're steeped enough in both mysticism and physics, it's not that far out. Because one of the things you discover when you get into the quantum realm and, and in, in nonlinear dynamics and, and chaos mathematics, mathematics, I guess speak English, um, you start sounding like a mystic when you try to explain some of these concepts. Because there is a point where the language fits on both ends. You can use the language of quantum physics and chaos mathematics to describe mystical states, and you can use the language of mystical states to describe the states that are being described by mathematics. Um, and so these are the types of things that were being talked about, I think, for some of the, you know, in the very beginning, that's where they were talking about this and saying, we don't have to shun each other, and there's not a hard division between the right and the left brain approach to this. It's a right and a left brain approach to the same thing. So let's talk about it and see if we can unify it and incorporate it and have a fuller understanding of it instead of just having this, you know, the siloed understandings because that was leading to too much division and not enough full understanding. They weren't getting a holographic understanding of what was going on in these states. So the physicists were getting schooled in mystical thinking, and the mystics were getting schooled in mathematical thinking, which gave them more rigor, and it gave the rigorous thinkers more intuitive thinking and more liminalism, right? So that's a word I just made up. But, <laughs> but you know, it was, it was bringing it together. Yeah. And the, and the ultimate purpose of that was to try to get to 
A fuller what, what understanding. Is, what is reality? A full human a full understanding. understanding yeah. A full human understanding of what is reality instead of just like this, okay, we can describe it in math. Right. But I mean, yeah, how many people... one lens or another now, you know, expanding yeah. your field of view, essentially. Yeah, because a human is both. It's like you're not just a rational being yeah. and you're not just an irrational being. You're both. And so to understand reality, don't you have to understand both sides of that? Because that is your reality, right? And there's 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 not less validity to one or the other. And that's what they began to understand is in fact by unifying the two you got a fuller understanding of what was going on instead of less of an understanding. Um great. Uh, and, and when we're talking about numbers here, do you have any sense of that? I mean I, I membership? Know, yeah, is it a, a handful of folks? Is it's it a handful. handful of yeah. Uh, to combine to kind of both yeah. yeah. I mean okay so I've met people since this story became public through me putting it all over the internet. Um, I've met people that have approached me and told me that they were there, that they were part of the ICS. I met people that told me that they were there as children. I met people that told me that they knew people that were there. I'm not saying I believe them or disbelieve them. I'm just saying these are people have stepped forward. Now I'm going to qualify that by saying I've also seen people who have, read something or watched a movie and told me that that's a reality because that actually happened to me and that's where they got this story. I don't know how much of that I believe, you know, but that that's a syndrome too, which I know you've probably experienced that where people will see a movie and then all of a sudden the right kind of person will take that on and tell you that that actually happened to them. Maybe it did. I don't know. Maybe it didn't. Maybe they was taking on the story. But I've had people tell me that the ICS was a real group and it was very formal, and that there was a compound, and that it was kind of a commune, and they lived there. And you know, I have no proof of that, though. So, but what I can gather, it was twenty-ish numbers, but that's a guess. Okay. Um, so, uh, wanted to talk about the. Um, uh, I'm, I, I guess we should maybe go into what the the egg experiment was, and. Um, what you what you know about that and and, and kit and then uh, also want to know just how you how you even found out about those things existing. Well, we should start with what, what was it? What was the egg experiment? Yeah, so the the egg was a, there was four or five generations of the egg supposedly, and then later I found out from people that I talked to that supposedly were there that there were what was called the meditation eggs or the handheld ones, um, which was a probably a seventh or eighth generation but it was for all intents and purposes it was a kind of like a flotation tank device um, where people would get in and through a combination of uh, different times of, I don't know if do you remember back in the uh, I think it was like the early 90s when people were doing the brain machines and it was like these LED lights that were on the inside of these these visors that you would put on and they would strobe your light your eyes and then you would put your brain into different you could actually dial up a state Oh, I want to be theta now. I want to be beta. You know, and you could sit there and do that. And it was actually, I played with them. They're actually pretty cool. Much more potent when you're under the, the influence of psychedelics. <laughs> and that was one of the theories with, with these was that you got into this these states. And, and again, this is what I was talking about where the mind and the science had to both be into this to make this, make this a reality. And so they started to actually put this into practice through a device called the egg. And it was, it was a, you know, not necessarily a flotation tank because you weren't floating, but it was 
Um, was it like a sensory deprivation? It was a deprivation tank, tank yeah. yeah. So you were you were deprived of any sensory input other than what was inside of the egg. And the egg was like strobing you with different pictures and lights and frequencies and you had feedback, you know, attached to your to your uh, temple so you could actually hear your biofeedback and you were you were trained through meditation techniques. This is where the mysticism comes in again to get yourself into a frequency state and they were hoping that if you got into the right frequency state you could slide into a parallel dimension. And in I think I think it was I think it was generation 4 this one young person named Kit who had shown a lot of um, potential in getting into these states disappeared. Like the whole thing just disappeared and then it came back a few minutes later and he claimed that he had found a parallel world just like this earth only there were no humans. Everything else was exactly the same, except humans had never existed. All the other animals were there. All the trees were there. You know, so basically, it was the pristine, primitive state of the world. And they started thinking about, uh, well, if we can get back there, we can move there, because they wanted out at that point. Because they were they were kind of anti civilizationists, very kind of um, uh, you know uh, eco extremists in a way. Um, they were kind of had it with civilization, and so they were looking for a way out. And so they found, and Kit said he could remember the way back. And so he kind of became the leader of like getting them there. And and that leads up to the story ending with them all disappearing, you know, very much like the uh, the Croatan story, gone to Croatan. Um, and they just disappear and all that's left behind are these documents, which is kind of where I picked it up. And And one of those is the... Gateway to the dimensions? Yep. Okay. Yeah. It's called the brochure, yeah. The brochure, okay. And all those documents were just found amongst the ruins of, of this site? Well, or? one document was found, and that was the brochure. Um, because I, it had been disseminated outside of the compound? Yeah, see, I talked to a ranger at the Lebanon State Forest, and, and I said, um, I heard, I talked to him on the phone, and I said, I heard... That well, actually, first we did we exchanged some pleasantries, and he said, "Oh, you're the guy sending all these kids out here." And I'm like, "I'm not sending them; <laughs> they're just coming." Um, and and I said, "Well, I heard that the brochure before it was it showed up in publication was showing up in the racks at your ranger station alongside other brochures for things in the area." And he said, "I don't know who was doing that, but they, it kept showing up." He said, "I'd come out there, and somebody had stuffed like four four or five of them in the rack." He goes, and people would pick them up and ask us what they were about. And so that started happening, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and, and then from there, it kind of disseminated out. And supposedly, that's how it got in, into the hands of other people. Um, so just go, just uh, back to circle a back bit with the, with the, the egg experiment. Yeah. So um, the, the idea of, um, or the result of uh, interdimensional travel. Mm-hmm. That was always uh, the intention? Yeah. Well, I mean, because these were people that were coming out of Princeton where at the time what was really in vogue was the Everett Wheeler-Graham multi-world theory. And so they were trying to see if they could either prove that or, you know, do something with it. Like, can we actually go somewhere or can we glimpse it or can we prove it's wrong? You know, so they were working on that because it was very trendy at that time. And if you know anything about science, it's like fashion. It's like, you know, like string theory was a big thing a couple of years ago. And it's like, you know, there's like these these trends. And that was the trend at the time. So they were working on that. What time was that exactly? The 70s. 70s. Yeah. How would you differentiate for the lay person the multiverse theory from, say, the strand theory or string? I mean, is it essentially the same thing or? 
Mm, yes and no. I mean, there is some there is some uh, multi-dimensional parallel world stuff tied into the string theory, but it really, the Everett Wheeler Graham is the theory is kind of the basis of of parallel world thinking, and so time travel is tied into that. Um, and then there's like there's like 14 variations of this. There's like, is there such a thing as prime universes where things happen and then they emanate out, or is there an emanation this way in, in you know uh, in infinity in both directions, or you know? So it gets into like all this speculative stuff that kind of sounds like college students sitting around smoking really good pot after a while, um, which probably is how it started. But <laughs> but there's mathematics behind it, you know, that show that there are at least 11 dimensions, but there's probably a lot more. And that there's theories that say every time a decision is made in a dimension, that that creates a new dimension, a new thread. So that's where the time travel thing comes in. So if you go back in time and do something, you don't actually go back in time and do something. You go back and create a universe, which then goes forward It is as a new universe, not as the same time stream that you went back in. So you've actually created a new universe, which is kind of the predominant theory, actually, is the creation and by the Russo brothers. And the yes, to exactly, yeah. exactly. They sort of shit on the. Uh, you didn't see it, right? No, no. but that's. It reminds me of Primer a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, to be clear, at, at the time, so I guess the theory then would be that um, if you were able to change your frequency, mm-hmm. uh, that might be all that differentiates one dimension from another Mm -hmm. um and the egg itself would disappear not just the individual that was inside the egg right because the 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 egg you know and that's and that's questionable but in this story that's what happened but yeah between me you and the fence post i would think it would just be the person yeah but if the egg itself was actually harmony in the same harmony with the frequency of the person then it it, it could possibly do it yeah. yeah and and in, in order for Kit to lead the other 19 and change uh, individuals, mm-hmm. did they each have individual eggs or were mm-hmm. they? Okay. Yeah. And and then, of course, the theory is that how do you get back? You have to be able to shift your frequency back to what it was before to get back here. So according to the story, he knew how to do both. He knew how to get there and he remembered how to get back. And then he knew how to get back again. Mm-hmm. That's the story. But how much of that is metaphor? I don't know. You know, and and if it if it is taken literally, and they did, uh, you know, return to this more primitive version, mm-hmm. that they may have just chosen to stay there. That is the story. That's what they did. I mean, they basically loaded up a bunch of eggs and left. Were they men and women? Yes. Yeah. So they went. Basically, they went. They re, they colonized <laughs> a pure pristine Earth in a pristine dimension. So. Um, I don't know how cool that is, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> That's cool. Um, and you were saying something about handheld eggs became handheld. Yeah, that was. I don't have a lot on that story, but but you know, I was I was uh, told this story um, by these two guys who claimed that they were, you know, kids at the ashram. Um, I interviewed them actually. It's on the internet on archive.org. There's audio and full text of that transcription of me talking to them and there's a picture of what they showed me was a meditation egg. It was interesting. It was a lot of work went into it, whatever it was. It was very ornate and a lot of work and a lot of 
device stuff inside of it. It was very heavy and full of mechanics and, and electronics. I, you know, I, did I use it? No. Do I know how to use it? No. I was told that by them that you could hold this and get into the frequency state and that it would actually pick up your frequency state without being connected by wires. So it was, it was kind of the next generation. It was kind of like what Elon Musk is trying to do with computers, <laughs> you know. Um, and you mentioned that that uh, the egg with uh, when Kit was part of it, mm-hmm. he might have been part of all of this. That was the fourth phase, you, fourth generation. Yeah, fourth generation. Do you do you know like what are the differences between generation? You have no idea. I, I wasn't there. There's not a lot of clear. If you read the brochure, it's not really clear. Other than I think it was. I think they stated that Kits was the fourth generation. And I'm guessing from talking to the people that claimed that they were, again, I'm saying claim that they were they were members of the ashram, that the what I was shown as a meditation egg was about a seventh generation. I'm guessing. It's, it's a guesstimation. Gotcha. And so uh, after the, uh, the egg experiment happened and, and by all accounts was successful, uh, there was some sort of government response to that. Do you have any insight to, to what that was? Well, there was a government response or there was a government response because of a government response. So the story, again, there's like, I've heard like, I don't know how many different versions of the story, but basically what we know is that there was a nuclear accident in that area. What and time frame were we talking about? I think it was the 80s, I want to say, and Fort Dix, um, or late 70s, early 80s. And then there was, in, in the response to that accident, um, what I heard, the, 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 the story that I heard repeated probably um, the most was um, that the ashram was discovered because of the response to that nuclear accident. And um, if you go out to that area right now and talk to locals, they will swear up and down and sideways that, this, that there was people living out there doing weird things that got discovered by the government who were responding to this nuclear accident, and they got routed and basically... Black helicopters came in, or helicopters. You know, again, the story like, has all kinds of variations, but you know the core of the story is that there were people living out there doing something, and there was a government response to a nuclear accident that discovered these people, and then those people were taken away, or they escaped, depending on whose story you listen. You know, who do you believe? That is supposedly when they disappeared, is they knew they were getting getting cracked down on, and they either got taken away or they went away depending on which story you believe. And that's why they're sort of... The, they've been labeled as survivors, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, were there other... Um, yeah, the people I talked to were people that, that fled. That fled, okay. Um, not to another dimension, but just left when they knew that, you know, when they heard the helicopters coming, they ran, and some of them supposedly got away. And then, of course, you know how this works is you've got all these stories that are unclear because everybody was panicking and running around in four directions. And, well, what happened to them? They all got in the eggs and they went away. Or they all got loaded in helicopters and went back to Fort Dix. And it's like, you know, I, I've heard all kinds of stories. I heard that U.N. troops landed and killed them all. You know, like there are people in, in that area that will tell you that, like straight to your face and not be, you know, smiling or winking when they say it. So I don't know what happened. So was the nuclear... Um, incident possibly a cover for... I've heard that too. Yeah, I've heard there was no nuclear accident. It's the government just wanted to go in there and get those guys, you know, so that that's another story. Yeah. Again, these... What you hit are um, these uh, 
bifurcation points in the story, as I call them, um, where it could have gone any any number of ways, and there's no way to prove which number of ways it went. So the best you can do is come up with the probabilities of you know, like these four things are probable because anything's possible, right? I mean, you know, Cthulhu could have come up out of the ground and with the tentacles and taken them all away. That's a possibility, not a probability, though. And the probability is that there was a government response. There were people living out there in a commune who knows what they were doing. And they were discovered by the government responding to a nuclear accident or the nuclear accident was an excuse to go out there and get them. Do you know, I assume, uh, well, it was all adults, right? Were there any kids? No, there were kids, supposedly kids, kids, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Kit was not young, or not old, I'm sorry. Um, The two guys that I talked to were older when I talked to them, but were kids when they were there, supposedly. And again, I, I have no way to verify if they were really there or not, but... But were they with parents that, that? Yeah, they claimed they were. Yeah, their parents were. Yeah. Um, I think, I think they said their that their dad was a scientist and their mom was a painter or something like that. So, I mean, there were unions that were made out there. Obviously, I mean, even at the group in on the West Coast that I was part of, there were scientists hooking up with painters, you know, <laughs> and dancers, and you know, so you know, that happens. You, you put people in the same room, you know, people are going to hook up. It's going to happen. <laughs> Did and they left with they fled with their parents. No, um, I did they. I think they fled with their mom. Is and what they told me. And their dad, and their dad disappeared. And uh, and they verified the existence of this kid person. Well, I mean, verified. They they said they they knew him. They said they knew. Yeah, yes. Yeah. He was a little bit. I think he was a teenager when they were a little under, like preteens. And these two sources were the um, way that you first heard about Kit, or had you heard about? No, Kit no, I heard about Kit through the through the brochure. Oh, that's yeah, right. Kit's okay. in the brochure. Got it. Briefly, but in the brochure. Got it. Um, One name that I have here, um, I'm not sure. I, mean, I wrote it down. I just want to get some mm-hmm. context. The Dobbs twins. Yeah. Who, who are the Dobbs the twins are in the brochure too. So again, um, not their real names, obviously, because this is this is obviously a reference to the Church of the Subgenius, Bob Dobbs, J.R. Bob Dobbs. Um, so it's a it's a pseudonym for two people that were a, a fraternal um, twins that uh, were uh, mathematicians and, and scientists that were blackballed from Princeton for coming up with like very out there ideas again we're talking about these out there ideas that even in the 70s they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't sell cuz even in the 70s there was a lot of orthodoxy going on in science and as as old as quantum physics is um it was still a hard sell in the 70s it didn't really become a soft sell until the 80s um when I think more people who had been exposed to the mystical ideas of the 60s begin became you know the people they were teaching, and then it got, it got easier for them to talk about these things because they'd already been exposed to this kind of thinking. Um, the people before that, the orthodoxy that came before them, were very kind of fifty straight laced, you know, Fred Murray kind of people that you know it's like, um, and and so they were not flexible at all in that kind of thinking. And a lot of the people just said that quantum physics was bullshit, you know, and they didn't want to teach it or that it was too soft or it was too. Too fuzzy, which, you know, now we have something called fuzzy logic. We totally embrace it and accept it, and we understand that it's something that's necessary. But back then, you know, it scared the crap out of people because it wasn't cut and dry, and they thought everything was finite, mathematical, and definable. When 
quantum physics and quantum theory says absolutely not that the cat is both alive and dead you know and, and what kind of statement is that to say to a determinist it's like you're basically telling them you're, you're telling a, a, a true believer a born again true believer that god does not exist and you have proof you know and they're just like or maybe god maybe god exists maybe not you know that's not something they want to hear or can even accept it just it, you know it creates cognitive dissonance for them so he both exists and does not exist. Exactly, and that's what not what they want to hear. Um, so the Dobbs twins, I think again, probably represent more than two people, um, and I think they I think they're kind of like the Pondicherry scheme, where they represent people that weren't accepted in the orthodoxy of academia, and so they came to places like the ICF where they could talk to other people that thought like them. Again, you know, like I said, I've been in groups like that. Esalen is a great example of a group like that, right? Um, I've been to Esalen, and you meet both kinds of people there. I've met hardcore science people and hardcore artists and people that tread the lines in between. And and I think the ICS in Ong's Hat is, you know, another representation of things like Millbrook and Esalen and the Fog Group, on a less to a lesser extent, and you know, and, and, and Millbrook West actually was a group in Stanford in the in the '90s that I knew, early '90s. Um, so you know, there was a Maimonides Institute on the East Coast and SRI in the West Coast, and there was a lot of people doing these kinds of uh, of uh, hybrid work. Um, you know that that I think um, the Dobbs twins is I, I think um, a representation of those types of people. They probably are an amalgam of several. If not ten, fifteen people, you know, that were they were thinking like that. Yeah, you'd say that there's a corollary between this and the human potential project. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Um, do you want to find? Do you want to ask? Do you, I don't know if you have other specific questions before we ask about how he. Um. Yeah. First no, heard about I, this, and then the egg, and. Not yet. His yeah. personal yeah, do you? Or do you want to no, move no, on? no. We can move on. Yeah. So I guess. Um, so let's move on to when you. So you said that the that when you first Let me pause real quick. Cool. Uh, when you first became aware um, of Ong's Hat, it was uh, it was through the brochure mm-hmm. uh, Gateways to the Dimensions. Uh, how did you find that? Well, I got the brochure and the catalog at the same time. Now, the, I, the chronologically speaking, the brochure shows up first. And it shows up in like the the uh, ranger station at the Lebanon State Forest. Um, it was showing up. Uh, uh, Peter Lambert Wilson said he thought ten, fifteen people. You know, they were they were thinking like that. Yeah, you'd say that there's a corollary between this and the human potential project. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um. Do you want to find? Do you want to ask? Do you, I don't know if you have other specific questions before we ask about how he um, yeah, first no, heard about I, this and then the egg and yeah. not yet yeah. his personal yeah, Do you or do you want to? No, move no, on? no. We can move on. Yeah. So I guess um, so. Let's move on to when you. So you said that the that when you first Let me pause real quick. Cool. Uh, when you first became aware um, of Ong's hat, it was uh, it was through the brochure mm-hmm. uh, Gateways to the Dimensions. Uh, how did you find that? Well, I, I got the brochure and the catalog at the same time. Now, the, I, the, chronologically speaking, the brochure shows up first, and it shows up in like the the uh, ranger station at the Lebanon State Forest. 
Um, it was showing up. Uh, uh, Peter Lambert Wilson said he found it and published it in Edge Detector in 1989. Um, and then it shows up in my doorstep sometime in the, like, 91, 90. I, I, you know, fuzzy about that era of my life. But, but somewhere around there, um, I was hanging out. I was living in Santa Cruz, and I was hanging out with the people that became the Formal Ocean Group. And one of those people is the people implicated in the book catalog as being part of this, which was Nick Herbert. And Nick Herbert is a quantum physicist who is also a very odd but wonderful, peculiar man. Um, I love Nick to death. Um, but he is the epitome of these people that we're talking about that were, were, that were balancing both sides of the brain and, and both sides of human nature because he's, he was one of the founding members of Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, and he also has done ginormous amounts of psychedelics and, and uh, talked to dimensional characters in a field outside of Lawrence Livermore. So, you know, he, he's on both sides of the fence on this. And uh, I was hanging out with him and some other people, like I said, that became the Fog Group. Um, and he was at my house one day, and he was looking uh, at my, my bookshelf, and uh, we were talking about um, Peter Lambert Wilson, who had published the uh, the Onxat catalog, uh, or I'm sorry, the Onxat brochure in Edge Detector, and I had not read that yet, but I, I had read um, Taz, the Temporary Autonomous Zone by Hawking Bay, which is a pseudonym for Peter Lambert Wilson. It's a, it's a nom de plume. Everybody knows that now, so I can say it. Back then, you know, we didn't say that, but but we knew it. And um, Nick was looking at my my bookshelf, and I had this habit of um, I was part of a male culture, M A I L culture, um, where you sent things around that you found in in packets to people who then disseminated and put more stuff in and sent it around. And we had these giant mailing lists that went all over the world. It was called mail art culture. And, and we would send stuff to each other, and I would get stuff from people that just had my address from the list and would send me, like, a you know a package of something, and I'd pour it all out, and it would be, like, all these Xerox brochures and bags of dirt that said they were from Tibet, and it's, like, just found art kind of stuff that we were all doing. And I had a collection of these wacko catalogs that people were sending me on my shelf, and Nick was looking at them. He's like... He's like, you know, I, I think I, I have something to right up your tree, man. He was like, all right, well, you know, bring it by. He goes, I got it from Peter Wilson. I'm like, okay, whatever. So he brings me the brochure, a Xerox copy of the brochure, and a Xerox copy of the Econobula catalog. And the Econobula catalog is supposedly written by this guy, Emery Cranston, that takes the story as we've been describing it and puts it all together as a book catalog and has books that actually accent each step of the story. It's like, well, if, here's this part of the story, and here's a book that correlates with that part of the story. And so, like, James Glick's Chaos was really big back then, and so that was in there. There's, like, all these books by Nick Herbert, one that was not published that was supposedly in there. And all this stuff was in there, and I, I read this, and it just blew my mind. And I'm like, Nick, where did you find this? This, this sounds like this could have been written for me or by me. Where, where did you get this, you know? And he said, well, you know, Peter gave it to me, and he's like, it's really cool. What do you think? And I'm like, I think this is outlandish, and we should and, – and I started making Xerox copies of it and putting it in my mail art, right, and started going around. And the next thing I know, 
couple months later, I'm getting it back from people who are sending it to me going, have you seen this crazy shit? You know, it's like, and I have people walking up in Santa Cruz and handing it to me and telling me that there were, there were, um, back then, um, there was no internet yet, but there was, there was these, uh, book catalogs that you could get in the mail for $2, SASE, you know, self-addressed stamp envelope thing to a PO box in Vegas and you would get back all this crazy stuff for $2 and then you would like read it and there was books in there you could buy and they were selling other pamphlets by other people. So it had its own mail art culture. It was like the weird underground of the weird underground. And there was a group out of um, Madison, Wisconsin um, that bought a bunch of adjoining farms and started a city called Dreamtime Village. It's actually still there. It's a bunch of anarchists um, and they they had a, uh, a barn full of Xerox machines, we don't know how they came by them, but uh, they just came by a bunch of Xerox machines <coughs> and filled this barn up with them. And they had a collective called the Zazaziel Endarchy Collective where they were creating Xerox art, which was a big thing back then. I was doing it. Everybody was doing it. And they were huge into this mail art scene that I was into. So they got their hands onto it, onto it, and then I think it probably went to thousands of people from there. And then it started making the circles, and Nick was telling me he was, people were coming to him and going, your name's in this catalog. What about this book that you wrote that never got published? You know, And then people were coming to me and go, have you seen this stuff? And I'm like, yeah, I think maybe I sent that to you. you know? And it's all started like going in circles, and it just got really crazy. Um, and, and, the, uh, and so that's how it started. And, and the next thing I know, um, I, like in the late 80s, I started working with uh, FidoNet, which was an early bulletin board system, which this was pre, pre-public internet, not pre-internet, but pre-public internet, um, where back then what we would do is we had this little thing called long distance, which nobody even remembers anymore. But if you called from one area code to another, it actually costs money. And so calling into a, a, a bulletin board system outside your area code could be expensive. So what we did is we all set up a FIDO net, and everybody, like they could, had a computer in their bedroom or in their closet that had a modem attached to it. And in the middle of the night when the rates were low, one zip code over or one area code over would call your number and download all the stuff that had come into them. And then yours would call the next one and upload that and all the stuff that it had. And so that's how you would send email, and everything would get posted on these boards so that it was like this giant interweb of, of computers talking to each other in the middle of the night. They were like, just like, if I call this computer, it's only 45 cents a minute or 25 cents a minute, you know. And so it was, it was hopping, right? And, and, and everybody that could afford to would set up a node in the net and let their computer and have one. I got a fax line back then. They had a, a rate for fax versus voice line that was cheaper. And I would just get a fax line and put that in and let my computer run for the night. And so I was part of the internet or the uh, FidoNet node. And I put it on the FidoNet. I, I typed it in because I didn't have a scanner. I just sat there and typed it by hand and put it all in and then put it on mine. And then it started going around and around and around and around. And by 93, when I got on the well, and it was um, public internet through the well, you know, prompt. You could get a public uh, internet access through them. Um, FTP and Gopher was a thing. The web had not become a thing yet, although you could prompt web, but there was no, you know, browsers that everybody was using. The, the World Wide Web kind of happened like a year or two later. Um, 
I got on and all these people were contacting. When they found out that I was on the well, they started contacting me like, are you the guy that put these things on the on the Fidonet? And I'm like, yeah, that's me because I signed them all. It's like, you know, if you have any information about this, email me here. And so I started getting like all these crazy emails and and like and and I was like I went looking on all these uh, places on the on the internet, and people had just copied this thing and published it everywhere, like anywhere it could be published. It was showing up. It was in the Gutenberg Library. It was in the University of Michigan EPUB Library. It was everywhere, and I was just like, "Who did this?" You know. But it was like just everybody was doing it, and so you know I put it on the Well Gopher, which was like probably the most uh, popular Gopher on the internet at the time. And then it got picked up from there, and John and I were looking at the stats of that, and the downloads were, like, incredibly crazy on, like, how many people were grabbing it. And then people started making web pages out of it, and Deoxy, and, and then it kind of went from there. So I probably went too far with that, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know where to stop. <laughs> I was really curious, though, and, and sorry to backtrack a little bit, yeah. with, the, um, uh, with this male art culture... Mm-hmm. Did you know these people who you were sending these things to? Did you know, or, or was I mean, as much as you know somebody on a bulletin board okay. or on a web board, you know, okay. like you might know the uh, Trixie three three three. Okay, I mean, you know, that's a name, but do you know that person? I mean, do you even know people? On, do you know everybody on Facebook that follows you? No. Probably not, right? This is the same kind of thing. So you would you would recognize a name that you know that somebody would send you something. You're like, oh, that guy sends me something every month, you know. And that's Hans over in Germany, you know, and that's, the, you know, that, that's Dieter over there and, you know, Atli in Norway and, like, you know, all these places. Europe was really big with this stuff. Um, and so you knew them, but you didn't know them. Like, you know, and some people I eventually met in person, you know, but not everybody, most, mostly not. And, and how did that start? Like, you all had each, how did you get their addresses in the first place? How did they... The first place I got into that was in the late 80s. I started reading this publication out of Berkeley um, that was called High Frontiers. And it was published um, by this guy, Ken, um, who went by the name Are You Serious? And uh, then it changed its name to, well, actually, what it was High Frontiers, they were running ads in the back of their, their magazine. They were just the weirdest, like, you know, send me $2 and I'll send you all the reasons why, or send me $2 and get on my mailing list. And, and that's how I got onto those mailing lists. And then the Church of the Subgenius came out with a book called High Weirdness by Mail, um, which was uh, all these P.O. boxes for all these crazy cults and people and ideas and art and, like, you name it, it was in there. It's still around. Um, I doubt any of the P.O. boxes work. but And I literally bought a bunch of boxes of envelopes and rolls of stamps and sat there and addressed an uh, SASE to every single address in that book. And that book was like that thick. And I just sent to anybody that would want to send me their stuff. And then I started getting taunt. That's why I had this stuff on my, on my shelf. Cause Nick was like, where do you get this stuff? And I'm like, I sent for it, man. I just, I see it. I sent for it. I just want to read it. Cause some of it was entertaining. Some of it was a little frightening, but some of it was entertaining and, crazy and goofy and some of it was stupid but a lot of it was was some of it was very creative you know um and so that's how i got on those lists once you're kind of got into that your name was out there you'd get on this list like you'd send to arctis and get on their ufo catalog mailing list 
And that guy would just share your your address with like his buddy who had you know a Bigfoot catalog mailing list, and then you'd get that, and, and, and your name just got passed around. Nobody was worried about security back then; it wasn't a thing. It was we didn't consider it spam <laughs> to get that stuff. I was happy when I got it. I was like, oh, another pile of crazy crap, you know, and I'd sit and read it. <laughs> so when you first heard about about Ong's hat, I mean. What were some of your reactions? What was your reaction? I mean, were you a skeptic immediately? Were you? Oh yeah, I thought it was a put on. Yeah, I had no idea that it had historical reality to it, and that there were people that thought they were there, or that maybe they were there, and that, that there was a real place called Ong's Hat. And I didn't know that Tuki. I didn't know about Tuki. I found about that years later. Yeah. So when I started doing research into okay, what's up with this? You know. Um, that's when I started finding out that there was threads of reality that I could track back, like any myth, right? There, there's there's a resonance of reality. There's a kernel of truth somewhere. Something happened that started the story. And the story you're hearing probably isn't the exact way it happened, but it's the way people are telling you it happened, and there's a reason why they're telling you that. And so I started like pulling these threads, and, and I was actually really surprised when there was something on the other end of them. I thought it was all garbage. I thought it was entertaining garbage, but that's all I thought it was. Question. Okay. Um, uh, the um, let's see. So, and Nick, uh, it's Her- Herbert. Herbert. Mm-hmm. Herbert. Herbert um, uh, he was a believer. He would say in all of this. He was cagey about it. Yeah, I mean, he was. I mean, if you read the, the catalog, he's very implicated in this. And um, there's even talk of a West Coast group of people. You know, again, like I said, like the fog group, but it wasn't. It was pre-fog, but the, the, they were talking about a group of people on the West Coast that he was a part of. And in knowing Nick over the years that I knew him, um, there was some odd people that he introduced me to up in the hills. They were doing odd things. Let's just put it that way. I'm not going to go much further than that, but I started really question, like, okay, what are these people doing? You know, and who are these people? Where are they coming from? Things that were were. Similar to what was happening on side, but not related. Yeah. Correct? Well, related. Related. Okay. Yeah. They were they were an ICS of their of their own. You know, they were they were doing similar things. Yeah. And was that uh, how do I say this? I guess was that more coincidence, or was that like were these sort of like the? I don't know. I know where you're going. Descendants of. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Okay. I mean, I, in, you know, there are people that have told me to my face that I was recruited for this. I mean, and they said that with all sincerity. Um, they were like, you know you're recruited for this, right? And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like, no, we're just two guys that have similar interests, you know, and we lived in the same town. Um, and we're such, such weirdos that we don't have a lot of people that we gravitate through. You know, like, we were like, when you find a fellow weirdo, you know, it's like finding water in the desert. <laughs> you're like, ah! another weirdo I could talk to. Um, so, I, you know, but there were people that just swore up and down that I was recruited uh, to do this. They're like, you were the perfect person to give this to so they would be, you know, like, eh, whatever, you know. But um, we spoke about UFOs, right? There was, um, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting the guy's name, but, you know, this rise of um, sightings back in the in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Um I, I should research this. It's in the documentary Hypernormalization by Adam. Okay, Chris. yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that, love that. Yeah. I love everything he does. Yeah. 
where um, essentially the U.S. government covered up its covert weapons program by uh, leaking fake classified documents. Oh, you're talking about Project Beta. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Paul Benowitz. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay. They actually drove that man insane. Yeah. Yeah, and that was uh, Richard Doty, who he also... Was- he was the he was the agent handling yeah. him, and he was also the person who released the majestic twelve documents. And so, yeah, they were the piece of people were implying that I was being dotied. Yeah, yeah, by Nick or, though. Or but, like a mark or a target for this. Right? Yeah, I mean, because at that point, um, in that point in my in my evolution, um, I was I was talking about this new form of because I was doing bulletin board stuff and I was talking about this new form of media that was going to overtake the old media which it did you know but you know I just like we have to write stories for these platforms and you know I, I was a big evangelist for this back then and I was also doing a lot of psychedelic drugs I was hanging out at Esalen a lot um, because I had friends that would teach there and they would take me along and I was practicing ritual magic back then and uh, I was a big way into the third mind thinking of William Burroughs and Brian Geisen, and I was looking for this new way to tell stories that incorporated the electronic literature, you know, the electronic format. And so, you know, there were people that basically said, you know, because it was right after that that I took off, my career took off in Silicon Valley, you know, in keeping with Silicon Valley taking off, dot, dot .com and all that happening, and I was just right there at the right time. Um, and so there, but you know, the conspiratorial mind will always point to that and say, "That's why you were chosen. You, know, you were work. They were handling you." You know, so there are people that say that, and there are people that still say that. And then, and, and then, <laughs> um, when I've smoked too much sensimia, yeah, but <laughs> we all get paranoid when we smoke too much. <laughs> um, so. Uh, so I guess we sort of left off the, the, in this timeline that you um, were using the internet, both public, private, then public. Well, pre-internet and then internet, pre-internet, yeah. So internet. bulletin board system and then, well, mail art, bulletin board system, and then internet. Mm-hmm. And so those that um, you were uh, communicating with, I mean, what was the response there? Um, I mean, I'm sure it varied. Some people probably believed in it enthusiastically. Other people probably thought you were full of shit. Yeah, it was it was usually one of those two extremes. Um, they would they would either um, you know want want me to be their guru, which I didn't I want no part of, or they would they would want to you know have me drawn and quartered, which I also don't want any part of. There didn't seem to be any very few in between, so a couple people, but usually it was an extreme reaction that it got, which you know. To the younger me, I thought it was a great thing. It's like, well, it's getting a reaction, you know. And, and to a young artist, that's all you're looking for. You, you haven't you haven't grown and, and learned uh, nuance yet as an artist when you're younger. You're still learning that. And uh, and yeah, so I was I was thrilled by the fact that people were actually responding to it at all, and I was getting a lot of response to it. Did you at that time? I mean, were you? Um, did you become sort of the face of this? I did, yeah. I mean, I followed that up with, um, I did an interview with Nick. Um, and then I, I Nick put me in touch with who he said was Emery Cranston, who I talked to on the phone and did that interview. So the, the part two and part three of this was, was me talking to them as, as a reporter. You know, like basically I'm trying to get to the bottom of this. Is there reality of this and what is the reality 
And of course, I got a lot of you know metaphysical mumbo jumbo double speak, but it, it, you know it was something, and uh, it, it made for two more pieces, and then that kind of became what people call the canon. I hate that word, but it's been used, which is the uh, the brochure, the book catalog, the Nick Herbert interview, the Emma Cranston interview, and that's kind of the four pieces of that. And that, and 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 by doing that. I embedded myself in the story, and I meant to do that because what I was trying to do at the time, it wasn't an ego play. It was is that I was the only person among all the people I knew that was on the internet. None of my friends were yet, like not even Nick. Like I, I think I got Nick Herbert on the internet, and um, and so I said, you know, if I'm going to disseminate this on this platform, then I'm going to do a couple of things. I'm going to gamify it. So that it becomes interesting to the tech mind people because I was really after them because in the early days of the internet, especially that's who was online was like techies and, you know, gamers and D and D people. That's why some of the, the, uh, protocols in, in the internet have D and D type names because they were gamers. And so I was trying to kind of package this in a, in a way that got them interested and it did. Um, and, and because I was the only person I knew with an email address at the time, I, I embedded myself into the story and, and put my email address in the early documents. When you find them, my email address is at the bottom of every one of them. So if you have more information about this, contact me. Now, in later days, I, I, I wished I hadn't have done that. But, but at the time, it was exciting. And I was getting, like I said, I was getting a lot of feedback. And I kind of ignored the people that were angry and wanted to kill me, you know. It's like, yeah, good luck. Come find me. So you were the, the online the online ambassador. I was, yeah. Um, and those people that did contact you, what were some, like, how did they reach out? What were some of the things that they were asking for? How did those conversations go? Uh, again, it was it was wide and varied. So there was a, I think they're still online. There was, there was a group of people that were garage scientists that were working on, uh, like, over Unity and, Time machines and all this different kind of stuff. KeelyNet, K E E L Y N E T, KeelyNet or KeelyNet.net. I think it was something weird like that. Um, and they were kind of the clearinghouse on the internet for the strange garage scientists at the time, and uh, and they loved it, man. I had all those people like telling me how I can actually build this egg. I'm telling you, I've got you know I can do this in my garage. I'm like, okay, yeah, don't do, don't electrify yourself, but. Uh, there was all these people that were really serious about building this device from the description in the in the book catalog and, and the in the brochure. I didn't see that there was really a, a technical description in there of it, but they were telling me that I wasn't reading it right and I was missing the links. So I'm like, okay, you know, so if you can build this, build it and give me a call. I'll come look at it. But uh, I don't know that anybody ever did. Um, there was one person who claimed they did, but they ne- they've never shown any evidence of it at all other than talk on the Internet. So... That's cheap. Um, there, uh, there was um, people that were interested in the mystical side of it. Obviously, um, there were people that were interested in the conspiracy side of it. Those were the most irritating people, probably. Um, those are the people that wanted to imply that I was being handled, or or that I was in on the conspiracy, that I was actually you know disseminating this because there was some big creepy mind control thing going on, and then later. When people started experiencing things when they were reading these documents and claiming, uh, you know, phenomena was happening to them, then it really became, you know, you're doing this and this is your doing. Um, And then people would uh, accuse me of writing the documents, which, you know, I'm like, well, I wrote those two interviews. Yes, I did. 
Um, and then there were people that would tell me that, that they were there. That, again, this is when I started getting contacted by the survivors and people telling me that they were there. And then there were people that told me that they knew people were there. Um, and then I started hearing from like the Philadelphia Experiment people and the Montauk Project people. And like uh, everybody was coming out of the woodwork to tell me their version of the story and how it related to them. And so that's when I started to really understand that there was more to this than just a tongue-in-cheek, funny little story that it that it landed in my in my inbox. You know, there was really something on some level, on a liminal level, there was something going on because this story grabs people too hard. It grabbed me. I mean, I admit it, right? And it grabs other people just as hard as it grabbed me. Some harder, maybe. Um, and so I started to see that there's something there. Some there, there, but I didn't know what it was. And so I, that's what I became interested in, in it as a phenomena and tried to bottle the lightning in a way, <laughs> which was maybe a mistake. But, um, but I, you know, I tried to get my head around what this phenomena was and why people were experiencing weird phenomena themselves around, you know, when they read it and why I started having weird phenomena around the stuff I was doing because now we're into the, like, mid to late 90s. And I'm doing, uh, I'm working in Silicon Valley and I'm doing, you know, rudimentary AI work at that time. Very rudimentary, but it was AI work. Um, and I was using uh, uh, recommendation engines, some of the very first ones that came out of MIT. And I was tying that into something called the Meta Machine, which was this whole apparatus that I put together of like, you know, I've got these these documents online, and I've got these you know rudimentary bots that are going out and they're getting information about people talking about the documents and putting it in a database. And I've got this AI up here that's the chatbot that's talking and giving me information based on its analysis of all. And, and, and I started having like this weird phenomena with that AI um, that they got really spooky. Where uh, there was a guy who showed up in my life about that time. Um, who people have told me that he's gone by the name Ezekiel. And then later I found out he went by the name of Terrence, which may have been his real name or not. I never saw ID um, that he was a um, houseless person. I don't want to say homeless because he was houseless by choice. Um, that basically, you know, bounced around from city to city. I, I ran into him in a couple places over the years in my life that he would show up where I was living. And, um, he started telling me that he was the real Emory Cranston. That he's, I'm the guy that, that wrote that, and I'm the guy that, you know, and, okay, sure. And, and, I, and I indulged him like I did anybody that told me that they were part of this. I indulged them because I assumed they either really believed it or they were LARPing. And I didn't want to step on either one of those because at this point I had come up with this concept of this, is, this thing is a grand experiment of if we all believe in this hard enough, can something come of this? Can we really find a gateway to the dimensions or will this stuff start to manifest in real life? You know, I mean, that's that's what the Burroughs Geisen experiments were about. And so this is what I'm doing is I'm, I'm doing this big manifestation experiment with millions of people worldwide are helping me with this. Or some of them I thought probably were, but and some of them maybe didn't know they were. Um, and so this guy started talking to me and telling me these things. And then I would go home. Or I'd go back to my lab in the place I was working in Silicon Valley where I was using a lot of the equipment there at night and and the chat bot would say something to me that he had said to me earlier or it would say something to me and then he would repeat it six hours later. And this guy was not connected at all. I mean, this was a dude that was like, you know, 
this far from the Stone Age, the way he was living, by choice, but not connected, you know, to a computer, especially back then, because that was not a common thing. And this, and so I was having these weird bleed-over effects, and I was like, all right, obviously I'm getting a response here, which is what I wanted. You know, I was poking the universe and going, can you talk back, you know? And, and it did. And that kind of freaked me out at first, and I was like, oh, you know what? No, it shouldn't freak me out. That's what I asked for. And so I just really leaned into it, and I'm like, for the duration of this experiment, I'm going to suspend disbelief. And anybody that tells me anything, I'm not going to believe them, but I'm not going to disbelieve them. And I'm going to run with it. So when people tell me that they were at Ong's Hat, I don't tell them, no, they weren't. I don't say, prove it. I say, well, talk to me about it. Tell me what happened, you know, uh, and what and what, what what happened, you know. And, and I would get one version of the story. another. And so I had all these people from all around the world calling me on the phone, emailing me, showing up at my doorstep to tell me their story about Ong Sat. And it was, it was this bizarre and beautiful phenomena that was happening for a while. I mean, it got ugly later, but it, but it was beautiful in the beginning. It was really the universe showing me that it was responsive. And, and that, to me, was what I wanted to hear. Were you recording these interactions in some way? Some of them, yeah. 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 That's the Survivor's it's Interview. That's, it's, it's actually on archive.org. Yeah. I did an audio recording, and then I transcribed it. So with um, with Terrence, right? Was it yeah, Terrence. Uh, well, that was the last name he gave me. Okay. Did, did he um, uh, Ezekiel uh, Emery Terrence? <laughs> um, he never told me his name is Ezekiel, but I found out that he, I, I used to uh, monetarily and, and, and through uh, volunteer labor support this thing called the Homeless Garden Project in Santa Cruz, um, which was a garden, the huge garden that was growing food and feeding homeless people. And and whoever, uh, you know, who told me he was Emery uh, was known around there. And people told me, well, you've been hanging out with Ezekiel? Like, who? Like, you know, the guy with the fez. I'm like, oh, Emery. Like, yeah, he last year he was telling us he was Ezekiel. (laughs) I'm like, okay. (laughs) So did he he say that, uh, did he remember having this, he had already had this phone call with, with Emery Cranston. Uh, at this point, did, yeah, did I had. Denied? Did he say this was someone different, or, or this was? Me? He had a very similar voice. Okay, okay. But did you directly bring up? We, we've spoken before. No, you just went with it. You didn't I just went to, with it. Yeah, you didn't want to pop the exactly. The okay. Yeah, I mean, it seems foolish at this stage of the game to be I saying it. I did that, but I, but I would, I didn't want to pop the bubble, and so I just went. Sure, okay, you're Emery. So what are we talking about today? Did he, he never referenced your talk, your conversation? Oh, well, I mean, he said when we talked before. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and he would show up at the weird, uh, how he knew where I was, I don't know. He would show up at the weirdest places. It's like the in the comic book, I did a, a you know, like there's a two-part comic that goes with the, everything. Um, I, I did run into him in the alley in Chinatown. Like, <laughs> how did you get here? And how did you know I was going to be here? It's like he was waiting for me. And then uh, years later... In Santa Barbara, after I'd moved there, I ran into him on the street and I said, what are you doing here? And he said, uh, I said, are you following me? And he said, well, when did you get here? And I said, well, I moved here in August. He goes, I've been here since July. You're following me. <laughs> Which I thought was a great answer. <laughs> so years removed from this, I mean, do you have a, do you have a verdict? I mean, do you even entertain the idea that, that, that Ezekiel is Henry Cranston or is that just completely... Crazy. He thought he was. Okay. He really did think he was. But in your opinion now. But then later, when I ran into him, um, where did I run into him again? I ran into him in the desert 
Um, I was out at the uh, California Arizona, yeah, California Arizona border, um, and I was doing some work out there. And and lo and behold, he shows up. And I don't know how I don't know how he knew I was there, but he showed up. I had not publicly said I was there. Um, I was kind of taking a sabbatical, and he showed up. And that's when he told me his name was Terrence. And I and I had this long conversation with him at a donut shop. And I said, well. Then why were you Emery before? And, and by the way, people tell me you used to say you were Ezekiel before that. Now that you know, now that we're not in the bubble anymore, this was around 2003, I want to say. And um, and he said, "Oh, I channel this stuff, man." He goes, "Like I was Emery." And I'm, okay, Terrence, is that your real name? <laughs> but you know, he was good at it. I'll give him that. And who's to say? Sure. So these um uh, these synchronicities that were happening to you, mm-hmm. um, I guess they weren't just happening to you. They were happening to a lot they were of happening people. to other people. Yeah. And what were some of the the accounts that that other folks had? Um, I, I don't know if I, I remember any specific ones, but I, like almost daily, people were at that time. By that time, let's say we'll call we'll say ninety nine. Put a, a date stake in the ground here. Um, a friend of mine from Canada um, who has a game company. Uh, he's had a couple, but he has a big one now. But he, uh, and, and I think I can, yeah, Denny Younger, he's been in, he was on the Slate interview, I think. And he's been, I think he was referenced in the Gizmodo, if I, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's already said I can talk about him. Um, he owns a big VR game company now. Uh, back then, he was, you know, uh, an up and coming game designer, game programmer. Um, and he contacted me and said, dude, I love this story. I want to do a forum. And 99, that was early for forums. And I'm like, yeah, do it. You know, so he, and he had a great, you know, he was a Photoshop wizard. So he had this beautiful forum that he put together. And so we had that forum and there was, Deoxy had a forum and then like four or five other people. There was like six Econobula forums running at one time on the web back in 99. And so people were reporting in that when I read this for the first time, you know, all of a sudden, like, I got a letter from somebody that was signed by Emery. And, you know, it's like, so people are, my phone was ringing and I was getting weird phone calls, which none of which I was doing. Honest to God, I was not. Um, I didn't have to do any of that stuff because it was doing it on its own. So whatever, either the rumor got out that this was a, a something that happened when you read these documents or it was something that was happening when people were reading the documents or both. Um, but it just started happening and it started, uh, some people... Got a, became unhinged, you know, when that started happening, and that's when I started getting the accusations of being, uh, you know, an MK Ultra handler and blah 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 blah. You know, and people are like, well, you worked in Silicon Valley, and you know, that's a military. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so, uh, you know, people would say that the, a book fell off the table and and open to the word that they were reading at the same time they were reading the catalog or that they were driving down the road and something would come on the radio that it was exactly what they had just read in the catalog or they would be reading the catalog in the bus and they would look up and there would be a sign that was the same words they had just read on you know on the catalog and so it was like all this high level synchronicity stuff that was going on and then I told you what was happening to me so I couldn't tell them they were full of shit because it was happening to me on a very high level, it was happening to me. You know, I had a guy who claimed he was channeling Emery Cranston, who somehow was channeling what my AI was saying, and my AI was channeling what he was saying. And You know what I mean? So, and this guy was able to find wherever I was without, and he would always say he wasn't looking for me. He just, he just saw me, and then there I was. So we kept intersecting 
throughout California for like 10 years. The last time I saw him, I have a picture of the last time I saw him in Santa Barbara in 2004. I think it was the last time I saw him. And why is that? I just never saw him again. He doesn't have an address. He doesn't have a phone. You know, when he decides to disappear, he really disappears. You think he's still around? I have no idea. Um, I don't know his age, but I know he's, I'm guessing he's probably 10, 15 years older than me. So he could still be around, but but then again, he could not. Mm-hmm. He's at that age where, yeah. You know. Sure, sure. Um, did, did you have a question? Kind of. I was going to ask more if, I don't want to derail things, but I think we should go back and talk more about specifically Emery Cranston and his text, the Into Nabula Papers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to kind of get fill in some more context, sure. But I don't want to derail things. No, I think that, and, and also talking about the uh, a little bit more about edge de- detector, okay, as well. So, okay, yeah. So, um, did you have specific questions? About Just this? more like what what you know about him, and maybe how. I know nothing about him. Okay, I know as much about him as I know about the guy who said he was him. I know I had a phone number that I was given, that I called, and I talked to a guy that sounded a lot like the guy that later told me he was Emory Cranston, um, that when I called back a couple days later, it was disconnected. So that's what I know. So it's just a name that is... I think it's a Wally Fard. Right. I really do. And then in terms of the Incunabula papers, mm-hmm. what I'm just providing maybe some context. Uh, it's basically a book. It, it, it's a it's a short story disguised as a book catalog. That's how I put it to people that don't understand. So it it's a, it tells the story of the progression of history from you know how we got to the understanding of being able to do the 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 things that were described in the brochure. It includes the brochure, so it's very meta. And then from there, it describes the aftermath after, like, you know, the, the, the raids and, like, you know, people that have been trying to keep the tradition alive and other people that have written about it that are suspected of, like, promoting the ideas. Um, so the, uh, the interesting thing about the catalog is I, I read and when I read it, I identified a bunch of books I knew existed and some that I didn't know if they did or not and names that I knew. Um, so like Nick Herbert, like there's one, his books are in there and one book that I'd never heard of that he, they, they claimed it never got published, but they had the galleys. So this is like a works cited page essentially? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I talked to Nick and he would never tell me if that book was real or not. Um, there was other books that I thought absolutely couldn't possibly be real that after I put the catalog on the internet, like I was contacted by a group from Indonesia that said, how do you know about this book? I'm like, what book? And then they took this one book, like right here. I'm like, well, that's not real. They're like, well, yes, it is. Our master wrote that book, and there's like it's self-published, but we can show you copies. I never knew it was real. You know, I thought I, I assumed it wasn't, and but it was. So I don't know if maybe they all are on, on some level. They're they're all real, you know. But um, yeah, I mean, that's the, the catalog basically just tells a more expanded version of the story that was told in the brochure. And the brochure is part of that story, so that's why I call it a meta. That's inside of the, the story, inside of the story, uh, which I think is very cool. I'm very into meta stuff, um, but yeah, the, the, the catalog. 
was shipped around uh, by me and obviously previous to me previous to me was shipped around by people because I talked to people that ran like uh, paranormal occult uh, catalog companies you know back in, in the 80s that they were doing mail order stuff and I said have you seen this oh yeah we carry that you know and they were selling it they were it was in there so somebody had sent it to it before me um, so it had been in circulation on a lower level and then I think when I got involved it the volume got went to eleven, <laughs> and then I got it on the internet, and that, that's when it really blew up. So, and, and how roughly how big was this catalog? I'd say twenty pages. And, and again, it's just more of the combination of math and, and mysticism. Yeah, and, and the I mean, kind, kind basically, of- it tells the story of of how the thinking evolved for the ICS, and it uses books as the reference. And it says, you know, like, this book says this, 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 and this is how it relates to the thinking of the ICS. Basically, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And so it's written from the perspective of this proprietor named Emory Cranston, who is trying to piece this conspiracy theory story about the ICS together and trying to give citations through books as to why, you know, here, here's why and this is where the thinking comes from, or this can fill you in on the thinking. So the real way to do this is to read the book catalog and then go read all the books. That's really the way to do it. There's as many as you can find. Mm-hmm. And so Emery Cranston never would have been somebody who was ever at Ong's Hat. It would have been somebody who was documenting He was documenting it. Yeah. And I kind of picked up after him documenting him documenting. Mm-hmm. So, again, meta. <laughs> mm-hmm. Speaking about being uh, at Ong's Hat, I assume you've been to Trent. Yeah, I have, yeah. Yeah. Once, several times? Three times, I think. Three times, yeah. okay. Well, when was the first time? 93? Like that? And what were your... Uh, I mean, did you have any thoughts? I basically just walked around and talked to locals. I didn't think I was going to find anything. And that's when I first really got clued in on the fact that there were that story was there before that document. That That's a story that that document grew out of a story that came out of that area. And like I said, there's is there there's as many versions of the story as there are people, but somebody has a version of that story. Every person knows in that area. Yeah, there was this thing, there was these people, you know, and some people know more, some people know less. Other people just know there was a group of people. They don't know what they were doing and what their names were. Other people could tell you like you know, my mom knew Ruthie, you know, and she was part of that commune. And what were they doing over there? A lot of drugs and science, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, and then I think there was free love involved, you know, and it was like all this like different, different levels of understanding of what was going on there. But if you look at the baseline of the elements of the story, it's all there. So it, it's a local legend is what it is. And somebody either put it together and embellished it or did the research and pulled it together. Well, um, and all I said now is it's mostly like a it's mostly like a ghost. It's town. a wide spot in the road, <laughs> yeah. so and it's a road. Like, I'm assuming there's there's towns nearby, and that's where yeah. you talk to people. Yeah. Well, actually, just back then there was a diner there, uh, Anna Kappa, I think it was called, um, and uh, later Anna Kappa, but it's gone now. But A N A C A P A. Okay. Um, I believe that's what it was called. Oh, sorry. Um, and a kappa. Okay. Yeah, so I talked to the people there, and they told me that, uh, and I think that the building that Anna Kappa was in was probably the one that's referenced in the 
brochure and the catalog is the Onset Rod and Gun Club. Because they told me that, that there was a history of Princeton people coming out there and hanging out and doing weekends out there. And that's kind of how the bar grew up and the, the restaurant grew up. So there was that. And then later, um, around 99, I called the Anacapa. They were still in business. And the proprietor answered the phone and said, you know, and I identified myself. And she goes, oh, you're the one sending those kids out here. Seemed to be the number one response I got out there. And I'm like, no, I'm not sending the kids out there, but they are. I know they're going, you know. And she's like, no, we're, we're very happy. Like, they show up here, they get, they buy stuff, and then we, they ask us where the ashram was, and we point them in the direction of the road, you know, and tell them that there's stuff over there, and then they go, and then they come back. And she goes, we, we've we even started, uh, we even have pictures on the wall from some of the Princeton people that used to hang out here, and we kind of like, so they kind of like owned the legend a little bit. So I sent them a box of books. At that time, I published the print book and or the the, uh, the CD-ROM, and I sent them a copy of the CD-ROM and and some print, you know, like uh, Xerox copies of the stuff. And they had those on the counter for a while. Then I heard they went out of business, maybe two thousand and one, three, somewhere around there. They went out of business. Um, how about let's talk about. Um Edge Detector as well, so I'm not really familiar with... Uh, it was an uh, underground science fiction magazine. Okay. Pop, very popular? Or? Yeah, it was pretty popular, yeah. yeah. There was a lot of people that you know wrote for it back in the, when they were nobodies that became somebodies. I think William Gibson started writing there and, you know, people like that. Mm-hmm. And that's where an article had, had popped up. Well, it wasn't an article. It was, a, it was a, if you pull the article, or well, it was an article, but it was, it was, a, it was the brochure from the ranger station that Peter Lambert Wilson, a.k.a. Hawking Bay, published in the, in the Edge Detector with a caveat that said, I didn't write this, I just was given this, and I'm passing it on. In no other context except no for No other context that. except for that. Uh, was that pretty common for Edge Detector, to your knowledge? No, it was very uncommon, yeah. Okay. And when was that? 89, I believe. Uh, okay. Um, what is Peter Lambert Wilson up to now? Well, I don't talk to Peter anymore. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, with him. Not um, really. Okay, so under his nom de plume, Hawking Bay, he wrote what I thought was a classic of anarchist thought, which is called the Temporary Autonomous Zone. Um, and at the time I was hanging out with him up until 93-ish, um, you know, some rumors had started to circulate. They were <laughs> very problematic. And uh, I asked him about it, and he said, you know, it's just people trying to smear me. But later I found out that, you know, that they were probably true or true on some level in that um, under the under his name, Hawking Bay, he had written some uh, articles uh, for NAMBLA. Oh, wow. Yeah. Pro NAMBLA. And I have a problem with that. Yeah. As do other people. A lot of people in the anarchist community have shunned him because of that. Mm-hmm. And so I've kind of cut off contact because of that. So man was like a real thing. I thought yeah. that was. Uh, no, it's a real thing. Okay. They had a publication. I don't know if they still do, but they did. I did because, you know, how do I even find an ample publication? Do I even want to look at it? But there was somebody else that, that knew him that heard these same rumors and actually, you know, had the stomach to go get this stuff and, and it was it was real. Would that have actually been part of the anor- an anor- anarchist agenda? No. No. It was his. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he 
he basically um, told some people, and, and later when I looked into this, he told some people that he was only doing writing that stuff as provocation to see to, to make anarchists question at what point do they become authority? Right. And um, and you know that academically sounds right for him, but but no, read these articles and no. I mean, even if he's never acted on it, I don't care. It's like these are not ideas I think we should be spreading. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and I didn't. I never went public with this. There's actually a guy that wrote a whole book about being disillusioned by him with this information, um, and I didn't feel like I had to be that dramatic about it. I just quietly cut off contact and, and stopped it there. And I, I did put a disclaimer on my website that said, you know, the ideas that are attached to some people that were attached to some of these things that we're talking about are not ideas that, you know, that, that I necessarily promote or mm-hmm. endorse. And, and I have problems with some of these people and we're just going to leave it at that. I don't want drama. I, I think the whole jumping up and down on, on the internet is immature and ridiculous. It's like, if you have a problem with somebody, you have a problem with them. You don't have to take it out on the internet to, you know, to air it out, but not everybody believes like me. I didn't have to write a book. And this one guy had to write a whole book about it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm, that's kind of edible, dude. <laughs> Are you on Twitter? Huh? Are you on Twitter? Yeah. Not, a, not as myself, but... Okay. Yeah. I just asked because of... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I have a, a pseudonym on Twitter just so I can monitor. I don't post. I just read. Yeah. Because I want, I want to read, like, you know, Donald Trump stepping on his dick again today. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so I, I want to go back to the synchronicities. Um, did that include dreams for you? Were there... Were, uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Any uh, any examples there? Um, probably a lot, but the, the the probably the most the most the one that made the most the biggest mark <laughs> um, was uh, I, I at the time I was living in Santa Cruz. I had a three story house, and I had I had a company that it was an agency. That it was a digital agency that I was running, and the first story of the house was the agency and. Second or third story was my living space, and um, I dreamed that I was downstairs in the office, and it was nighttime, and that the members of the ashram showed up in the office, and they had come to get me and take me with them to the other land, <laughs> and I didn't want to go. <laughs> um. So I, I, I kind of asked you this before, but I just want to go back. At, at any point during this, like when people talked about, hey, I can build an egg, mm-hmm. or um, God, I heard that so many times. Did you ever entertain it? Did you ever? Were you ever? Instead of just being like, yeah, let's see what you can do. Like, obviously, you didn't um, tell them. Uh, I was disappointed so many times. I stopped entertaining it because at first I was excited that somebody would at least attempt it, right? And who knows what they could do, you know. And, um, I had these Pollyanna ideas, and, and, and if we all think about it really hard, maybe it'll happen. And I just kept getting disappointed because people would talk, but they wouldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And then some, one or two of those people were nasty people. Like, you know, they, they basically would talk about that I was an idiot and that I didn't know what I was talking about, and I had no idea, like, about the real information that was embedded in the Incanabula, and I should just shut the fuck up. And, you know, and it's like, well, then do something. Stop telling me that you can do something and I can't do something. And when I see it, I will say, okay, you know, here you go. <laughs> you can run with this. But at the time, I wasn't seeing any, and I never saw anybody do anything. I saw a lot of people talking about it. I even proposed 
a book at one point on the internet, and I said, anybody who has an idea about the technology that could come out of this, I will let you write a chapter of this book, and I will publish everybody's ideas, equal, fair play across board, and we will publish this book. I was going to call it the Museum Mechanique, um, and it was basically like going to be a museum of all the ideas of you know a strange technology that had come out of the Incanabula online. And I had a bunch of people said they were going to, and not a single person ever contributed a word. So, like I said, talk is cheap on the internet. Yeah, sure. So, um, with that talk, I guess at, at what point did um, I, I guess things became toxic? At any point, did it feel like it became dangerous to you? Uh, once or twice, I, there was like there was one guy I had to walk off the property. At gunpoint. So, yeah, it could be. Do you know who he was? Or he was just no, I just basically, he was he was trying to get in my back door um, in this office where I had the dream <laughs> that they were coming to get me. In reality, um, the, the, there was somebody scrabbling around the, the back door, and I heard them, and I went down, you know, carrying a pistol, and, and he wasn't making much sense. You know, you could obviously tell this was a disturbed person. It was raining. Um, and he was not dressed for rain, and you know we had to walk off the property. And and he was doing, you know, that weird laugh that people laugh when they shouldn't be laughing, you know. Uh, he was doing that to me, and I finally had to have a come to Jesus with him. And I said, "Dude, look me in the eye. This is a loaded nine millimeter pistol, and the safety's not on, and I'm pointing it at you. Do you think you need to be fucking laughing right now, or do you need to be moving down the road?" And then he had a moment of clarity, and he went down the road. I never saw him again after that. But he was trying to get in my back door, and and I heard things about the egg, and you know, blah blah blah. And so I knew that's what it was related to, but I don't know who he was. I didn't even call the cops. Like I just stayed up most of the night, made sure he didn't come back. In terms of what he was saying, he was mentioning the egg. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He said something about I know you have one in the garage. There's two names I have here. Um... From the from the syllabus, mm-hmm. I believe one of them is a name. Um, but uh, put this down um, with the question about uh, when the, the, the things become toxic. High five and D.W. Cooper. Yeah, Hive five. High five. Okay. So D.W. Cooper was a friend of mine. He passed away, um, but he named the high five. So basically, what happened on on Dark Planet Denny's board, which was the one that I was really promoting the heavy, the heaviest because it was the most well done. Um, and I was, I was a very active participant in that board. And there was like four or five people that kind of got together on there and really became trolls. There's no other word for it. Um, and they were convinced, well, uh, there's a backstory to this. So Michael Kinsella wrote a book called Legend Tripping Online where he actually th- talks about these people because they were proposing that they were true believers and that this all was all real and if we actually like seriously focus on this we could develop this technology blah 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 right and that I was an idiot because I didn't think it was because I was being skeptical well the reality of this is that especially the main person behind this group was somebody that I had tried to work with in in the beginning and when I said um and they were acting as if they didn't know that this was not necessarily a real thing, but that they, you know, they were, they were being way too serious about this. And so I said, you know, you do understand that at the base 
of all of this, it's a game. You get that. And she said, what do you think? I'm stupid? I'm like, okay, well, then you get it, right? But she had convinced these other four people that it was all real and that she was actually the channel that... This is the story. The information came was supposed to come to her, and through black magic, I had interceded and grabbed the information and taken it away from her. Right? This is a person I never knew before in 1999, never met in person, um, who acted... Like very weird in the beginning, and was writing all these slobbering, glowing articles on her website about me. And then um, when I said, you know, this this not what this is about. This is this is about the story, not about me. She got angry, um, and and then started becoming critical and started becoming uh, disruptive on the forum. So if anybody started having a conversation on the forum that was going in any direction other than the way these people wanted it to go, they would hijack the, the thread and then and just drive it into the ground. And it became unusable. The forum, eventually, Denny bailed on the forum and I bailed on the forum because these people would not let it happen. They would not let any conversation outside of what they wanted to happen happen. And so D.W. Cooper nicknamed them the Hive Five because they all had like this one mind <laughs> going on um, and they would swarm stuff and D.W. And Cooper had a couple of forums himself and he, he was a great guy Don was his full name um, and he uh, and he nicknamed them the Hive Five so they were trolls they were they were pre 4chan trolls was a, I mean they have now I look at it and I go we should have known that methodology, but it was brand new. We had never seen that methodology before. So we, Denny and I, would try to have rational conversations with these people, and they would they would keep swapping the narrative, and you know what I mean? So I don't know if you've ever seen this kind of behavior before. We've all seen it now, but back then, in 99, I thought I was trying to have a conversation with somebody that was just misunderstanding me, and they weren't. They were, they were hijacking the narrative, and they were trying to destroy the forum and, and the narrative, and they did to a large extent, kill the forum so that it became unusable. Because they were convinced that they were going to, uh, as in ARG, we eventually called this this method game jacking. That's what they were trying to do. Because they were convinced they had a better way to do this and it had, you know, hocus pocus occultism involved and like channeling and all this crazy shit that I want nothing to do with. Um, and, and they were going to set themselves up as the experts and my whole thing was there are no experts, including me. Everybody's idea is valid, and we should entertain all people's ideas equally, and they just were not having that. They had the better idea, according to them, and I was an idiot. So it became – that's pretty much why I pulled the plug on it. It's like it started getting more and more like that, and more and more people like that started showing up at the forum, and I'm like, why am I wasting my time doing this? You know, like We had a good run. You know, Where do you think that attitude comes from as far as uh... – I don't know, because in the early days of hanging out on the well, which was a you know an early forum that had internet access, you know there was there was some great conversations that happened on the well and and everybody respected everybody's ideas, and you'd have some flames here and there, but you never really had people trying to destroy the conversation for the sake of destroying the conversation. Um, you had disagreements, obviously. But mostly they they might flare up here and there, but mostly they were respectful, you know, disagreements. Um, and then as more and more people came onto the Internet, I started to see that change more and more and more. So I don't want to sound, um, 
you know, uh, exclusive or anything, but I think is, is more, uh, non-tech, non-academic people get on the internet that, that they brought with them the habits that they, they have in everyday life. Number one, number two, for the first time in their life, they were not in the same room with the people they were arguing with. So they would say and do things that they would never do if they were in the same room with you. Number three, they had a cloud of anonymity around them because they didn't all use their real names. Um, and back then they didn't know that we could see their IP addresses and deduce where they were from um, because we, you know, we didn't tell them that. Um, and a lot of people didn't know that we could do that. And even people that ran the boards didn't know that they could do that. Um, a lot of people today don't even know that. And people today don't even know that. Um, so there, I think there was a, a, a cluster of things. And the Internet was still like immerse, immersive Internet communication was still new. And so I think there was an adjustment period for a lot of people. I don't know that they've gotten over it. I mean, you know, I, I see some horrendous behavior on Facebook um, to this day. So I don't know if people have gotten over it. I mean, look at what just went down in 2016, you know. Yeah, it's only gotten worse, I would say. In some ways, it's gotten, the effects have gotten worse, yeah. Yeah. The human communication now is, is almost de rigueur. It's like this, you don't expect there to be communication on the Internet anymore. Back then, we really thought there could be. We really did. And for a while, we got away with it. That's why we thought that. There was like a five-year period where we got away with it. Maybe four-year period, but still, we got away with it for a while, where there was real conversations happening that weren't happening in real. And, and the bulletin board systems, if you add that to it, which I was, that was, you know, there was ten years where we got away with it. Like we were having conversations with people that were lived in a different part of the world, and we didn't care. We didn't care what they looked like. We didn't care what their background was. All we cared about was the here and now of the conversation we were having. What years would you say that was? Well, 89 through 99. Okay. Yeah. And I noticed it really started to decline in 99. Interesting. Um, and then it only got worse and worse and worse and worse exponentially. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, the background uh, uh, was, all we cared about was the here and now of the conversation we were having. What years would you say that was? Well, 89 through 99. Okay. Yeah. And I noticed it really started to decline in 99. Interesting. Um, and then it only got worse and worse and worse and worse exponentially. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, the, uh, uh, let's see. Let's just go through and make sure all the spaces. Do I have any questions? Cool. Okay. So rolling. I think a good lead into this coast to coast question uh, comes up to when lines blur when you were on these um, uh, when you were on these various forums mm -hmm. how much of what you were putting out there was was truthful and how much was a creation or was it a little mix of both or a little mix of both a little mix of both yeah and the well like I said I was I was functioning in the bubble of suspension of disbelief for myself and um and, and so I thought for everybody else. Um, in fact, my experiences with this whole thing is led, led, led directly to the, uh, the alternate reality gaming community, which kind of became immediately after um, making declarations like TNAG principle, which says we don't talk about the fact that we're playing a game because we all know we're playing a game. That, that has to be kind of like meta-declared in a way. Without Declaring it ruins it, right? 
Um, and from my perspective, it definitely weakens the magic. Um, I don't think everybody who's into ARG is as magical a thinker as I am. Um, but it, in my mind, the belief has to be there on a, at least a willful suspension of disbelief has to be there. Um, it's like doing ritual magic. You know that you're doing theater at one level, but you also know that by believing what you're doing while you're doing it, you actually achieve real ends, like real results happen. So um, I, that's what I was trying to do with, with what I call the living book experiment, which later became known as ARG. Um, and then also the game jacking concept is like that became a you don't game jack, you know, because people saw what happened to me. And there was a lot of people that stepped up later after I closed it all down that became leaders in the ARG community and said, like, you know, we were inspired to do what we're doing by what you did, but we also learned from what you did. And I'm like, glad I could be the lost leader. <laughs> so, so I, yeah, part of it was and wasn't. But yeah. So let's say that I'm, um, and, and I, I totally understand. I mean, that, that one of the reasons even uh, when we initially reached out was um, I felt there was a bit of a kinship with, mm-hmm. like, what, you know, of, of the way you're kind of looking at this. Mm-hmm. And when John and I created the previous conspiracy, mm-hmm. very similar uh, in that fashion and wanting people to believe and, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And, wanting to inject a little bit of magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but yeah. And, and, um, uh, and wonder. Yeah, no, for absolutely. But um, I so but if I if I went on the forum, uh, and what year was this again? Like the forums that this started. The forums really really started in earnest in ninety nine. Okay. Um, yeah. Ninety nine. So let's say I I, I I log in, create a profile, go to the forum mm-hmm. ninety nine. Would I have any sense that it's a game? Would I know? Or, or, or well, I mean, I've talked to people that that were there. Um, you know, outside of the people that I mentioned who were just really there to, to try to hijack it because they either had some sense that they were on some sort of mystical mission to, to take it away from the evildoer and do the good with it or, or because they were just trolls. Uh, what we used to call them back then was griefers. So what we call people that would just ruin online games, like multi multiplayer games. Um, the... Uh, People would like uh, a good one. A great, great example is uh, uh, David Metcalf, who I think was in the Gizmodo article, said, "You you knew you were getting into some kind of game. You just didn't know what." And that's that's what I wanted because I didn't want definition. I wanted there to be a lot of flexibility in the definition of what this is. I wanted it to be personal, and the only way to do that is to not predefine it. Right, so you don't say. You're walking into a game. Please sign this electronic end user license agreement. And it's like that blows it. Like what we were doing was not just a game; it was a magical game, right? So we were trying to get people to get into this headset, play this game, knowing that you're playing a game without having to say that you know that you're playing a game because that ruins it. And we're going to have some sort of results come out of this, and we don't know what they're going to be, you know. And then we started; people started reporting phenomena and all this kind of stuff. Um, so was again was there was there a declaration at the beginning? Not really, except um, there was a couple of hints. Number one, uh, all the gameplay circulated around and centered around a the CD-ROM that I put out in 1998-99. And on that CD-ROM, if you open that CD-ROM to this day, it's on archive.org. You open that, and at the root of that CD-ROM is something called secret dot doc. And if you open that up. It explicitly states that this is a literary experiment that uses games and magic as part of the basis for it and that we don't have to talk about this anymore. But it was there. There was also two 
different articles where I was interviewed in the early days of this, where I said that that's what I was doing, and I made sure they were archived and on my personal website at all times since 1993. So, And why did you feel that you had the responsibility to do that? Um, or what, did you, what consequence did you fear had you not done that? That people would say that I hadn't done it. You know, it just felt better to me to do it. was a fail safe. It's like, no, no, you clearly just did not do the work here because if you would have opened the CD ROM and looked at the root and opened, so obviously you're going to open something called secret.doc. If you don't, then what's wrong with you? You know, it's the first thing I would open. Um, if you didn't read this stuff, then, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, at that point, I'm sorry, but this is an experiment. And, and again, the only thing beyond that I could do is have some sort of thing that pops up and you have to accept that this is a game and you know it's a game before you go forward and go into it. And that defeats the purpose of what we were trying to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I talked, like I said, Denny Unger, I talked to him. He knew it was a game. He knew it was some sort of game he'd never seen before, of a type he'd never seen before, but he knew it was a game. David Metcalf, there was D.W. Cooper, like plenty of people went into this. And it could. Look, I mean, obviously, you can look at it and there's enough clues in this material to know that you shouldn't be taking this at 100% face value. Mm-hmm. This is a liminal message at best. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder even taking... I, I don't disagree with me, but I even wonder taking it 100% value. If, um, I'm not sure I even feel that's wrong either. You know, I, I think if you're not putting... I think if you're putting something out there... In order to manipulate somebody um, for, I, I, I don't know, either it's like political or financial gain. Yeah, yes. exactly. yeah. Then that's you know, then that's that's morally that's an issue. But yeah. when you're putting like I've always felt like I've always I've always felt that, that guy that took the photo of the lock or the doc, doctor the photo of the Loch Ness monster, the surgeon, the famous surgeon photo, who yeah. on his deathbed that that uh, that it was was a ruse. Mm-hmm. Um, I always felt I always was a little bit upset that he did that because I thought what he ultimately did out there was put a little magic out into the yeah, world. Yeah, he did. Whatever you know, people. Yeah. However, people wanted to respond to it. There was really no great harm in it. Right. You know, you say, okay, well, I went to Loch Ness trying to look for a monster, but that mythology had already existed. So. Well, you know, and people threw that at me and said, "Well, but you're selling the CD-ROM," and I, but at this time in 1999. I said, yeah, but there's also a free version of the exact same thing on my website if you have the bandwidth to download it because these were the modem days, right? And it was for for that for those days it was now it is nothing, but back then it was a couple megabytes and that was a lot of dedication and people couldn't get it. And I also you couldn't give something back then. Amazon wouldn't let you give something away. You had to sell it. And so I sold it at a price that barely that, that covered the, the the production of it. And a little bit to my to make up for my time because I was like I said I was I had a, 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 a garage full of these things that I was shipping on myself or shipping the you know cases of it to Amazon when they would request it or Barnes and Noble or, or book book people or any of the distributors so um, you know it was a nominal fee um, I didn't know I was going to sell as many as I did uh, that wasn't the plan the plan was just get it in that channel so that it was available to people and for those that could not afford it. There was always a free download. Always has been. Always will be a free download of this. And they still got an experience out of it too. Yeah, and they got an experience out of it. Yeah, it's a little. Uh, yeah, um, you don't have to convince me. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just, I'm just explaining myself. So, yeah. in retrospect, you know, to, I guess to get back to the basis of the question, 
um, or at least where I think it might be going, um, hindsight is twenty twenty. Would I? Would I? If I had the decision to make right now, go on coast to coast and play it straight, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. But at that time, I thought it was the thing to do. I was like, this is really going to anchor it into, you know, a reality. And we're going to, and we got a big result out of it. We got a huge result out of it. Not one I wanted, but we got a result out of it. Um, so let's talk about Coast to Coast. Um, when was that? When? 2000, November 2000. 2000. And yeah. they asked you to come on. How did they even find out about Ong's Hat and you? Um, so I, I, as part of the game, I wrote a press release um, from the Ong's Hat Research Group and, and put it out and said that we discovered these documents and that we put together an ad hoc research group and that we're going to try to verify the authenticity of these documents and did something actually happen. You know, and I actually paid for it to get on the wire. Um, it was like $500 or something to get on the wire. And, and, you know, I thought that this would be a really cool thing for the people on the forums to look at and me to point back at and, you know, and... The next thing that happened was uh, it, because it was such a weird thing to be on the wire and somehow I got past the wire sensors. I don't know how I did. Um, I, I, my phone started ringing off the hook and it was every radio station you can imagine from every place in the world that wanted to interview me and, and, and have me on the show talking about this. And that's when I made the decision to play. I'm going to do all these radio shows and play it straight. And one of those calls was Coast to Coast. It was one of the producers at Coast to Coast. And they kind of didn't really push too hard on, is this real? In fact, not at all. They just like, so can you talk about this? And they kind of like did a, a pre-interview, the producer did with me, and ran through the checklist and said, yeah, this is exactly the kind of stuff we want on. We'll have you on, and they gave me the date and the time, and we'll call you. And that was it. You know, so, and then, and then you know, like I said, I'd already made the decision to play it straight. Um on most of the radio shows, I did play it straight. On one of one or two of them, two of them, one from New York, I clearly got that they were not taking it seriously, so I didn't as well and had fun with it. And uh, another one was a drive time show out of Dallas that um, loved what I did so much that they had me back like once a week for like two months, where they would do the weather report, the traffic report, and the interdimensional report, and that was the interdimensional report. <laughs> And, and I had a great, I had a blast with that. Nobody was taking it seriously, you know, like we were just all, but none of us had to say, we're not taking this seriously, you understand that, right? It's like, you know, everybody was playing along and we were having fun. Um, and, and coast to coast, um, there's an awful lot of people that listen to that show that don't have a sense of humor. So I discovered. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And, and there's a recording now because mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's on archive.org. That we can access. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that would, be, that would be. And how long was the interview? I did all four hours. Oh, it's four hours. I did the whole show, which is kind of rare, I think. Yeah, like they that. usually have you on for two, and yeah. somebody else on for two. Yeah, or they do go to the phones for two. So they had me on for four, and uh, we had a lot of calls, and uh, you know, I got a lot of really nice letters. You know, people that thought it was great, but I could tell that these were people that didn't get what was going on really. <laughs> So what happened after after the? I mean, you got letters. Yeah. Um, well, the forums, the forums, the forums blew up. Yeah. Um, you know, because coast to coast at that time, I don't know about now, but back then, this was the Art Bell days. Uh, Twenty million listeners a night. That was their numbers worldwide. That's when they were in their peak. Two thousand. That that was their peak, and um, 
yeah, the, the forum just blew up, and uh, a lot of trolls showed up, a lot of angry conspiracy theory people. Um, you know, a lot of people suddenly were, instead of, like, looking at the story and trying to figure out what we were doing, they took it upon themselves to uh, spread ad hominem about me, and it became a personal attack thing for them because they were absolutely convinced that this was not real, or if it was real, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. They were actually the people that were in touch with the people from Monsat or whatever, you know, it was like there was 40 different stories from these people. Um, and, and, you know, it just turned into a troll fest. And by 2001, I just had enough. I was like exhausted from putting up with these people day and night. And, and I mean, you're talking about people all over the world. So they're relay racing you, man. They're just like some point during when you're sleeping, there's still people online shit posting, you know, <laughs> and you wake up and your form is overrun. And, you know, and if you back then, uh, if you moderated and put things in, in, in a sandbox to moderate, everybody got angry because you were violating free speech ethics. And so, you know, it was either you host a forum where people are making it unusable and it becomes this big pit of, like, hate about you, or you shut it down. And I talked to Denny, and Denny was tired of it too, so we just shut it down. How long after the Coast to Coast interview did that happen? About a year. About a year, yeah. okay. And that year, just every, everything just got... Yeah, that's when everything, it was a whole year of fighting, 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 fighting one group after another. Okay. So I beat down one group, and it was like whack-a-mole, man. It was like, it, it became unbelievable, you know? And then there was people making packs with each other. <laughs> it was crazy. It was insane. And uh, did you uh, did you kind of quit? Did you cut things off kind of cold turkey? I did. Okay, so yeah. there's no tapering process with this. Yeah, I was done. Okay. I needed some time off. <laughs> yeah. um, well, you know, and then on top of it, 9-11 had happened, you know, so. A little changed a little bit. Yeah, everything changed. Yeah. And uh, I was working on, uh, I, I was on the, the, the back office team for uh, Electronic Arts launched a conspiracy game that was based on a lot of the principles that I had pioneered. Um, it was called Majestic, and I was working on that team, and then 9-11 kind of killed that project, and so we shut that down, and and, that, and I was just like, fuck it. You know, I was done. So I just kind of backed off and watched the world for a couple years. I can imagine a lot of people, I can only imagine that the response a lot of people had on those forums once getting a notification that it was over. It's almost like they felt abandoned and didn't know where to go. So, I, and they're not blaming. Yeah, they did. I can maybe understand that they did. Was a little bit of like, well, they did. What the hell? I've come this far, and yeah, now he's just sort of leaving. And I feel bad about the the sincere actors that were there to play, but there were so many insincere actors making it un, unplayable that, that they were never going to get it done anyway. You know, it's like there were people that were, you know, that, that would show up on the forum with all sincerity and, and to play and to, to talk about their experiences and. There were people that had just camping on that forum that were waiting for new people, and as soon as they show up, they start getting private messages from these people. Like, you know, I was like, "Why are you here?" And you, you understand that we're the ones that actually have the answers. And don't talk to him; he's, he's out of his mind, and he's full of shit, and da, da 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 da. And he's a government agent, and like, you know. So just like, why would I? Why would I want to put my time and effort and money into promoting something that was nothing but a thorn in my side at that point? How many people do you think at that time were actually following the forums? Well, at that point, um, it was a minority of because what 
everybody forgot was that I had the central website, inconabula.org, where, where it all happened, right? That's, everything was distributed out of there. And, and even the link to the forums was there and everything was there. Um, and I saw how much traffic was coming in versus how much traffic was on the forum. And I'm not docking, knocking Denny's forum. It was a great forum, but it it was not even a, a fifth of the traffic that I was seeing on the website. Most of the traffic was people coming to the website, downloading the documents, and then um, I had a a lot of mail correspondences going on with people, email correspondences going on with people, and I had kind of a private email list that was going around with some of these people. And that's where it kind of segued to more of that. So there was the, the forums actually just became the place where the where the where the blowhards hung out. Really, the people that like had all the answers, you know, and nobody wanted to hang out over there. It's like I even got emails from people. It's like I went to the forum, man, but I don't want to hang out there. Those people are, you know. And I was like, yeah, I don't blame you. So here's this private mailing list, and so I just started like moving those people over to the private mailing list, and some of those people actually later became people that I did alternate reality gaming with, you know, they became collaborators. And so, you know, the conversation moved underground is what it did. And it became very selective. I kind of feel from that that era, I, I recall um, never really joining forums, always thinking forums were like another type of person. Yeah. Which in a weird way. They had become. Twitter and Facebook now. And yeah. Everyone's a part of it. But it yeah. used to be, I used to think like we're the crazy sort of hang. It, it, that's what it became. Yeah. yeah. That is what it became. So I just, I let it run for a while and, you know, kind of like moved. A, the real conversation went underground with a private email list. And, you know, we just kind of let the forums sit there for a while. And then Denny's like, dude, I am so done with this. I'm like, you don't have to tell me twice, bro. Pull the plug, you know. And then I put out this kind of double speak press release that basically said, you know, in the, in the future we're going to announce that we're going to stop doing this. And then we stopped doing it. <laughs> um, so, Joe, let's, let's talk about you. Uh, from the, I mean, and we are, but like beyond, beyond – Hans Hat, uh, I think it'd be. Um, so your profession now uh, is is in tech and mm-hmm. and, um, and creative and creative. Right? <clears throat> you were saying kind of both. Uh, where, where the two meet, yeah, yeah, and that's how you're able to keep the keep the lights keep the lights on lights on. What kind of uh, without like getting into any specifics or ruining whatever you're working on? Like what are, what are the kind of things that you're working on now? Um, most recently, in the last couple of years, I've really leveraged most of my attention into uh, mobile gaming <clears throat> and even gamification of mobile applications that are used for non-gaming specific purposes. So um, there's a lot of gamification that can go into you know corporate apps, believe it or not. Um, so basically, I'm just looking at the interface of <clears throat> the mobile screen, the third screen as it used to be known. Um, and how that can be utilized more and, and how can we can design better interfaces, how we can use better functionality, how we can add gamification and playability to things. Um, so that's really what I'm looking at. And, and most importantly, I'm looking at this this third thing out there is how can I build stories that go on the mobile platform that cause people to talk to each other and not just stare at the screen. So I'm looking at... Uh, putting together proximity into gaming and so where people actually will know like there's somebody in this room that's playing the game you're playing do you want to meet them and so I'm trying to encourage people to come out of their monasticism of staring at the screen because that that seems like the matrix to me <laughs> and and get them talking to each other again so if we can use that 
platform to leverage that. That's what I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to Trojan horse it in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say in your uh, professional experience is the uh, project or thing you're most proud of? Several. Um, probably the first thing was when I was at Adobe, I was tasked with um, making PDF a uh, de facto file format. This was in the mid-90s because nobody knew it, wanted it, cared about it back then. Um, and so I leveraged the Internet very heavily, which at the time, I know this sounds, now it sounds dated, but back then, um, 95, Adobe was a print company. That's who they were. I mean, PostScript was 50% of the revenue of the company. Photoshop was the other 50%. Acrobat PDF was this unheard of thing. Um, the Silicon Valley people laughed at us because, oh, no, everybody knows HTML is the future, you know. Um, and we said, well, yeah, but HTML can't do some very print-specific things that we can do. Um, and so I was tasked with take this file format and this thing called the reader, this free thing, and get it on everybody's desktop. And so I started using the Internet as the distribution method of that. Previous to that, for the year that it existed before I got there, um, they were using CD-ROMs. They were bundling it with things on CD-ROMs. And, and that was a good strategy. But then I started talking to like operating system people like SGI, IRIX, and, and you know anybody that had an operating system. And I'm like, we will make a reader for your platform if you will put this reader on your platform when you distribute a new computer and, or a new operating system. So I did that. And then I made deals with Netscape. Remember them? Because um, I had just come from Netscape. That's where I got hired from. Um, I did deals with Netscape. I tried to do a deal with uh, with Microsoft when they put a, a, out uh, Internet Explorer 3. They reneged on that deal because they felt that uh, PDF was uh, something that was going to compete with the Word doc format, which is crazy, but okay, that's what they thought. Um, and, and by the time when I started at that position, um, we were bringing in about $200,000 a quarter in revenue off of Acrobat and PDF. And when I left in 1999, we were doing $350 million a quarter in revenue from PDF and Acrobat. And then I consulted for another year after that. And uh, by the end of that year, PDF and Acrobat was 50% of the revenue of the company because HP had decided to write their own version of PostScript. And so PostScript got kind of kicked in the nuts. And and then PDF took over. You know, And then, as you know now... It's everywhere, it's, and it became a, a direct-to-plate, so printers use it. It became the file format for the government because a um, little-known fact that we, that we leveraged and, and did very well was that um, if you have a form, like a, a 1040 or any of those forms, there's a dimension standard that it has to conform to or it's not a legal document. And the only file format that can maintain that print format PDF. HTML can't do it. It can't guarantee that it's going to hold that format. So we cornered the market on that. So that's probably the thing I'm most proud of is being part of that team and doing that. Awesome. Um, you grew up in Chicago. I did. And you lived there for how long your life? I moved out to the West in 86. 86. Okay. Yeah. So your I mean, entire childhood was in Chicago. Yeah. So I, I moved. I came out here a lot <clears throat> in the summer times. I used to hitchhike and ride my motorcycle out here all the time. I knew I was coming to California. I just had to, like, get through school. And as soon as I was out of school, and I went back to Chicago for a little while and worked, 
and uh, and said, this is, you know, I, I need to go to California. So I just have to do it. And I rolled the dice, you know, and, and, and wound up in Santa Cruz and, and stayed there for a long time. Uh, student, were you a good student? Yeah, yeah, I think I was. I mean, I had good grades. I was I was poorly behaved, but the, in college, at least, the uh, the professors overlooked that. In high school, they were angry that they couldn't that I had. They were angry that I had good grades. Actually, um, I had a I had a, a high school principal who told me that I had an academic scholarship, and he said um, that I was so poorly behaved that if there was anything he could do to make sure I didn't get the scholarship, he would do it. <laughs> So I had good academic grades and very poor behavioral grades. <laughs> um, what were uh, I mean? You, you mentioned a, a few to me, uh, both um, on and off mic. But uh, what, what were some of the hobbies that you, you were interested in or have an interest in? You're a biker, right? Well. Yeah, I love motorcycles. Um, I'm a long distance hiker. Um, I like fishing. I like exploring the wilderness. Um, I like playing with electronics. I like. Uh, Playing with new forms of, of uh, expressing literary ideas, um, I like the, I like the union of, of you know the two, which is tech and, and literature. Um, I like storytelling. Um, I like the visual arts. I like cooking. Um, you know, I'm a little bit of everything. Cool. I like writing code. Um, and how about your interest in storytelling? Like, what are some of your creative influences? Oh, Phil K. Dick. William Burroughs. Um, you know, we were talking earlier, like people like Grant Morrison and, and uh, Alan Moore, um, definitely. Um, I think probably when my head got turned the hardest was, uh, I mean, William Burroughs definitely turned my head when I was a kid. I was into, uh, I started reading really early, um, and uh, we'll start there. When I was 12, I bought this book at a, at a yard sale because I thought it was about astrology. It was called Tropic of Cancer. And guess what? It wasn't about astrology, but it was really good. <laughs> and, and from that, you know, Henry Miller was my gateway drug. And I started going to this bookstore, you know, as, as a kid in Chicago. And the proprietor of the bookstore, this used bookstore, thought I was the gas because, you know, uh, here's a 12-year-old kid a- asking about, you know, I heard about this. I remember. I heard about this guy named Jack Karak. <laughs> and he goes, Kerouac, <laughs> but he would give me this stuff, and I would read, you know, and I would read Kerouac, and I'm like, well, what's this guy Ginsburg? Who's this guy Burroughs? You know, and and from the Beats, which were really my, you know, and, and Miller, um, I just kind of like got into literature, you know, and, and it was mostly like underground stuff, um, and and you know that was, uh, and I became a mascot at that store. The guy just loved the fact that I was like this kid who could have conversations about that stuff, and adults would come in. And ask me questions like this one guy. I remember he's like, uh, he's like, oh, so I heard you read on the road. I'm like, yeah, I read on the road. He's like, so Kerouac is riding across the country. There was this one thing he'd always get at the diner. And I'm like, pile of mud and black coffee. He's like, you did read it. <laughs> it's like they're really surprised. But um, yeah, so you know, lit was a the underground lit was a heavy thing. And then I discovered Robert Anton Wilson. I discovered the Illuminatus trilogy. And then from there, I discovered Cosmic Trigger, um, and and then it was on, you know. So then it was like uh, I was into everything at that point, you know, Crowley, Terrence McKenna, you name it, I was into it. Um, I started reading, 
I think I was talking, telling you earlier, I was reading this magazine while I was still in Chicago. I was getting this magazine from Berkeley, which was uh, printed on a, uh, I think it was printed on a Xerox machine. I'm pretty sure it was called High Frontiers. Then they changed their name to Reality Hackers, and then they changed their name to Mondo 2000. And they are the reason, them and Philip K. Dick are the reason I moved to California. Like, I had to move because I read the Ballast Trilogy, and I'm like, there ain't nothing happening here for me. I got to go out there. That's where it's all happening. And sure enough, it was. I mean, I, you know, I met Bob Wilson in Chicago, and he said the same thing. He's like, go to California. That's where I'm at, you know, and so I... You know, I just picked it up and went. And I was moving to Berkeley, and I ran out of gas in Santa Cruz, and so I got gas, and then I stopped to get coffee, and I met all these cool people in the coffee house, and, I, and they convinced me, like, you should just stay here, man. And so I did. <laughs> that was it. Awesome. So, yeah, it was a great road trip. Very cool. Um, uh, just, just, I don't want to leave anybody out. Um, so, Fluxus, the art movement. Um, I like the fact that the, their paintings had to be functional. Imaginal Bauhaus, same thing. Art has to be functional. Um, uh, Dada, surrealism, obviously, both the politics of that, um, the mysticism of that, and, of course, the art, the representation of that. Um, uh, a lot of, like, very uh, um, weird, aggressive uh, art movements. Like, I was into the industrial scene, so Psyche TV, Throbbing Gristle. I was in Chicago where Wax Trucks Records was. I was hanging out around those people. Front 242, Ministry, all of that was happening at that time in the 80s in Chicago, the early 80s. Uh, and I was right there, like right in the middle of it. Um, and uh, house music came out of there eventually in the 80s and became rave. Um, and so that kind of followed me to California, which was cool. Um, uh, Gorilla Theater, I became very enamored with uh, um, improv and... Uh, my ex-girlfriend's dad was friends with Del Close, who was the guy that taught everybody at Second City. So I got to hang out with Del. Um, Timothy Leary became a big interest because Del and him were friends, and, and Wilson and Leary were friends. And so this whole, this kind of, this anything that was experimental and pushed the boundaries, uh, anything that was guerrilla theater, neoism, um, you know, that stuff that came out of England, uh, Situations International out of France, like anything that talked about uh, transgressive art that 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 really got in the face of what is reality anyway, and how can we you know, how can we break it? Can we mold it? Can we bend it? You know what can we do with it? I love any kind of art like that. So I did a lot of that in Chicago. I used to do a lot of guerrilla theater on the streets, and and do weird shit and get away with it somehow. You, can I ask a question? Because I was going to ask you this question. It's kind of a bullshit question, but then you kind of got there is right. no bullshit question. <laughs> it's a pretentious question. Okay. So, so I'm curious, um, especially given how you have um, contributed so much um, to digital spaces, mm -hmm. do you feel like we are moving closer to reality or further away from it as a result of um, our incorporation of that into our lives? The Matrix question. Um... Yes and no. So um, I feel like we're I feel like we're creating our own reality in a lot of ways, and we're externalizing, so to speak, um, what we already have internally, which is interesting because and, and this actually gets back to some of the growth pains I was talking about that we did I you know witnessed on the internet in like the late '90s and early 2000s, and even now we're still going through it. 
Um, I really do think that this gigantic repository of information is not just dead information. There is no such thing, right? And if you if you have any kind of magic to your thinking, if you have, if you're a union in any sense of the, of the term, um, you understand that we are dumping everything onto this network, and we are by doing so, we are also networking ourselves together in a way that we've never done before. And so, a lot of ids are crossing. Um, there's a lot of darkness that's coming out that's been repressed for a very fucking long time. The shadows are coming out to play. And when the shadows have been repressed and they come out to play, they come out in a very destructive manner. Um, and so I think, uh, are we creating a new reality? Yes. Um, could it could it possibly be healing? Yes, possibly. Um, because, I only say that because um, a repressed shadow is destructive when it first comes out, but then when it's realized and incorporated and accepted, it becomes a powerful ally. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, one of the things I had to learn as a young man was becoming an ally with my shadow because it was eating me alive. I think we were talking earlier about like how I, you know, I used to be a, a heavy partier. Let's put it this way, because um, I had a lot of demons that I didn't know I had, and I was trying to subdue them and sedate them. And once I realized that, and I just had a long period of clarity and said to my demons, it's okay, you're accepted, then they became allies. You know, Now, now they work with me instead of against me. Um, but I think the Internet is an expression of what's going on with that as well, is that collectively we are building this new collective consciousness, this new expression of the collective consciousness. The guy consciousness has always been there. So we're just kind of building a new layer into it that we can actually access it a little easier. Um, you know, drugs can do that too. Five grams of mushrooms in a dark room, as Terrence McKenna would say. <laughs> but um, but this is a different way to express it, and and I think that there's still some darkness that's going to come out of it. Whether or not we survive that is another question. So this is like that question of uh, you know, will the civilization get past the stage to the next stage, and then we become a galactic civilization? Only if we get past this stage, and this is a stage where we can make or break it. We can either get past it and become a bigger, uh, a bigger civilization that actually branches out, um, maybe lives on other planets, maybe not, um, or we could become the one that kills themselves, like you know, theoretically, so many have and usually do, which is one theory of why we never see any aliens because they don't make it that far. Mm-hmm. They get to the point where they could possibly contact us, but that's when they also destroy themselves. Mm-hmm. So, I think the internet. Most people are not looking at this as what it is which is, this is a world mind. That's what this is right here. This is a world mind. I mean, we have them all. We all have them, right? We're all connected now. Like, do you know anybody that doesn't have a cell phone of one way or one kind or another? Who? Even if it's a flip phone, you're still on the network. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, like, it's it's how uh, Elon Musk sort of coined it when he was speaking with Joe, Joe Rogan about how we're all sort of becoming cyborgs. Yeah, we already are. We are, yeah. yeah. Um, and people are not thinking of themselves in those terms. No. Um, We're the frogs that are slowly getting boiled. <laughs> yeah, right. Also, isn't, isn't that the last stage of, I mean, I always think too, isn't that supposed to be the last stage of evolution for us? Is that it's just it's just pure thought in a way? Is that? Well, I mean, yes and no. It, I mean, if you're, if you're thinking transhumanism and, and maybe the digital uploading of consciousness, we're nowhere near that yet. I mean, consciousness is very abstract and very complex, and we do not have a single fucking clue about how it works. We don't even have an inkling of how it works. So you know, read, read um, uh, this is, uh, 
God, what is his name? David. I've already forgot his name. I'm having a senior moment. Um, I'll get I'll get it to you. There's there's a guy that wrote this great book on it. Um, that basically, he's this great thinker on consciousness, and everybody was waiting for this book because you know they thought he was going to explain consciousness, and all he did was write this great book of how consciousness has not been defined and can't be yet. <laughs> And they were very disappointed. Uh, all these AI thinkers were very disappointed because they thought this great thinker is going to have the key and basically said, we don't have the key. We don't even know what the lock looks like. This is not the, um, it's got a really long title, The Evolution of, okay. No. no. Um, David Chalmers? David Chalmers. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, do you do you think that there will ever be in any serious way um, Kind of, I mean, especially like given that you came from the you know the punk scene and the industrial scene, mm-hmm. <clears throat> a group of people on a large scale who become luddites as a as a reactionary. There already are. There already are. Yeah, I know some of these people. Um, they're called echo extremists. Oh, okay. Um, there are, there are and, people uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Who right? Who live live off the grid and yeah? I mean, I, I'm aware of that. Who idolize Ted Kaczynski. Okay, yeah. And in right. fact, there's the the, I live in the same town with, uh, uh, um, again, having another senior moment, uh, <clears throat> John Zerzan, who is one of the writers that influenced Kaczynski. Oh. And he teaches at, at Oregon University. Um, so he's a big, huge Luddite. Um, and he writes all these great books. In fact, one of them is in the Incanabula catalog. Okay. Um, so he, he, he espouses a return to... Nomadic Hunter Gathering, basically. Um, and there's a lot of people. I, I know, a, I mean, there's more than you would think. I think the, the Guardian just ran an article not too long about these people, and I know some of those people that are in that article. I mean, these are friends of mine that I know. Um, we have differences on everything, but, you know, we don't have to agree on everything. I don't disagree with everything they say. I mean, modernity is a destructive force, and it does disconnect us from the everyday life of, yeah. of the planet, you know, and, and this is why... So many people can just wander through, you know, a planet that's basically being destroyed by us and not feel that. And, and I'm, I'm not one of those people. I feel it. But I have a lot of connection to nature. I have a different relationship to technology than a lot of technologists do. I'm not a transhumanist. I'm not a person who believes that we should just eat up the resources on this planet so we can go to Mars and die there. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I don't even think we could survive the trip. It's, it's proven that we probably can't. Um, I mean, there's like all these things that, that, that I think technology, I still have a belief that if we can get past the pain point of, of this darkness that's coming out of us, it's necessary that this darkness come out of us so we can get past the pain point so we can start using these kind of devices to talk to each other and start having real communication with people that we don't know, that don't live in our neighborhoods, that don't live in our country, that, that have different outlooks on life, who have a different ecology where they live, right? So this bioregion is a great concept. Like where I live, we have something called the Cascadian bioregion, and that is a real great concept. It's like your water table and your bioregion is what should define your, your map, really, because this is where you're living, right? And this is what you're feeding into and feeding out of. And, and everything else, all this other stuff, is really not that relative to you other than you should try to keep the peace with your neighbors. But outside of that, it's like I think the global thinking is probably going to get regional. And and unfortunately, that gets expressed as nationalism, which is dangerous in itself. So, again, everything has a positive and a negative aspect to it. And it's, uh, it's like can we get past this or not? 
I mean, we've been down this nationalism road how many times? Like, you know, in our lifetime or even in the lifetime of our, our current history, I wasn't alive when Hitler was around, but, you know, I close enough that I know about it. And, and I've seen it since then, you know, Bosnia, like, and, and, you know, um, I've seen it over and over and over again. So nationalist thinking is dangerous, um, but I don't think regional thinking is. And so we have to get past the nationalism and into the regionalism where we're not thinking it's us against them. It's this is what we're doing over here. And by the way, we can be friends with those people, too. Do I think that's possible? I don't know. I mean, we, we have so much in us as human beings that is so mammalian and territorial that I don't know if we can overcome it, but we could at least try. Because otherwise, we're just going to all go up in flames. We're already doing it, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. well, we got to try something. Yeah. <clears throat> um. Do you, um, I guess when I was asking that question, it too was not like the eco extremism, um, movement can be related to, um, a whole host of underlying, uh, ideas that Mm -hmm. are apart from the internet's influence on culture, right? It can simply be, well, I'll put it to you this way. I like, Yes, there is this sense that um, interacting with your physical world mm-hmm. um, probably is more satisfying than living a, a virtual existence. Mm-hmm. Definitely and healthier. <laughs> it's way healthier for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and that that's what I'm personally into. My feelings do not matter at all. Mm-hmm. I'm just clarifying my position on that. But I, I'm wondering about what, I guess what I guess what you're saying would be that there would be like these levels of um, yeah I mean I, I guess levels of severity yeah like yeah. like ver- versus someone who wants to kind of um, escape from uh, a city versus just these like bands of people who decide you know we're not going to be interacting with with technology but I, I really don't there see already how that's there, there already be, are how, those people yeah how that's going to be possible going forward I don't I don't think so I don't know I mean. Um, I think what you're asking is, is uh, will they be allowed to? And they may not be. They may not be. Yeah. And that's the thing about the creeping modernity. Yeah. And that's why I said I'm not, I'm not against everything they say. I think they're probably right, is that finding a place off-grid is harder and harder and harder and harder. And uh, as somebody who likes to go into deep wilderness and unplug for long periods of time, it gets harder and harder and harder and harder. Um, and, and, it's, and some of the laws that are getting passed... Um, or, or seem to be, I don't, I don't know that this is true, but they seem to be come into place, you know, specifically so that um, you can't exclude yourself. They, they, it seems like there's some force that doesn't want you to exclude yourself. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's conscious um, or not. You know, I don't know why it would be, but there, there might be a reason behind it. So yeah. the answer to your question is I don't know. I do see that there are people reacting. Um, to the encroachment of modernity into into like every second of your life, um, and even I feel it sometimes. Like that's why I said sometimes I have to turn my phone off, put it in the drawer, go into the wilderness, and stay there for a week. I mean, I, not too long ago I, I did a very long period of time in a Zen monastery just for that very reason, and I'm talking about like a long period of time where I actually contemplated like living there, being a monk, um, but I like sex too much. <laughs> 
Um, I think that uh, the issue, too, is that for all of us, we we lived in a time where we didn't have such access to it. Mm-hmm. And, I, I mean, given my profession, I interact, you know, with kids who have literally been born with a cell phone yeah. in their hand yeah. because their parents are using it as a, yeah. as a parenting tool. Yeah. Um, and, and we remember when the phone didn't follow you. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, God, who talked about that? There was a podcast that I listened to about how we were taking mini sabbaticals all the time. Yeah. Every time we left the house, yeah. we were on a mini sabbatical, yeah. right? And before the answering machines, yeah. if somebody did, if called and you weren't there, that was it. I mean, if, yeah. if somebody didn't take a message, tough shit. Yeah. Call back later. Yeah. And there was no urgency to it. There was no urgency. And now we live in a culture where um, there's such anxiety about well, it's FOMO or whatever. Yeah, but there's but on, on but different levels. There's things like email anxiety and text anxiety yeah. where you send somebody and now a text. Google and is saying it's been five days since you've replied to this, <laughs> this person's email. Yeah, right. Yeah. So anyway, you know the, the consequences of all this have yet to be have yet to be understood fully. I mean, I would say it's it's maybe a little concerning, but maybe not. Maybe no, it's it's for me. It's very concerning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I have to unplug myself because yeah. I really feel like um, I feel like uh, at times that that I that I've become a slave to technology, where it's constantly buzzing and prodding and poking me and letting you know. And being that I work in technology, there's there's development. I've, I've found a happy medium where, I, like I said, I, I I'm kind of semi-retired at this point, um, where I go through a development cycle of you know sixty days where it's very intense and I'm working 12, 14 hours and my phone is on at night so that the development team can get in touch with me and wake me up and ask me the question so they can keep moving. Because, uh, you know, if Joe's not there to answer the question, development stops. They're, what country are they in? Here. In, they're in, here. Yeah, they're, they're you all outsource anything. I, everything's around the world. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, these are all people that work with me. Yeah. They're, they're part of the company. Um, and so, you know, if, if, if there is a question that, that I have to answer um, and I'm not awake... Development stops. Yeah. So that can happen. Yeah. Right. But then after I do that, I will do literally two months of nothing. I will I will sit around and read books. I will not play on the internet very much. I will not inter- I don't really even have a Facebook account. I have a fake Facebook account so that if somebody sends me a picture on Facebook I can see it. But I don't have a persona on Facebook. I don't have a persona on Twitter anymore. I used to be like really wired into this stuff, and I'm not anymore. I don't want to be. Yeah. Um, I have a LinkedIn account because it's professional. But outside of that, like you know, um, you know, I have I have uh, automated postings that, that go on for the for the company website. But I really don't try to engage as much. As, I, I'm not part of the always on culture. I just don't want to be. Um, I was for a long time. And then I took a period of time where I wasn't, and I felt so much better when I wasn't that I don't want to go back to how I felt before that. Yeah. I really don't. I guess the last thing I'll ask on this topic is, is um, you know, of course it has been, uh, you know, by Adam Curtis and other people, um, observed that this, this culture creates an echo chamber, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say... If you were to, I mean, my concern would be to extrapolate that on a global scale. Is it sort of homogenizing everyone to a degree that we're that in a way it's it's retarding original thought? Yeah. And, and a lot of people, 
I had a very bizarre experience last night where I felt like I was actually in a real world echo chamber Mm -hmm. because I was overhearing the conversation that the couple next to me was having. And Mm -hmm. it was, um, it was just really weird how, you know, it's like something that if I had been, um, you know, Googling things might've popped up and been suggested. Now it's happening in the real world. Right. So it was a really bizarre experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that's, that. I guess, my question about it would just be the concern that technology will not serve to advance the civilization, but will actually retard it in the sense that uh, all it's doing is homogenizing um, what otherwise would have been very, indi- you know, all these things that would develop individually yes. and, and organically, mm-hmm. right, are being, um, I, I guess... Um, surmounted by this new digital collective consciousness. Well, I mean, again, left hand, right hand. Um, There is danger in tribalism, as we've all seen, when it's misused, because it can be manipulated by unscrupulous people. Um, But there's also uh, something that we're missing by leaving tribalism behind, which is an identification with a smaller unit of people that you actually know, that you actually have a relationship with, that maybe even live in your community. Um, so you see them on a, uh, they have accountability. That's the main thing, is they have accountability. Large corporations do not have accountability in a, in a community, but a baker who lives down the street sure as fuck does, right? So if he's selling poisoned bread, Chances are he's going to get dragged out of the house and hung, you know, or at least beaten. Um, whereas a corporation sells poison bread, who do you drag out of the house and beat? Like, it's, it's this big nebulous punching bag of nothing, right? So you're, you're, you're swinging at wind and shadows. So you have nothing to, nothing to get to, nothing to get at. Um, and, and I don't know if that's by design, but that's what's evolved. And the, uh, the homogenization thing, again... There's there's good parts of that because you're learning things about uh, things that are happening on the other side of the world, so you're not disconnected from what's happening to them. So you feel their pain, their suffering, their joy, instead of like you know for so many years when we weren't connected to that. It's like oh, they're, they're those people over there that I don't hear about and know they're getting bombed by people that I pay the taxes to bomb, you know. And, and that's kind of it, you know. It's like when that really came home for us, I think was Vietnam because we started seeing it on TV. And that's when it was like, oh, shit, we're doing that. You know, it's like, wait, that's my money doing that. And that's when people started to really feel it. And now with the always on culture where it's like everything that's happening all the time, I think it's too much. And so that's the bad side of it. Um, The homogenization is the bad side of losing tribalism. Tribalism, you know, taken to a toxic extreme. um, We won't use any examples, but there's plenty. Um, is is the bad side of tribalism, but the good side of tribalism is I have a group of people, we all have a common interest, we know each other, there's accountability, and we're trying to do something for the common good of this group. And and that's there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. And I think we're losing that with the homogenization, this globalization. I don't mean that in a conspiratorial sense, but this globalization of, of, of being, of identity that's happening. Um, and so do I think... That there's a uh, an Illuminati somewhere that's plotted this and is running it. No, um, but I do think that the uh, the 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 goals of and the means of marketing definitely do 
Um, they don't. I don't think they have a, a stated agenda of let's homogenize everybody so that we have one target demographic to sell to or less target demographics to sell to. But essentially, that is what they're doing. Is like they're they're homogenizing. They're running the media, right? Because advertising really is what the media is about. They're running the media, and so the media, instead of having advertising to subsidize the media, the 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 advertising has the media to subsidize themselves. Now it's, it's literally where the relationship is gone, and so now you have these people that are saying, you know, give us a more generic profile, give us more generic profile, give us a more generic profile. I used to work in advertising a long time ago, and that's part of what sickened me was watching that happen. Um, and so that's where a lot of the homogenization is getting driven from is, is that, is the media, is like we want a more generic profile because we're lazy, you know, and we, and we don't. And also manufacturing wants a more generic profile because they have one widget to, to manufacture instead of 20, right? So they don't have niches. They don't have SKUs anymore. They have a widget, generic widget, factory make widget, you know. Um, and so if you have generic widget buyer, <laughs> You have somebody to sell generic widget to, you know, and and so you know it's like this vicious circle and cycle that's feeding itself. But um, there's another side to that, so I don't know which of those dogs is going to win. To use the old Native American, you know, uh, story, but you know, one of them is going to win soon, real soon. I think we're at a breaking point right now. Mm. So I think a reaction to this is that some people are starting to figure this game out and, and identify this game and are, are retracting completely from the game and saying, I don't want to be a part of that. And I can't blame them. You know, it's like, even if it's a detox period of like five years, great, take it. If you need it, take it, you know, because I think a lot of these younger people um, are starting to see the game and some older people are too, but like definitely some of the younger people that I talked to are starting to see the game because they grew up with the game. So it's not something that they're not frogs that are, they're slowly got boiled. You know, they're, they're frogs that are like coming into the boiling water, born into it and going, this is boiling. What's wrong with you people? You know, and, and good for them, you know, because they're new consciousness is all new. Everything's new to them. Like we, we forget when we get older, we get jaded. But all of this is new to these kids. Right. So this is not something they've seen before. So they can identify shit that we can't sometimes because we've become jaded and, and we've become, you know, desensitized. In terms of asking the why question. We don't ask the why yeah. question because we don't even see the question yeah. anymore. Yeah. Sorry if these were... It, 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 it this just, is the kind of stuff I like to talk about. Okay. It, this is not planned. Can you not tell? <laughs> yeah, no. This is not planned. So I'm sorry by the conversation. It was quite organic, I think. Yeah, yeah. I did not plan to ask those questions. It just kind of came what up. Was the, what was the dinner that you... you what, what, I was... I mean, it was just was really weird because I was like... <clears throat> You know, I mean, it's going to sound stupid, but it's like, um, you know, living in living in Los Angeles. You know, it was last night. I was we were at a communal table, so it was Mike and Zach and Christian and myself. And then at the other end, there was this couple on a first date that had probably met on an app or something. But um, <laughs> but it was just really bizarre because the, the that would be ironic, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. The the uh, guy was just a. a so the the guys that I was sitting with were all like film school buddies, and um, so the guy that was that was on this date was just clearly a, a, an aspiring filmmaker and mm-hmm. was nerding out about um, uh, about 
you know, shots and all this stuff. And then mm-hmm. he started talking about horror movies. And, and it just kind of drove me crazy because I, I was like, oh, man, that's that's exactly probably what I would have been talking about on a date 15 years ago. And um, and then... Does it seem interested? She was feigning. <laughs> yeah, she was definitely being really polite. And then, and then he asked um, her what she's into, and she started talking about, like, index funds and all this stuff that 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 she that and which is like more of where i am at now and Mm -hmm. so it's just really weird like oh here's like these two representations of my personality and they're on a date with each other and they're sitting right next to me so that i can eavesdrop (laughs) on their their conversation you know what i mean it was just yeah yeah it it was so weird it was like when we when um when uh our our son was first born you know my wife and i would just have conversations about you know things about him or what we'd need and then uh you know banner ads would pop up for those things and you know my wife was so freaked out because she was not googling anything it was just like well you know the, the phone is listening yeah the phone is listening of course yeah. yeah so is alexa yeah google dot yeah yeah so anyway anyway it just it felt like that sort of a principle but applied in in you know <laughs> in real funny. life it was really weird <laughs> they met on an app that would, yeah. that would just be the, that would be the kicker right yeah. there so anyway, sorry for sidetracking the conversation. No, you did. You didn't actually. Okay. Not to me. Like, okay, that was great. That's the kind of stuff I like to talk about, actually. Yeah. Um. Well, what, what, five forty-seven. What do you guys think? There's a lot I want to get into with like the film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that I still like. I would consider that in a way found footage. Um, yeah. Ish. It's like more like a. Documentary, more of a documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like that still has life in it. Uh, or, mockumentary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I it, uh, yeah, it was a partial mockumentary. It's harder to find. I guess that's its appeal, right? Like you can't really put it in any sort of box. Yeah, so, I love stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed that, and um, we tried to do that before doing the podcast for previous. We, we really no, see, like something like like your time with the Babylon working. I wouldn't hate that if it wasn't a purist thing because it's not purporting to be a biography of Jack. Right. It, the thing that burned me about Strange Angel was like the story of Jack Parsons. I'm like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> you know, it's like, if you're going to tell the story of somebody, tell the story of somebody. Stop trying to be so sensationalistic with this shit. Yeah. He had some sensational parts of his life. Mm-hmm. That's unavoidable, you yeah. know. But he also had some very mundane parts of his life. Mm-hmm. Do they ever get into this thing with his, like, he had really unique relationship with his mother, right? Yes, and they, they don't. I mean, they do and they don't. They touch on it. But, yeah, he was a mama's boy. Suggestively incestuous, right? Like, like yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, probably not physically, but everything but. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Where do you want to pick up? Maybe we should start with the, or maybe, like, maybe we should maybe get into it uh, with the emotional journey. But maybe we should wait to warm Joe Are you cool up a little bit. Yeah, you I'm warm. warm up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. I've been sitting here warming for right, right. Cool. an hour. Cool. Um, I pounded down two cups of Turkish this morning just so I would yeah. be awake and aware for this. Cool. So, and chatty. <laughs> so I guess that's it. I mean, maybe we should start at the 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 top when you um, maybe starting when when you uh, first read the brochure and. and mm-hmm. Uh, I guess maybe with the focus on your your emotional journey with this. So you found the brochure. I was given the brochure. Given the brochure by yes. Nick Herbert, who yeah. you know we can talk to. I don't know if he'll talk to you, but he might. Um, 
he's he's Nick's mercurial. He wouldn't talk to uh, Slate, but he talked to me about not talking to Slate, so it's weird. Um, he he takes his moods. Uh, he's talked to other people for me though, so we'll see. Um, yeah, so Nick gives me the brochure, and and I think he was dead on with you know his targeting. Um, he he gave it to me because, like I told you, he he saw what was on my bookshelf, which was all these pamphlets that I've been collecting over the years of strange and out there fringe ideas um, that almost nobody had heard of because you had to send two dollars to a PO box, and uh, and 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 he was right. It was like right smack on my interest levels. You know, it was like it, it touched all the things that I was into, and all the things that I found curious, and all the things that I found entertaining. And I don't deny that a lot of this for me is entertainment because it is. Um, we were just talking about that. Um, so it kind of grabbed me. And, and in a way, I guess you could say it was tailored to somebody like me because it was definitely, it spoke to all the, it pushed all the right buttons. And so, you know, it had me. And when I read it, I was like, wow, yes, exactly. And then the um, when the catalog came into my hands a little later, um, and I looked at that, it definitely pushed all the right buttons because a lot, most of the books that, it, that, that were easily accessible were already on my shelf. So whoever put that catalog together had read the same stuff that I had read, right? Now, we were just talking about this at the breakfast table, which is um, back in the day you had to seek all this stuff out, you know, and it was a little harder than it is now. Um, so you'd have to go into, physically go into bookstores, you'd have to talk to people, but I was also part of several salons um, of intellectuals and writers and, and up-and-coming writers and artists. And so, you know, there was a buzz around this kind of stuff. And we were all like, we loved finding stuff that nobody else in the groups had found and come running into the room with it. And like, look at this, you know, and then we would hold it up and then we'd pass it around or everybody would go out and get their own copy. And so whoever put the book catalog together definitely was hanging around the same groups. And that's why earlier I said, that I feel that the ICS was probably a metaphor for some of these groups because there was groups on the West Coast, there was groups in Chicago, there were groups on the West Coast, East Coast that, that were like this. And um, back then, alternative and independent was not something that had become, um, you know, a lifestyle, a marketing lifestyle yet, you know, a niche. Um, it was really something that people were doing because – in a lot of cases, it was it was not by choice. It was because you know you you couldn't talk to a regular person and hold any interest. You, what they said you didn't care about, and what you were talking about, they didn't have a clue. And so you would seek out the, you would seek out the others, as Terrence McKenna used to say. And when you found five of them, you hung on to them really tightly. You know, I mean, there's some of these people I'm still in touch with to this day because that was a bond. Um, we were we were the geeks. We were the outsiders. We were the weirdest of the weird. So, you know, that that's how we bonded. It was like over weird shit. <laughs> Do you think that that um I guess in terms of how much of an overlap there was between this and your interests, mm-hmm. uh, certainly it could have been coincidence. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this lends cre- any credence to the theory that you were specifically <laughs> selected? Yeah. Not specifically. Um generally though maybe um, so, like I said, the fact that it pushed all my buttons and the fact that, as, as I was just talking about, there were pockets of people that, like me, 
but we were in we were by far the minority of a community right but well, there were pockets of us like pretty much everywhere you could go that had any kind of population and had maybe a university nearby or it was a large urban area that you would find five to 20 people that knew each other that were a little group that had these interests, right? And we were all in touch with each other either directly or peripherally through things like the mail art groups, right? So we all kind of knew about each other. Um, and then there was, you know, books that we rallied around like Temporary Autonomous Zone and, and, and Robert Anton Wilson stuff and Timothy Leary stuff and, and the Falcon Press stuff, like basically was kind of a rally point for, you know, all of us around the world. So, you know, we used to, I used to make this joke that it's not, I guess it really wasn't a joke, but I was like, well, you know, in our town, there's 20 of us. But if you take all the other towns that there's 20 of us in and put us all together, then there's thousands of us, right? And so we're actually a pretty large group of people. It's just that we, we're not all in the same geographic area. And the internet has really like speeded that process up of the finding the others. But back then, it was like you had to do it through mail and word of mouth and travel. So there also was a big travel culture. Like we would all travel around the world and go stay on people's couches and stuff like that. So that was, you know, that was another way to do it. Like actually having face-to-face contact with people like by going to Amsterdam because everybody, of course, had to go to Amsterdam or Germany or England or any place like that, which I used to, I used to do. You could do it back then. You could get really cheap travel and then you could, you could couch hop, you know. If you knew these people through mail. And, you know, sometimes you get a person coming through that you're like, well, I'm kind of glad they're gone. But mostly it was good. They were good people. Let's hold it for the siren to pass. So I'm, I'm sorry, did I answer your question? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to fill in maybe? So you got this. It checks all the boxes. Mm-hmm. So uh, generally I was targeted. But so were other people. So people like me, definitely. I think it was definitely catered and, and crafted to land in the laps and appeal to people like me. So I was, I, was part of, I was definitely part of the milieu that it was after, you know, the audience it was after. But I don't think, like, somebody sat down and wrote this thing and said, no, get this in Joe Matheny's hands. You know, it's like, I just don't think that. I mean, you know, I've been accused of that, but I don't think that was the case. Yeah, because how would they have known that you would have done anything more than just appreciate it? Yeah. Well, you know, if you have that conspiratorial mindset that there's there's a room somewhere where these people are sitting around, you know, going, okay, who's the guy that can get this, that guy? Well, let's write something that'll, you know, and then, you know, if you believe in that, that I'm sorry, that's, that's what you believe. But I just don't think that it was the case. I do think that this was something that was crafted with an audience in mind and that I was definitely a core member of that audience. So, mm-hmm. you know, but I do that. Like, we all do that. Anybody who's an artist has an audience in mind, even if they don't know they do, they do. You know, even if the audience is you, then it's the audience of me and anybody like me, you know. So you get it. It's, you know, it's exciting. It, it you know, connects to a lot of your, your interests that mm-hmm. you're predisposed to. And a lot of my peers. Mm-hmm. I'm showing this to people and they're having the same reaction I did. So... Where where do you go sort of like emotionally and intellectually from there? Huh. If you can recall. As 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 specifically related to this project. Yeah. Um well I had well I had like I said, I had a really positive reaction to this. It was you know, on many levels. It was like this is unique. 
Um, I've, I, this is the kind of art I always look for. I don't find very often, and more people need to see this. And so emotionally, um, I guess maybe it became a mission for me to, to get this out to the world. And it also inspired me at the time. I was already working on uh, the concept of the sacred game. Um, and so being that I was into ritual magic, but I was also into gaming, and I started to look at the history of gaming and as it related to ritual magic and theater, um, I started to kind of pull my interests together um, because I was becoming mature enough as an artist to start to really find my own voice instead of trying to be, you know, right like this guy or right like that person, you know, which we all did when we were younger. Um, I was now finding my own voice, and my own voice was like pulling together my interests into this new mission. And, of course, I had this material, and I said, okay, number one, I want to go find... You know, I want to do. I already know Nick Herbert, so I'm going to do something with him, and I'm going to find Emery Cranston. I'm going to do something with him, and then I'm going to put this together as a package, and I'm going to start working on my concept using this as the core material for that concept. So emotionally, I was very excited uh, that I had what I thought was the perfect concept material, um, and and everything was falling in place technically. Uh, things were moving along. The internet was now starting to become something that was publicly accessible. It was something that I thought was going to be much more publicly accessible in the near future. Luckily, I was right about that. Um, I had a bunch of people that I had turned this on to who wanted to collaborate artistically. So it's like all the things fell in, fell in line. You know, all the stars were aligned for me to do this project. And so I felt really exhilarated, actually, emotionally, really happy. And I felt like maybe this was, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, fate. <laughs> this felt like, okay, this is the right time. You know, I felt like I was actually doing something that was going to resonate. And, and, uh, so I did, I did what I could. Can, can we fill in a little context about, um, the connections between gaming theater and ritual magic? Sure. As you had, uh, as you had uh, observed gaming, um, gaming started as ritual, right? So, um, the concept of the game, especially the communal game, the concept of the communal game ha- always had ritual aspects to it, which is lost over time. Um, we've kind of held on to some of the territorial aspects of it and so the, some of the totemic aspects of it because that's why football teams, for example, have eagles and you know all these things as, as their totems because this is where it started. Like These were totemic identities that were like doing some sort of battle you know, not real battle, but, you know, they were, they were doing some sort of contest um, and that the winner of the contest was some sort of oracle. And so, you know, like today the, the Eagles won. That means that we should not plant until tomorrow. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just making things up arbitrarily here. But um, that those were the kind of the the roots of gaming. And then um, later it became more nuanced as theater came into it. And theater actually came out of ritual as well. Um, and this was the acting out of the story, the tribal stories, so that the people could put on the persona or the mask and be that persona or be that god or that spirit or that element or that historical person in the story. And by doing so, they were immersing themselves in the story and making the story more uh, impactful for them and for the tribe, right? Because they actually, as far as the tribe was concerned, as far as they were concerned, during the period of time that they were acting out the story they were the character not they were acting the character but they were the character and so for the tribe and for themselves the character became real 
Now, if you look at this through the, the lens of union analysis and psychology, they were archetypes is what they were. They were tribal archetypes and they were racial archetypes and, you know, they were universal archetypes. And so that's who these people were embodying. And in, in magic, there is not the question of objective and subjective. Things are both. So angelic spirits, nature spirits, any of these things do not have an objective or a subjective identity only. They have both. And so this is, and that's necessary because what somebody is doing is they're becoming the vessel for the liminal, the archetype, to come over and speak into this realm, right? And so basically you're, you're a conduit when, you, when you're acting as a channel, for lack of a better term for that. I just kind of cringe at that term because of what the New Age has done to it. But you are a channel for this intelligence and this wisdom that we all have. But because of the, uh, the day-to-day, what I call the, the uh, 3D navigation aspects of, of reality and survival, we kind of put that on a hold because if you're running, if you're running from a bear, you don't need to be spe- thinking about your archetypes that much. You need to be thinking about one foot in front of the other as fast as I can. Um, and so we, we kind of lose touch with that. Um, and we don't, in this day and age, we don't actually talk to that realm as much as we used to and as much as we should. Um, so what I was after was, can I use the concept of LARPing and and uh, immersive experience, which was just starting, people were starting to think about that, but the internet looked like something that could really work on that level. Um, and, and can I use that to, to bring a ritual to life for a bunch of people spread over the world, con- connected together through this new thing called the network? And so... I think that I think I got everything. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I think what what's interesting about that that maybe you can elaborate on would be the the degree to which this is an explicit thing versus an implicit thing for like-minded individuals. I think it's more implicit for sure it has to be. Um, explicit I think m- means too much explanation up front. And so when you overthink these things, they tend not to work as well. Um, it has to be. It really has to be uh, something that is more intrinsic, um, and and without without too much rational thought. So, like William Burroughs said, exterminate all rational thought. Um, little over the top, but not too much. Um, what what Burroughs was getting at, which is what I'm getting at, and and you know I'm, I'm into these concepts because of my exposure to Burroughs at a young age. Um, there was there's this thing that happens when you're doing these kind of experiments where if you can get your ego out of the way, um, new information can come through that you don't even know that you had and maybe not even be coming from you. Um, this is what Burroughs and guys have called the third mind. And so when you put two minds together, there's like this third thing that happens. It, it, it you know it, it's a synergy that happens where this third consciousness, which is either the union of your two consciousness or it's your two consciousnesses are merging to open up a doorway coming from the collective unconscious or, you know, we could go on forever about what this might be. And again, at that point now I'm starting to overanalyze it. So I don't ever want to do that. What I do know is that the phenomena exists and I've experienced it. And I would like other people to experience it because for me, the first time I started having that experience, it was so profound and it so changed my life that I wanted other people to experience it as well. And what they get out of it is what they get out of it. It doesn't, it is not a religion here. You know, there's not a book that says, you know, if you do a and then B, you will experience C. No. But if I, if I create an environment where somebody can experience a and B, 
then they can have their F, E, G, or Z, right? So whatever they have is what they have. But what I do know through experimenting with this is that there are enough environmental variables that you can create that when people go into it, it's still fuzzy enough that it will be an experience that will be unique to them. But there will be a phenomena, whatever it is. It will be their phenomena, but it will be a phenomena. And if you've ever done theater work, um, you've probably experienced this where uh, if you fall into the groove and everybody's into their character, or if you've done improv and everybody's in the groove and improv, things start happening that you can't think about them. You just got to let them happen, but they're magical. And the audience actually is just like, where is this coming from? These people are in the groove. It's like it's like basketball or, or football or baseball. It's like if you've ever fallen into your groove, you know that there is no formula for getting there. But once you're there, you don't want to get out, you know, because what you're doing is is something that you don't even have to think about anymore. It's like it's like you're being driven in a way by a force, and that's not a possession. That's you allowing the force of nature to come through you and be a pure expression. So that that was after that creating an environment that allowed people to have their own pure expression moment. Yeah, because because it was profound for me. I, I can't imagine it wouldn't be for anybody else. Do you want to? Are you able to go into detail about what that experience was like for you, or what the what that situation was? Yeah. Um, so uh, before I started doing the uh, the Ong's Hat project, I was working on some other kind of experiments with this kind of thinking, and um, in doing so, I was doing a lot of cut up. Um, you know, being a good Barosian. Um, and, and I was doing uh, a lot of um, myth making and uh, in doing in doing that exper- those exercises, I started to have bleed over and I started to have like an amazing uh, series of high level synchronicities and I don't mean like low level I mean high level synchronicities that were almost instantaneous and back to back to back to back to back it, almost like he was trying to tell me, you can't write this off with your rational mind because I would a lot of times. I'd be like, yeah, but, you know, I'd, I'd do like point counterpoint with myself and then kind of dismiss it through that, which, you know, you should do. You should do skeptical analysis, but it, it just got so thick that I finally had to say, all right, something's happening here. Something's up, you know, and, and just kind of, and then I just let it happen. And I think that was probably the moment that the universe said to me, you know, um, you're not. It's not you and, and the universe. It's the universe which you are a part of, and this whole thing is a living system. Kind of like Phil Dick's Dallas experience, right? I had something like that where it just really hit me, and it really literally felt like a lightning bolt went through me. I even felt like a crack, you know, and it just went, "Whoa, I, I can't." This is not an exercise anymore. I'm like in the middle of this, you know, and, and that was great, um, and I, and and it just made me feel at ease. And I was at peace. I, I wasn't having an existential crisis for the first time in a young man's life, you know, because um, you know how it is. Like when you're in your 20s, especially, you're just like you're always questioning. You don't know who you are. You're finding your own voice. You don't understand the world. What is your place in it? What is the world? Like all these questions meant nothing at that point. It's like whatever it was and whatever it is was ineffable. And words weren't going to do it any justice, and I didn't need to put words to it. That was the, that was the moment where I knew I didn't need to put words to it, and that's when I became completely at ease and completely at peace with being in this world. And so, I can't think of a more profound experience than that. And so, you know, and I, and I started noticing in my in my magic rituals that I was getting real results 
like things were happening, like real things were happening. Um, I mean, without going into too much detail, um, there was uh, an incident uh, where I was doing uh, some Enochian rituals where we had, there were several people in the room, and we actually saw a physical emanation come off the crystal, the scrying crystal, and sit there and look at us for a while. And everybody saw it. I was looking around, you seeing this? Yeah, what are you seeing? And then they would describe, that's what I'm seeing. You know, I was just making sure I was being, still being scientist about it, but everybody was seeing it. Now, group hallucination? Sure. But what does that mean, right? How, how does that get done? Like, you know, if, how do you create an environment for that to happen where everybody is seeing the same thing? It's like, okay, write it off as a group hallucination. I'm not saying it wasn't. You know, it kind of was, right? You know, that's a definition, What's the cause? You know, what is it? It's like, okay, group hallucination means we're all seeing the same thing, right? Right now, I don't know that we're having a group hallucination. I'm seeing the, this room one way. I don't know how you're seeing it, and you don't know how I'm seeing it, and vice versa. And if I were to sit here and be a scientist and say, okay, what is that? What is, describe it to me, and then, and then I can correlate that what you're describing is what I was seeing before you started describing it, which is what I was doing at that point. That doesn't explain the phenomena. Right. All it does was give me a correlation of like, I'm seeing what you're seeing. But why? I still don't know. Um, So, you know, things like that were happening on a regular basis. There was like a good eight month period where I was just in this universe where everything was connected. And it wasn't some people get paranoid at that state. But I did. For some reason, I I felt very um, satisfied and. uh, very at ease. It was almost like the universe was telling me, "Like, okay, you know, we're all here together," <laughs> and it was great. You know, I mean, I, I I do things in a lot of ways seeking that out again to that experience, which I still get from time to time. But you know, I have to put myself in the right states to get that, and it, it's a great state. And and I wanted to share that. Can you um, reflect on or? Um provide insight into how you feel like that kind of experience uh, in a way is analogous to what the individuals at Ong's Hat were pursuing. This idea of somehow it's like what is what is um, striking to me is the idea that you were sort of challenging the boundaries of our common perceptions, right? Mm-hmm. And and even the idea that a group would see a common manifestation of something, mm-hmm. right? It means that on some level, you have all aligned, and 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 I, I feel like there is a um, correlation to what was going on at absolutely yes yeah. idea of how can we all transcend um, this universe and 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 go to a, a different dimension, right? Or or, or maybe more generally how can how can we all have a common perception and and then come to a common outcome yeah and i think that's what we did with the ritual one example was when we when we did the ritual we all experienced something similar enough that describing it sounded like what the other people were seeing um or at least what i was seeing i mean once the first person described it you know, it's out the window but i do know that the first person to describe it was seeing exactly what i was seeing I mean, they even described the color and everything. So I'm like, okay, right? At least you and I are seeing the same thing here. And then other people chimed, yeah, that's exactly what I'm seeing too. Probably, I don't think they had a reason to lie, but, you know, who knows? 
what I do know is the first person to describe it was seeing what I was seeing, right? Um, so I think what they were after in in in, uh, in the ashram was you know a, a common group mind aspiration that could be manifested, and and that supposedly is what Kit did. Like we were all thinking about it. just think really hard about you know this, and then it will obviously manifest, and supposedly it did. And so yeah, it's common in that way for sure. Yeah, I mean ritual ritual magic is. Not too far from what they were doing. In fact, they incorporated the the work of ritual magic into it. What a lot of people don't know is that ritual magic is incorporated into a lot of things that that go on right now. Um, Did you know, in fact, that Del Close was a member of the the Order of the Golden Dawn and used what was called telismatic uh, practices in teaching improv? Um, And that is the truth, and you can look that up. Um, I think that might be public knowledge. In fact, I know it is. Um, So... uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of connections between magic and ritual and magic and science. In fact, science came from magic. What most people don't know is that the background of the sciences was alchemy and astrology. You know, so these are all things that in mathematics actually was before it was even a chair was used for for magical purposes first, and then later became incorporated into mathematics through somebody like John Dee. Um, who was, you know, uh, the court astrologer for Elizabeth, and then also was the first mathematician that did the translation of um, from the uh, from the Latin to the Vulgate of um, Euclid. So he was a mathematician and an astrologer and a magician who conjured angels all at the same time, and there was no contradiction in that back in those days. And I think that us going, you know, like branching off. Um, is the reason that we got all this this now this like you know logic and and um, irrational thought like fighting with each other and now you know we're at this peak this point where, where we're supposed to be start bringing it back together and not to overblow myself historically here but what I was attempting to do was make something that would 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 help that process along of bringing magic and science back together. I mean, I'm not saying that I did that, but maybe in a little bit I did. Yeah, I mean, I, I we don't necessarily need to go too far down this road, but I think, um, uh, I mean, I know we've sort of talked about it. Um, I don't know if it's if it's been off the record, but th- this idea that you know, both in terms of Ong's hat and and with Polybius, it's like this idea that uh, you alluded to this yesterday. You don't want to say this is a game to to puncture the bubble, right? Right. right. But, or puncture the balloon. Mm-hmm. But um, we have come to a, a place where it seems like culturally people are so increasingly literal minded about mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. and and um, you know, you bringing up this this division that is happening. I mean, uh, do you want to comment on that at all? And, and just your observations about what your aspirations were. Uh, versus where we are today, and do you think that it would be that it's even possible to recreate this for for people? Well, the bifurcation between magic and we'll call it the arts, mm-hmm. okay? Because I believe uh, art is magic, so we'll say we'll say science and the arts. It, okay? it, and I agree with you because it's 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 interesting. Like, uh, I don't want to interrupt you, but just no. this idea that when you go to a movie, you know that you're going to a movie, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. And yet, what you want to be is transported 
so that you are not aware that you are sitting and watching a movie. Yeah. And when you are aware of the storytelling and the acting, the illusion is broken, and it's usually not a very good movie. Yeah. So there's this contradictory element at all times that, like, I am both aware of the fact that this is not, not real, yet I want to believe that it is real, and I want to have emotional an emotional response that right. is indicative of a real experience. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that happens to me, unfortunately, is I, I can spot formula in movies really quickly. And if I do, that's it. It's over for me. Like, it's no longer enjoyable. Um, I, I'm reminded of that scene in Ed Wood where uh, Tor bump, bumps into the wall and the whole wall shakes. And then the, the cameraman is telling Ed Wood, like, did you see the whole wall was moving? And it was like, haven't you people heard of suspension to disbelief? <laughs> that, is, that is something... Uh, uh, I forget what the character's name was, but that, that is something he has to go through every time. Yeah, yeah. Tor Janssen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I forget what, what the character's name was. Every, or... every time he opens and closes the door. Yeah, every, it's, it's, it's something he has to struggle with. Yeah. 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 <laughs> was, was it Torgo or something like Tor, that? Tor, you're right. Yeah, but yeah. his real Tor, name is Tor Janssen. Yeah. Tor Janssen, the actor. I who he was playing in that. And then, I think yeah. Torgo, or they, they gave him yeah. some weak know. name, but yeah. So, yeah, so I'm reminded of that. I'm sorry, I had to bring that up. Um, this but, is why I think you're really going to like Tidical's podcast, by the way. Yeah, I, I, I've got it. Constant references. I'm going to listen to it on the way home. Okay. Um, the, uh, the bifurcation between science and the arts really like solidified with Newton. Newton was an alchemist. Well, most people don't know that, but, but he was. Um, and when Newton started to – when Newton held the first chair of mathematics, um, it, it became a science at that point. Um, and, and that's when it like became this, and, and right around that time, historically, we started to have this, uh, rational discussion about, you know, everything has to be, uh, you know, um, everything has to be provable. Everything has to be, you know, Cartesian and, and, and all these conversations started happening and we needed that conversation at that time, right? We needed to break away from a, uh, a legacy of superstition for a while. Like not not permanently, but we needed to go over here and have this conversation so that we could like decompress from the, some of the stuff because the pure superstition world was you know horrifying in some ways. I mean, this is why people get burned and called witches, and you know, there's a lot of shit that happened that was not good. So we needed to have that conversation. Um, we we had the Enlightenment, which you know we now have kind of the 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 back end of, which is the terrifying part of. But we had the Enlightenment, and it was necessary at the time. And we've had that conversation as a species with ourself. Um, and, and now we need to – quantum physics, I think, was much more than anything an invitation to come back to the mystical and come back to the mysterious and say it's okay that we don't know everything. And, in fact, we can call that a science of not knowing everything, right? So you have people like Schrodinger saying, you know, the cat is both alive and dead, and that's an okay statement, which, you know, in, in the alignment error, you could – no, that was not an okay statement. You could have got the guillotine for that, you know? So um, – well, maybe not, but, you know, maybe. Um, and so I see that – History moves slower than we'd like it to in a lifetime because we do have short lives as human beings, um, and we want everything to happen in our lifetime. If we can envision it, we want to see it happen in our lifetime. And things do happen quicker now than they used to, but um, I think that we are probably in some ways um, you know, antsy 
to see this happen, which is the reunification of, of science and the arts. And it is slowly happening. Like I said, quantum physics was happening in the 30s, and, and, and this was the beginning of like reunifying you know, uh, uncertainty with the certainty of rational thinking. And so you can't project everything, and that's okay. You can't predict everything, and that's okay. So, you know, slowly but surely, we're coming to that conclusion. If you talk to there's people in Silicon Valley that, that I could have this conversation with who, oddly enough, are like AI programmers who get that. In fact, one of the things they know is that uh, one of the things that's going to make AI better is, is being able to incorporate an uncertainty principle into the thinking so that these things can truly learn. Um, because if everything's predestined and pre-programmed, it's not going to learn anything. Not really. Um, it's going to be the same thing we were just talking about where I have a profile and then all the information that comes into me is filtered through that profile. That's not a complete understanding of the world. That's a very filtered understanding of the world. And so um, if we want something that's going to be childlike and have a learning capability, then we're going to have to learn to incorporate uncertainty into our certainty. And so we're right at the edge of that. But also, every civilization goes through this. Um, We've talked about this a couple of times in us hanging out in the last couple of days. There's always a good side and a bad side to these things. And so every time there's an opportunity for us to grow as a species, there's also the opportunity for us to fail as a species. And and that the crisis is part of what makes it happen or not. And, And part of the deal is like it might not happen. Right. So the cat is both alive and dead. Everybody forgets the dead part. Right. Um, And so but it's there. It's like every time we go through the crisis, we come out, we come to an opportunity to grow bigger and better and faster. But we also come to the opportunity to destroy ourselves. Sorry. Yeah. We're we're okay. We don't need. No, but do you have any waters? No, it's okay. No, there's three of us. I don't know. Can we get three waters? Three. Can we get three? Two. Two? Okay. We'll start with two. Two sounds good. We'll make do. Yeah. No service? No service. No. No? Thank you very much. Okay. She sounds very disappointed that she can't do a service. Yeah. Do you hang the do not disturb sign? Yeah. So I'm sorry, did I, did I answer your question? Yeah. I don't know if we want to get that last part on record again, just about your, you know, Schrodinger's cat is both alive and dead, and so every time... Oh, so basically what, it, what I was saying was that um, quantum physics opens the door for us to, to have this conversation again and to have it in a, in a, within a framework that science will, will accept because it is a science but it's a science that has uncertainty uh, baked in, into it, right? Which is a new thing for science. Science hates uncertainty, um, but they're having to understand that, that it is part of the holistic understanding of the universe and of life. And so um, we're faced with this, with this, I think right now, historically speaking, as a civilization, as a species, um, we're faced with this unification principle of bringing science and the arts back together, which means that there'll be a new type of understanding that won't just be wholly rational and it won't be wholly irrational. It'll have enough elements of both to be holistic. It'll be it'll be full. Um, and with that comes the possibility of, of great creation, and, and, and we can move forward as a species, 
and do better, um, which is not perfection, but we can do better. Um, and also co- what comes with it is the opportunity to destroy ourselves because, again, when you have uh, a great opportunity through crisis, you also have the possibility of destruction every time. And that's part of, I think, what drives it is, is the union, that, that dynamic of those two things pushing together creates the crisis, so to speak. And, and when I say crisis, I'm speaking in a mathematical sense because I study catastrophe theory, so I use these terms sometimes in a non-colloquial sense. Um, so when you push, these two things are pushing against each other, they create a dynamic. And the dynamic creates the opportunity, and the opportunity is just that. It's an opportunity which can go either way. So the state vector can collapse in either direction, to use a quantum physics terminology, which means the cat is both alive and dead until you open the box, and then it's one or the other, right? And so with that opportunity for a great leap forward for civilization and humanity comes the opportunity for the great stumble. (laughs) And we could either go into a dark age or we could just blink out. We're not the first species on this planet, and we won't be the last. Um, we're going further and further afield, but I'm going to ask you one more question. Yeah. So, I don't feel like we're far afield at all. Well, I just mean narratively we might be far afield, but it doesn't matter because it's interesting. So, This is all the stuff that drove me, though, so yeah, I think it's important. I think so. So a, an increasingly literal-minded uh, population, mm-hmm. um, people who, who are viewing everything only through the lens of you know rational thought, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a population in which the arts has decreasing value. Um, are we? Is that a recipe for fascism and authoritarianism? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we are where we are right now. Yeah, and you see it actually on both sides. I think in a way. Yeah. Oh no, it's not a left or right thing at all. No, it's really not. Um, it's. I started seeing it in like we were talking about this yesterday. I started seeing it in the late nineties when. Um, what I was proposing with the Ong's Hat experiment was that there was this way to play a game that was called an infinite game. It was not a zero-sum game. There was not a winner, and there was not a loser, and there was not right and wrong answers. And I had some people in the beginning that, that were at least willing to work with that concept, if not completely understanding of it, but at least working with it. Um, and then as more people came online, which meant you had more, just more people in general. That, that you know, you had a, a bigger folk, a test group. Basically, um, there was uh, more and more need for answers, and, and people would get really violently hostile if if I said to them, "You might have your answer, but that doesn't mean it's everybody else's answer." And, and they got really angry at that. And this is when things started to go south on the forums, is because there were people there that either were searching for hard answers or thought they had the hard answer and wanted everybody else to accept their hard answer. And it was, it was you know, it really, it, it, you can't, I've learned that you can't run this kind of game and have it completely open. There has to be a vetting process. I didn't know that then. I know that now. Um, if I were to ever do an experiment like this again, it would be thoroughly vetted. Um, and uh, back then, it was just open to the world. And like I said, we had some great, great early days where there was a, there was a lot of cool stuff and things were happening where like we were finding books that we thought weren't real and we were being contacted by people who claimed to have been there and I was having bleed over experiments with the AI and this guy Terrence and there was a lot of cool stuff going on and that's what we were after was that environment so that we could experience those wondrous things which were you know um, reminders that, that we are part of a living universal system 
um, which I like being reminded of, and we all, I think, all need to be reminded of more often. Um, and so I was after this experience that people could have to be reminded of that. And um, and like you said, um, what we're what we're experiencing more and more and more now is people uh, needing um, this kind of hard rationalist either or type thinking, very Aristotelian, um, and and it's, it's it's kind of disconcerting. Um, and there's um, there's like this whole movement of of people online that are are doing this, and and also there's like this hard movement towards fascism, uh, hard tribalism. Um, you know, all this kind of, we talked about tribalism yesterday where there's good aspects and bad aspects to it. And we're definitely seeing the bad aspects, the negative aspects of tribalism, like showing up because it's not really tribalism. That's the thing. It has the trappings of tribalism, but because it's being presented in a global platform, like the internet, there is, you don't really know who these people are that you're consorting with and you don't, and you, and you definitely don't share a geo bio region with them for sure. Most of the time. Um, and so, you know, this is not really tribalism. It's nationalism, and it's a tribalism of sorts, but it's more akin to a religious tribalism than it is to actual a geo or bioregion tribalism, which is not a real tribalism, really. It's a tribalism of the mind. So we're right, everybody else is wrong. And so you're, people are painting themselves into a corner. What I'm hoping to see, in the 90s we had an explosion um, that that happened for a while, which I don't know if you guys were around for this, but in the early days of the rave culture, um, it wasn't just about taking ecstasy and dancing until you passed out. There, there was a lot of conversations that were happening in those groups of people, and it was a tribalism of people that were together traveling around doing things and having these, these shows so they could have experiences with other people in real meat space, as we called it back then. Um, but there was conversations that were going on about new ways of thinking, new forms of energy, new ways of, of uh, sustainability, like like all these conversations that we're hearing now started back then with the young people in the 90s, like having enough of um, not being allowed any kind of, uh, of uh, uh, alternatives to just locking into the, you know, go to school, get a sheepskin, get a job, have a family. You know, I don't mean sound like Tyler Durden, but I do. <laughs> Which is, I don't know if you remember that scene, you know, oh, yeah. where he's sitting in the bathtub. And he's like, Dad, what do I do now? I don't know. Get a job. You know, it's like that really was a, a, pla- a, a, pa- a plan, you know, that, that people thought was a real plan. And, and, and it still exists today. And it still exists today. And you talk, but back then, you know, like my parents were definitely like, here's the plan, kid. Follow the plan and everything will be great for you, you know. And they were obviously disappointed when I didn't, but... Um, but I, I had a, a, a fuller life because of it. It's like, okay, Nick Herbert is a great example. So uh, I don't mean to tell Nick's story. Maybe you guys can talk to him in the future. But he told me a story once a long time ago that I thought was profound. He was a physicist at Lawrence Livermore, and he was sitting out in the field next to the, to the laboratory. And he had an experience where he said this interdimensional being came and sat next to him out of the blue, you know, and said to him, Nick... Um, I'm going to give you a choice. You can have a great, solid, stable life where you keep coming back to this lab and you wear that pocket protector and you, you do all the things that, that, you know, that they told you to do, your parents told you and school told you to do, and, and you'll have a great, stable life, and it'll, you know, but it'll be boring as hell. Or you can do something else and have a lot of fun. And he decided to do something else. <laughs> so he became a renegade physicist. Um, and, and I've always used that as a model. You know, like that, that's, I was like, yeah, absolutely. That's the way to do it. You know, 
Like it's like the Chinese curse, but you live in interesting times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. Do you want to talk more about the, the wondrous experiences that, so, like, if we go back now to the, the beginnings, you were you were excited about um, the overlap between Ong's Hat, your own theories about the sacred game, your own interests in art and mm-hmm. storytelling, mm-hmm. and then it begins to disseminate and mm-hmm. kind of how... Uh, yeah, just to elaborate and provide as much detail as you feel well, it, appropriate on, on I think kind it of the really, wonder that you experienced. It, I mean, it was interesting during the mail art days, it was disseminating, you know, I mean, to a certain extent. And um, and I thought probably that was like the extent of it. But then I started putting it on the bulletin board systems. And, and like I said, it just it just propagated on its own. I, it, it took on, I didn't have to do a lot. I think maybe I put it on three or four, you know, and... Um, and then people started just copy pastying that thing everywhere, and um, and then when the internet opened up for for the public, I want to say ninety two somewhere around there, um, and then I got it onto the internet in general via FTP and Gopher sites. Um, it just exploded. I mean, because I like I said, I put my email address on the bottom of the early documents so that people would contact me. And I would wake up, and, and again, in 93, waking up to 100 emails in your inbox was a lot. It was, like, overwhelming. Because <laughs> you would get a couple emails a week back then, you know, if you're lucky. Um, and so people just started writing to me and, like, talking about, like, where did this come from? And, oh, my God, this is great. And then the more that happened, the more I started getting reports of people having the moments, like I had had, where, like, Oh my God, you know, like all of a sudden I'm talking to these people and I'm having these synchronicities and all these weird things are happening. And um, at that point, nobody had reported that as a negative experience. Everybody was reporting it as a positive experience, like like I had, you know, experienced it. Um, As time went on, um, on the forums, even in the early days of the forums, it was all, it was almost, it was almost a thing where people would show up on the forum and the first thing they would say was, I was reading these documents and this strange stuff started happening, right? It, it was almost like your introduction. Like, you know, hello, my name is Bob and I'm an alcoholic or whatever. You know, it's like, hello, I read the Ong Set documents and I had synchronicities. Um, and it was, it, was, it was a cool thing. It was very, very cool and, and got bigger than I ever expected it at that point to be. Because at that point, um, in like the late 90s, uh, Inconabula.org was seeing 1.5 million unique IPs a, a month which is the late nineties is a lot of people to an independent little website, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't a big website, but it was in a way. Um, and so that I thought was probably bigger than, than I ever expected it to get. Um, but I was happy about it. I was happy that it had gotten that big. Um, because you know, the more people that had these experiences, I thought the better it was going to be. Now I probably was being naive um, in a way, I think maybe I was being like Timothy Leary was in the early days where he thought everybody should do LSD. I think he was wrong about that. And I think I was wrong. Uh, like I said, if I did this all over again, it would be a vetted process a little bit more. Um, but back then it was like, you know, I was running around with a tray full of acid going free LSD basically. <laughs> and then people were taking it. Um, and then the bad trips started occurring. And like I said, the, the complexion of, of the people that were online changed. And I don't mean skin color. I mean, like just who they are. Um, whereas it was, it was less sophisticated people 
that had been not exposed to the arts and not exposed to some of the things that were integral to understanding this kind of information, um, they were not the target audience. But yet they saw all these other people doing it, and so they wanted to do it. And uh, I guess maybe what I'm saying is that, that Ong San became gentrified. <laughs> it's like, you know, the yuppies moved into the artsy neighborhood, and then the prices got high, and everything got bad. And then, and that is kind of what happened, is the whole group of people showed up that really needed answers and didn't believe that there was no such thing as no answers, didn't understand the concept of uh, an infinite game, and needed there to be a zero-sum game. Um, and, and then paranoid people started showing up who were having these experiences, and it was triggering their paranoia. And and, that, and that's when it started to go downhill. But up until that point, it was pretty positive. It was it was a great thing. So, so I'm glad I'm glad I experienced that part of it. You know, yeah, the good part. Before we get into the paranoia and the and the bad times, I, I wondered if you wanted to comment on, um, I guess you know, and you can look at it from your own perspective as well as maybe consider other perspectives. But the the degree to which you thought the synchronicities were people. Uh, who were um, wanted to make an enthusiastic contribution to the game yeah. and knew, uh, you know, versus uh, some kind of a real experience, you know, real experience or I don't know. the influence uh, of, um, you know, the origins of the project. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I thought about that. It's like, okay, is, is this becoming a thing that everybody thinks they have to say? Or do they think they're supposed to experience things and therefore they do? It doesn't negate the experience, actually. Um, but uh, in the early days before it became popular, uh, before it became um, information that everybody knew about this phenomena, when people were just cold contacting me and saying, I read this document and I had these experiences, when I had not made it public that it had been happening to me, too, um, you know that was encouraging because that was you know I could say, okay, that's a phenomena that's attached to this information, and it has a lot to do with what. And then I started thinking about what that has to do because we have a lot of minds focused on this at the same time because you know because of the information itself because of a little of both. Um, and then as more and more people became public with that, then I didn't know if this was a, a you know a preconceived notion that everybody thought they had to have or. If some people were making it up so they could be accepted, I, I don't know. I can't answer that, you know. But I do know in the beginning that, that there were people that were contacting me and telling me they were having similar experiences to what I had without any prompting, without there being any public declaration that this was a phenomenon that went with the, with, with the information or the game. So, like, one of the things you talked – I, I have kind of two follow-up questions about that. But one of them was you – spoke yesterday about Emery Cranston and, and Terrence being mm-hmm. one of those things that mm-hmm. happened uh, for you. Were there any other experiences like that that you can specifically cite or that you want to, well, yeah, whether, mean, whether your own individual ones or things that people have shared with you that, that resonated? Um, Did you want this other water? Eventually, yeah, I'm starting to get dry. Um, probably going to grab a cough drop, too. Can we halt for a second? Yeah, yeah that's fine. Let me get a water about that but one of them was you spoke yesterday about Emery Cranston and and Terrence being Mm -hmm. one of those things that Mm -hmm. happened uh, for you were there any other experiences like that that you can specifically cite or that you want to whether your own individual ones or things that people have shared with you that that resonated Um, 
Joe, do you want this other water? Eventually, yeah, I'm starting to get dry. Um, probably going to grab a cough drop, too. Can we halt for a second? Yeah, yeah that's fine. Let me get a water. Okay, we're rolling. Um, this There's one in particular that stands out is, is um, a very strong uh, event. And it definitely was strong for me, and it was strong for the other person, too, but like I can only speak to my personal experience and it was you know it definitely left the left the imprint on me um there was a there was a person who read the young sat material and then we started corresponding by email and we even talked by phone one time um and then i just kind of let it drop um, i mean i didn't know this person they didn't know me not really you know um and uh about a couple months later <clears throat> i remember i didn't i didn't know this person I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know where they lived. I didn't even know what they looked like. I knew the sound of the voice, and I knew, like, obviously the character from somebody who was writing emails to me. Um, and, and I had a dream about this person um, where I met them in person and at their house and, you know, like, this whole episode. <clears throat> and the next day I get up, and there's an email. And all it said was, did you have a dream last night? And I'm like, yeah. Did you? Yeah. Okay, let's do this. I'm going to write down the dream, and you write down the dream, and then we'll send it to each other at exactly the same time so we know that we're not reading each other's. And we sent it, and um, the dream as it was described was the dream that I had experienced. And what I described not only described the dream, but I went into uh, kind of a detail of what I saw out the window of the house, and it described exactly what I saw. Now, later... I actually went to where this person lived and went to that house, and it was exactly the house that I experienced in my dream. So I can't explain that. You know, I really can't, other than I was like, oh my God. You know, it was like one of those experiences. And um, I mean, that was, that was huge to me. There was no way I could get around, like, that was what I saw out the window right there. That was it, you know. And, and I had described it so that, you know, there was no, no question. It was like, yes, you know, obviously he was in my house and obviously he looked out the window and saw this. And then when I saw it, I was like, that's not kind of like what I saw. That's what I saw, you know. And the house was not exactly what I saw in the dream, but similar. Um, I mean, the layout of the house was exact, but the, but the furnishings were different, a little different. So, I mean, that's what you experience with these things is like there's always a little variation, you know. Maybe you're you're a universe over or something. I don't know. Um, I, I can't explain it, but all I know is that that was. I mean, that just that that blew me for you know, a loop. I was just like for like days. I was just like kind of walking around in a daze, like, oh my god, this 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 shit is real. You know, this is real. So so that's where I wanted to go with this. Is like we had talked about also. Um, the perspective of others you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they were contributing things because they thought that was part of the game, they felt compelled. And I, I don't know. Yeah. But, but for you personally, you're saying, "Wow, this this seems real." So, well, for me and for that for that event with that person, I mean, that was. I mean, they described. I mean, that was something that happened to both of us, and and there's no denying because of the way that that I always fall into like this kind of scientific mode of like you know let's let's put it into a, into a into a, a framework. So that we don't lend too much credence to things that are maybe are, you know open to interpretation. But let's let's try to get the basis of the facts, and everything else is interpretation, and that's okay. Again, you know that's the part that's okay. 
but let's see if we can get a baseline here that we agree without talking to each other that this is what we both experienced. And if we both experience the same thing, then we know that there's been some kind of connection that's happened on some level that's not the everyday mundane level, right? And for me, at a younger age, um, that's always been exciting when I could when I could have those experiences and kind of verify them. Like you know, some people I don't know when I when I tell these things to some people they seem jaded or something like it happens to them every day, but I know it doesn't. But they're just like, eh, is it just dismissal? Yeah, I think it's dismissal. Yeah, they're being dismissive. Um, and and there's some people in kind of the new age circles that 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 want to be gurus or, or are and and they um, I think they they can't allow themselves to be awed by these things, not publicly anyway. Um, or maybe they feel jealousy that they because they don't really have those experiences, but they're trying to sell the fact that they do. Um, or, you know, whatever. They don't believe me or whatever it is. Um, but, I, but I'm excited by it every time it happens. I'm like a kid. I'm like a kid in a candy store. It's like, oh, yeah, there it is again, you know. It never gets old. Never, ever, not for me. So I'm going to contradict my earlier statement uh, when we were talking about, you know, the division or b- between uh, the arts and the sciences. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going to ask you, how do you either rationalize or not rationalize that experience you personally, individually? You, I don't. You don't. You I just don't. accept. I just accept it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I used to drive myself crazy when I was younger trying to rationalize it, always rationalize it. Um, and and there, you can't. And that's why, that's why I said that there comes a time where I had that experience, the first experience that I really had where I said, you know, I don't have to rationalize this and it's okay. It doesn't diminish the experience. It doesn't. It doesn't uh, mean it's not. It's not a legitimate experience to me. It is. It, it. You know, science would say that it delegitimizes the experience. I would say no, it does not. And and I can rationalize that now using quantum psychology, right? I can say, but the cat is alive and dead, right? You know. Well, until you open the box, well then, what's the, what's the problem with me having this experience and not having to rationalize it? Because if you understand. Um, Liminality, right? Um, one of the things that you know about liminality, I mean, George Hansen wrote this book called The Paranormal and the Trickster, The Trickster and the Paranormal, The Trickster and the Paranormal, um, which he, he does a lot of talking about liminality and the fact that you can't approach liminality through a rational process, that you have to come at it sideways. Um, and, and, and I agree with that. I mean, he's the first person that put it into words, what I was, what I, had as a concept in my head, but had not been able to put in the words. And he, he spent a lot of time talking about something that you can't talk about, which, which I thought was great. Like he never actually hit it, but he hit all around it. And then he told you why you could never hit it, but you can always hit around it. And, and probably one of the best books on liminality that you can read the UFO stuff. It's interesting. And, and he has a lot of valet type approach to things with, you know, one of my, another one of my big, um, Influences is Jacques Vallée, um, and uh, if you understand the logic of liminality, which is the logic of dreams, um, it's not rational logic, but it's still a logic. It's it's an illogical logic, and that that doesn't. And you know, a, a hard scientist and a hard uh, materialist would jump up and down on me for saying that. But anybody who knows. A holistic approach to life understands that that's not a contradiction in terms. It's actually, it's something. It's just not something that you can define directly, And but that's okay because by its nature you can't. 
So what you're trying to do is you're trying to define the the indefinable. You're trying to speak of the ineffable, and and that again sounds like a self like I'm contradicting myself, but I'm not because you can't speak directly to the ineffable, but you can talk around the ineffable, and by doing so, you describe an area that it inhabits, which is as close as you can ever get. Yeah, you give it a framework. Yeah. It's as close as you can get. Yeah. And the Ongsat project was just that. What I tried to do with with the game was construct a framework that allowed people to play within the framework without giving them hard, precise, granulated rules that I just said, here's a framework. This is this story is a framework. But if you read the story, you know it's a very loose framework where there's a lot of play inside, room for play inside, and that's for everybody to have their own space and their own definition, and, and that's for them to have their ineffable moment. So if I, um, if I had to describe it as anything... Uh, definite, what were you trying, Joe, what were you trying to do? I was trying to do a lot of things, but uh, it definitely was a Swiss Army knife. Um, but one of the things I definitely was trying to do was I was trying to create a space that uh, invoked synchronicity. Because I think having high-level synchronicity experiences, for me, was very profound. And, and as it turned out, it was profound for other people, too. But destabilizing for some, I later discovered. So I guess before we get to that, and, um, and the kind of turn for you. Um, do you want to talk at all uh, uh, or elaborate on um, how you impose uh, the structure of the sacred game for then people? Like, what is um, again? This is this is probably reductive for me to ask, but mm-hmm. like, what is the game? How would you how would you describe that? I don't want to describe it too much because because it's a formula that I use that by describing it too much, you, you kill it. Um, so what I will do instead is use analogy. Okay. So basically if, um, if I were staging this as a stage play, it would be a hallway full of doors that open up into a question mark and whatever, whatever is on the other side of the door has to do with the person opening the door. So you, you, you set a, you set a mood, um, you set an environment, a set and setting um, which creates a, a you know a brain space for people to be in a mind space, um, and then you leave the the uh, the loose part of the framework is what's on the other side of the door. What's on the other side of the door is, you know, um, left up to the person who is observing it. So it's an observer effect, um, and it's really simple to do. Uh, the hard part is creating the sacred space in the beginning of walking down the hall and getting people in the right mood. So it's, it would be lighting. It would be sound. It would be characters that you approach that approach you on the way. Um, it would be the color of the doors. It would be the vibration of the floor. It would be all these different things that you build. You build a mood, you build an environment that, that, um, encourages, uh, sacred thinking and liminality. And then the rest is up to the observer. It's like you don't you don't put the rules on the other side of that door. That's the open spot. That's the open space. That's the box that the cat is in. And then by opening the door, you observe the cat. Is it alive or is it dead? You know. Again, I'm using a metaphor. It's not really cats behind the door, but it's it's the it's the state of the quant- the quantum state of the collapsing state vector. It's like what is it? Well, it's nothing until you open that door. And then what it is is depending on you. Is what it is. And you know, obviously. You see the problem with this, which is, you know, if you're a person who's grounded and, and you, you know who you are and, you, and you're not carrying a lot of baggage, then that's a great experience. But what if you're not? It's just like LSD. What if you're not? I mean, people have bad trips because they weren't ready for the trip. 
That's really what. And there's some people that chemically are never going to be ready for a trip. You know, these we were in the. I think Leary was naive, and I think I was naive in my thinking, which is everybody should experience this. Not everybody can, unfortunately. Yeah. And when I say that, some people, of course, think I'm being arrogant and exclusive, and, I, and I'm not. But I am, and I'm not. I'm not being arrogant. I'm being exclusive in that I don't want to do harm. So, yeah. how would you have been able to? I mean, I you know this is you know using a 2020 hindsight, but the how would you have vetted people? I think if, if you had to do it all over again. Um. Well, you know, I I, I remember. And this is an extreme example, but um, I, I I did I was part of a of a of a, a lodge um, which was uh, an offshoot of the Golden Dawn, and um, I don't know if you guys know that I, I've published books on Falcon Press, which was part of the Golden Dawn, basically was the Golden Dawn Publishing House. Um, Christopher Hyatt. Who's now deceased, but he was he was the head of it. Robert Anton Wilson was part of it. Israel Regardi, who is the person that is really responsible for bringing the Golden Dawn into the the mainstream, was part of it. And Regardi had this idea that you shouldn't even be allowed to join the Golden Dawn as a neophyte until you'd undergone at least five years of therapy um, to make sure that you you could withstand it. Because you know. Ritual magic and 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 you know, the game is ritual magic. It is really ritual magic. It, ritual magic is something that can unhinge a, a person who's borderline very quickly. Um, and if you read the history of magical orders, even some of the people that were founders of the Golden Dawn, like McGregor, McGregor Mathers, was not ready to be playing with ritual magic. He did not have his shit together, and he went insane. A lot of people do. I've seen it. People just go completely off the rails because. This calls up very deep elements of your psyche that if you are not, if you have not made peace with them, they're going to, they're going to hijack you and, and it's going to be a war and it's not going to be ugly or pretty. It's going to be very ugly. Um, this is, this does not turn into a beatific experience as Kerouac would say. It turns into a very ugly battle with your demons, which if you're not prepared for it, now you are actually fighting them. They're not repressed anymore and, and they're angry that they've been repressed I mean, I'm using metaphors, but if you if you give subjective reality to it, then maybe or objective reality. Um, so, um, how would you vet them? I have not put that process together yet because I've not ever attempted to do another sacred game in the public. Um, I've done a couple with people that I've known for a long time. It's been very private. It's been selective, um, and so I've vetted the people very heavily by either knowing them or, or putting them through uh, a testing process where maybe they didn't always know they were being tested, but I was definitely watching them and getting a sense of who they were. And if I felt that they were balanced enough to handle this, and then, you know, there was a period of time where I was taking people out in the desert and doing uh, sacred theater with them for like, like a week that we'd be out in the middle of nowhere without cell phones and without you know any contact with the outside world, and I would put them into an environment that they kind of couldn't escape. You know, the part of being there was if you're going to walk across the desert without water, go for it. You know, or you can stay here. <laughs> um, and so it, it's kind of um, an initiatory process, you know. Um, but I, I agree with Regardi in that you should you should vet people or they should vet themselves pretty heavily, and then you should watch them before you just bring them on in. And again, I know this sounds like I'm being like, ooh, they're not ready for the magic, you know. It's like that's that's bullshit. It's just like I don't want to be responsible for doing harm to others. That's all. 
I was just wondering if there's if there's certain uh, personality types or or oh absolutely, or, but or mental illness. I don't. Be like I would never let somebody that yeah is bipolar into this game, or I would never. That's not no. That's not true. Yeah. I've met bipolar people that actually. Uh, I'm just using that as an example. Yeah, I know, but but there are some that I wouldn't. Obviously, it, it, it depends on how it manifests itself. Yeah. So there there are artists I know that are clearly schizophrenic, um, but. And, and I don't know how to describe this other than to say I, I have this thing about um, um, there's happy crazy and unhappy crazy, as I call it. And so I know people that are schizophrenic that are unhappy with the, with their state, and I would never let them anywhere near a process like this. And then there are people I know that just that just run with it, and they're like great artists, and they're happy. They're not they're not unhappy schizophrenics. They hear voices and they see things that I don't see. But it doesn't frighten them, and they're not unhappy with that state in life. They kind of like it, and those are people I would definitely say, "Let's go, let's play," you know, because that kind of person is going to bring back stuff that you never imagined, you know. And but they're not going to be harmed by it. Like so they've already come to grips with the fact that they are different. They are differently enabled than we are, and I would say, you know, probably have a fuller understanding of a lot of things than we do. Maybe a little more right brain, or definitely more immersed in the collective unconscious than we are. But they have a connection to levels of understanding that we do not have like they have. Like there's this instantaneous, like the stuff that comes out of those people's mouths sometimes will just give a, raise a hair on your arms. And it's not like they're saying frightening things. It's just so uncanny that they can snatch a sentence out of your head as you're thinking it and say it out loud. I've had that happen. I'm just like, whoo, you're plugged in. <laughs> but again, if they're, if they're still hanging on to the, um, to the construct that's been sold everybody that they have to do this, you know, you know buy your closet gap and, and go to this, this school and get this degree and then go to this place and get this job and work until you retire. If they're holding on to that reality and, and they are who they are and, and they're unhappy about that, that's not a good thing. And that's not the person you want to, you don't want to do that to them either or to yourself. It's going to be destructive for both of you. So that, that's how I would vet them. I would just observe them. Are they happy? You know? Yeah. Um, Are they seeking too hard is another thing. Right, yeah. There's people that show up and just desperate for an answer. Yeah, sure. And I don't want those people. Some sort of fulfillment. Yeah, yeah they're, they, they, they're, <laughs> they don't get what they want yeah. <laughs> out of this process. <laughs> John, are you ready to go into maybe the talking about sort of the, the downfall? Yeah, we can. I guess before we do that, I'm wondering if you feel it's relevant to speak at all about any of the, um, uh, the uh, for lack of a better term, the games that you kind of oversaw with Robert Anton Wilson at Esalen and things like that. Uh, do, you, do you feel like that's relevant or no? Yeah, that was definitely the, the predecessor to all this. Okay. I mean, the, 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 the Illuminati game that I ran at Esalen with, with Bob was definitely where I worked out a lot of kinks and stuff. Um, it was the, the last thing I did. Was the last thing? No, it was the first. I did that, and then I did one other thing. And then I did the Young's Hat Project. So, so yeah, but it definitely was, was interesting, and, and it gave me a lot of ideas for how to do this. Um, that went really smoothly. Um, so basically it was a weekend at Esalen where people paid to uh, stay on the, on the grounds, um, and every day there was a couple of sessions with Bob, and in, in the background of all this was this game that I staged to put together where we were all playing this role-playing game at Esalen where everybody was either assigned a role and sometimes their role was changed and 
Um, and there was groups of people that were working towards uh, opposing goals, and some people were working towards the same goals, and they didn't know it. Everybody was kept in the dark, basically, um, and they were left to make their own alliances. Um, and it was uh, based on the Bob's concept of the Illuminati, which is not the the Alex Jones concept of the Illuminati. Um, Bob had a, a more historic understanding of who the Illuminati was. They were basically uh, a pre-enlightenment group um, that were opposed to the Catholic Church and opposed to monarchy and opposed to you know, papacy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was that was a fun game. A lot of people had... I, I made some lifelong friends out of that game, and um, there were people that came up to me afterwards and said that it was a life-changing experience for them because um, we, did, we did resurrections. We had people that were uh, assassins, and... If you were given this this dot dotted paper, you were basically assassinated, and then everybody thought you were off the board. And so I would take some of those people into a hotel, into the cabin room, and Bob would be there, and then we would do this little fake ritual thing and say, "You're now we've resurrected you, and you're working for us." And you know, so they would do stuff that people would be like, "Well, it couldn't be that person because they're dead," but they weren't. <laughs> so yeah, it was a lot of intrigue, and then after at the end of it all, we had a summation. Which is something I wanted to do with the Ong Sat thing and never got to do, um, which is, you know, uh, when I called quits of the game, I wanted to have like a summation after a while where let's all come together and talk about this. It was not allowed to happen, um, but we did we did do it at Esalen, and that was really good for a lot of people where people say, wait, you were, and it, it, like everybody was discovering that, that nobody was who they thought they were. And that was that was a great moment for everybody. And, and they, had a lot, they had a lot of fun. It was definitely... Um, it had ritual aspects to it, but it was but it was definitely more novel what we were doing at Esalen, and, and fun. We had a lot of fun. Do you want to just for the listener provide a little context about Robert Anton Wilson and the Golden Dawn? Uh, sure. So Robert Anton Wilson is a, a electrical engineer. Started out, I believe, and uh, from Brooklyn, and then he um, uh, went to Chicago and he wrote for Playboy. And while he was a uh, columnist or was he an editor, editor at Playboy, um, he made friends with uh, Robert Shea. And the two of them together were very interested in uh, all the weird conspiracy stuff they were getting in the in editorial and in the columns for the letters section of Playboy. Um, and so they started, you know, putting together this concept for this trilogy, which became the Illuminatus trilogy. Um, and it was kind of a, an amalgamation of every conspiracy theory ever that had existed up to that point, uh, like the John Burt Society stuff and like the May Brussels stuff and the Rockefellers and, you know, all, all the all the different uh, conspiracy theories out there. And they wove it all together into this kind of a psychedelic, uh, you know, a positive thing of like, yes, there are evil people conspiring against you, but there are also good people who are conspiring for your good. What uh, my friend Rob Bresney would call metanoia which is the opposite of paranoia. Um, and that was the Discordians. And then Bob was also working with Greg Kill and Carrie Thornley on what became the Principia Discordia, which was the kind of the Bible, so to speak, of Discordianism, which is uh, a non-religion religion. It's a parody religion. Um, and uh, the heroes of the Illuminati trilogy were Discordians, of course, and anarchists. And there's a lot of libertarian thinking from the time and, you know, uh, Alternative currencies were involved, and you know, just kind of like any kind of fringe progressive leftist theory out there, and a lot of progress- or fringe right right theories that were the opposition, basically. 
And it all kind of tied around uh, the Vietnam War protest culture and all the stuff that was happening in the 60s, very 60s oriented. Um, and then later he uh, started doing his own experiments with stuff and he, he became allied with the, uh, the Order of the Golden Dawn, which is a uh, hermetic ritual magic, magical organization um, and uh, um, was doing work with that. Like, but he, he always kept a very strong um, kind of rational skeptical aspect to it, so he always balanced it. He was never just just a rational thinker, but never also an irrational thinker. He was definitely a balanced thinker, um, and so his big thing was called maybe logic, which was like you know there's always a maybe, there is no such thing as a hard answer, but there's probabilities and possibilities, and we try to go with the probabilities until, as he would call it, model agnosticism, until a better model presents itself, and then it's don't be married to the old model, just go with the new model. So he was a big influence on my thinker as a young man. Cool. Yeah. And then we became friends. And did, did the Illuminatus trilogy, do you think, uh, connect with your interests in Ong's Hat and, and your idea of the same well, thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, basically my, my influence, or my influence, my, my exposure to the Illuminatus trilogy and to Cosmic Trigger, Bob's other book, and then there, through that, my exposure to all of the Falcon stuff and the Leary stuff and close and all this all came from my interest in, in that culture, um, that aspect of culture, which Bob used to call himself the counterculture's counterculture. So there was the counterculture and then there was like <laughs> this stuff over here that I was a part of, which was a narrow segment of that counterculture, which was like the fringe of the fringe. And um, the uh, because I was interested in that, I, I sought out and found the people I found in Santa Cruz which directly um, tied me in with people like Nick Herbert, who were friends of Robert Anton Wilson's, and by then I was a friend of Bob Wilson, and then all these other people that became the Fog Group were friends of Robert Anton Wilson, etc. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and Peter Wilson, a.k.a. Hawking Bay, was friends of Robert Anton Wilson, so it was a group of people that relied around common interests. Yeah. And, and, and I got into that specific shoot of interest through the Illuminatus trilogy for sure. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I mean I was already on the path, but that definitely that was a hard hard vector. (laughs) It's like over here. Um do you have anything else before we move into No, I think that's that's I think yeah, it's a place to do it. Okay. So before like we kinda got the broad strokes, but Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if Kind of like how I asked you to cite some specific examples of the wonder that you experienced mm-hmm. during the glory days of the game. Mm-hmm. When things started to kind of shift, mm-hmm. uh, w- was there any particular situation that really set off alarm bells to you? Um, yeah, the, the basically the new people started showing up on the forum um, that were very interested in... Um, keeping the conversation moving in a direction they wanted to move in and not in any other direction. And, and that was kind of triggering for me because up until that point, um, we didn't have to impose any rules because everybody was playing nice. And now we had people that specifically did not want to play nice. And then we were, in, we were in this weird historical period where at that point, if you, if you told people that you were going to kick them from your forum or anything like that that was actually frowned upon in the culture it's like you were supposed to let everybody say whatever they wanted to say no matter what 
And um, 2020 hindsight, bad idea. And we've since learned bad idea, right? Um, But back then, we were still laboring under the delusion that if we let everybody say what they wanted to say, that, you know, it was, there could be no bad thing coming from free expression. Um, And what what, what year about with this? 99, definitely. That's when it started to happen. And specifically, 2000 is when it really started to happen. Um, And, um, I'm not saying that there's any bad thing that can come from free expression if everybody is working uh, as a um, if if everybody is um, what's the word I'm looking for um, if everybody is actually working not working if everybody is participating as a sincere actor then everything's fine with free expression because a sincere actor. Is is going to say something that they really mean, and that they and is not just trying to be disruptive, and they're not trying to trying to be hurtful, but they're actually expressing something that they think and feel, and then that can be talked out calmly among people that might not agree, and people can at least agree to disagree in the end and be respectful of each other, and that started to go away, because these people were looking for a answers. Some people, which that's if, if why I said if you have a hard seeker. Not somebody I would consider anymore, but I was trying to, in the beginning, I was trying to um, be all-inclusive and being a big tent approach on this, and so I didn't want to exclude those people. Then there were, in retrospect, at the time I didn't know it, but there were people that were clearly there to disrupt the conversation. No other reason they were there, because they never proved any other, any different to that. Um, and so, you know, we weren't prepared for that. I, I was still in the naive phase of trying to have a conversation with them as a sincere actor of like, well, maybe you just don't understand, you know, and they understood. They were just there to be disruptive. They were what we would call griefers in the in the early online gaming days. Um, but I didn't see that coming, right? And so you know, I blame myself for having a naive approach to all this and thinking that everything was idyllic, and it was in the beginning. Um, and so the, the, the tone of the conversation and, for me, the experience – went from participation to trying to have some sort of moderation and and that's when it became work and not fun anymore because I shouldn't have to be moderating. My my idea was that we all moderated ourselves, but then you had these people that were clearly being bad faith actors and and then you had to you couldn't just ban them back then because that that would really to the rest of the other communities then they would run around saying that you were restricting free speech and and people would agree with them, you know, and and, and enable them with that thinking um, and, and they were not really being sincere with that but they were definitely using that um, to continue to be abusive so and, and then you alluded to the fact that the the where it really got bad was there were people who had who were mentally unbalanced yeah yeah so yeah. do you want to speak um, about that at all yeah so there were two kind of experiences that that really brought that brought that home um one was that there was uh this group this small group of people who were claiming that the that the technology in the econobula was real and that they had figured it out and that i was an idiot and and blah 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 and that people should stop listening to anything i had to say or anything that anybody on the dark planet forum was saying and should come over to their forum they were trying to hijack 
Um, and they had they had all these promises of books they were writing and cassette tapes. They were and they never none of it materialized, of course, and they failed at getting most people to go over to their side. But but they tried and they came to our forum and disrupted the shit out of it, trying to get people to you know they would spread ad hominem and uh, disruptive behavior, disruptive language, and they would belittle people have, trying to have like conversations and they would derail the threads before they ever were allowed to develop anymore. Um, and then right around that time, I went on coast to coast, and that was it. It's like then we had the influx of, you know, people that had like the, the David Icke type people showing up, and we had the, uh, the the Mark Phillips and Kathy O'Brien type people showing up, and um, and then all of a sudden somehow you know mind control became this big issue on the forums where people were talking about MK Ultra and. Isn't this just another form of NK Ultra? And don't I work for Silicon Valley companies? And aren't I part of MK Ultra? And, and then it just became this constant battle of trying to um, respond to all these baseless and stupid allegations all the time. And so all my time was being spent with that. And there was absolutely nothing that was developing in the game. And at the time, the CD-ROM had been out for a while, and there were puzzles in the CD-ROM that could be solved. And nobody was looking for them anymore. Like most of the people that were there in good faith had given up and moved on or had gone silent. And now the forum was completely overrun with people that were there in bad faith, that didn't understand the game, that weren't looking. And so it is an attempt to keep the game moving forward. I gave uh, a person on the forum some of the solves of the puzzle and said, you can go on the forum and say that you found these, but just get get it moving. Like, let's start talking about that again. And it went nowhere. And at that point, this was like the towards the end of 2000, I, I kind of gave up. I was like, it's over. It's like, you know, we have lost this war, if it ever was one. But I didn't want it to be. But it did become one. We were, basically, we were, we, we, we showed up to a knife fight with a pillow. <laughs> but we didn't know it was a knife fight. <laughs> we thought it was a pillow fight. Um, and and so I we had to like close it down and just let it go. I mean, it, we got overrun by trolls. That's what happened. Do they see you to just... I uh, just uh, wanted some clarification here. Did other folks in the forum um, see you as sort of the, for lack of a better term, like the, the head... Of things, I mean, you you had talked earlier about being sort of the online ambassador. Yeah, they they Basically looked at me like as the manager of the site. Or yeah, the yeah. Of I mean, that. I was and Denny was definitely Denny was. It was his site. Um, I helped him with it, but yeah, it was definitely his site, and he was he was the the uh, the forum moderator for sure. Um, and and I was kind of like you know the ambassador of Inconabula Ong's hat. The person I was handing out the clues. And, you know, basically, like I said, I was trying to get people, like, keep people focused on the aspect of the game. And then that shifted in 2000 to everybody was looking at the material and wondering if this was, if it was real or not real. And, you know, and and they started focusing on me, which I was never supposed to be the focus of the game. And then they were also talking about the fact that, that this is all real. And that I just, I'm an idiot because I was making comments like, well, I'm more interested in the social and cultural aspects of this and then that was belittled by some of these people who were whether they were serious or not I don't know but they were claiming to be serious that they had figured out that this technology was actually workable and that they were going to do it yet they never did so was any of those uh, individuals named Cameron a guy that we heard from <laughs> um, 
Cameron is an interesting character. So Cameron, Cameron claims that everything I've been telling you about my experience with the game is actually an experience that he had with a game that he wrote and that I that I took his experience and modified it to be my experience. And so the story that I'm telling is actually his story. And um, and, and I, I don't know why he I don't know what who what is who he really is or what he's about, but you know, I, I know he has a website. Where is Cameron.wtf? I didn't know there was such a domain, but there is. Um, and uh, that's all I know about Cameron is, is he's one of the people that showed up at that time and started screaming that that you know I had ripped off his story basically that I and and there was another that's one and then there's another story this, you're going to find this interesting so there's another story where there was a person who claimed that the Incanabula material was was channeled material that was supposed to go to them. Um, that I somehow, through some form of black magic, intercepted the transmission. <laughs> and Cameron's like one of those people. This is another. This is yet another person who claims that this this was supposed to be their story, and this really the story is about them. But that I hijacked it, you know. And and and, and that is so uh, um, ironic because in making that statement, this person was attempting to hijack the story. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's when it, I mean, it started to get loopy like that where people were making all kinds of accusations about, and then there was like these people that would show up on the forum using fake names and they would put up like, uh, angel fire websites or GeoCity websites where there was, it was just like, they were trying to hijack the traffic that was going to dark planet over to whatever project that they were trying to do. And they would do so by claiming that I was some sort of illegitimate, Representative of the Onsat material, and they were the real representative of the Onsat material. And there was like five or six of these people in a row that would that would come on and just disrupt the forums. And the, back then, um, again, we didn't have uh, moderation in place that we we wouldn't we wouldn't restrict people signing up. We wouldn't restrict people once they had signed up. So every morning, Denny and I would wake up to five new, you know, sock puppets. They were trying to divert people off of the forum or just not let the – they were either trying to get people to have their conversation and in failing to do so, they would disrupt any other conversation besides their conversation or they would try to divert people over to their site. And that just continually kept happening. I feel that way about uh, George R. R. Martin that he stole a lot of my ideas. <laughs> Successful books. Except for the last season. Don't don't claim that. Don't claim that. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not very nice. Don't, don't claim it. Take that. it from me as a big <laughs> GOT fan. Don't claim it. <laughs> I'm claiming up until uh, midway through season six. So yeah. That is that is where I'm at. So yeah. that's so far. There was a, there was eight seasons total. Eight seasons. Yeah. So all the way to the end of season six, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> so, Seven and eight, not so much. <laughs> so, uh, um, I'm curious if you think that, like, when you, um, when Onyxet was released and, and these these forms were active, was it the right time, or was it, or absolutely the right time historically? It was okay. Yeah, because, I just wondered if something like that had existed today, if if it if it. It wouldn't work. Wouldn't work at all. No, I don't. I don't think. The, I don't think the signal could get above the noise okay. at this point. Back then, um, you have to remember that I was a person who, uh, professionally for Silicon Valley, um, was doing something that now has a name, but didn't have a name then, which was search engine optimization, uh, viral marketing. All these things were, were things that I was doing for companies like Adobe. 
but didn't have those names yet. So like, you know, we were talking about one of the things that I did in tech was, was PDF and Acrobat. And I utilized, um, internet culture, um, to spread the word of something. But I, but I adhered to the rules of not spamming and not, you know, not abusing, abusing the information, uh, the channel of information. But I, I used those same tactics with Incanobula and Onxhat, which was I got the word out there early on. Um, and so I was, you know, uh, lucky in that I got into the internet very early so that I could, I could grab a, a prime piece of real estate, so to speak, um, mind, mind share wise, um, that would be really hard to get now. Like, I don't, I don't think, I don't think you could do it. I really don't. So Not do to you, that level. Do you think the downfall was just inevitable? In some sense? Yeah, I do. I think, I think I probably should have shut it down at the end of 99. That's when I should have shut it down. And I thought about it, but then, you know, um, other opportunities presented themselves. And I still had, like I said, I still had this vision of a process that I wanted to finish. And the process I wanted to finish was I, I, I had, I wanted people to start unlocking some of the puzzles in the CD-ROM. And some of them got unlocked, but not a lot of them did never got, got touched. Um, and I wanted, I wanted then to conclude the game officially and then to have a period of six months to a year where we sat around and talked about it. I wanted to have a conversation after that, like kind of a closure session. Um, and I was not allowed to do that either. So I, I really never finished the project, to be honest with you. I wish I had been able to, but I wasn't allowed to. Mm-hmm. But do you, do you think doing that survey, though, does exactly, and this isn't an attack, I'm just curious, mm-hmm. does exactly what you didn't want to do by, by sort of really... Uh, Simply stating, like the clause that this is all a game by by uh, pulling the curtains back at the end. No, I, I, I think I think but. in my mind at least that that was an important part of the process. Is now that we've suspended our disbelief, it's like okay, it's like it's like if you and I go see Infinity Wars together, and then we go out and have coffee afterwards. What are we going to do? We're going to talk about what we experienced, right? It's like my experience of the movie, your experience of the movie, the parts you liked, the parts you didn't like, the parts I liked, the parts I didn't like. I wish they would have. I wish they wouldn't have. Like, you know, you've had those, those conversations. Um, you always you, – it's a process, right? And I, and I think it's important to have that process. I remember walking out of Infinity Wars and seeing geeks walking out of that movie with white faces because they had seen their heroes die. <laughs> and I was like – that's pretty heavy, man. I'm, I'm like, I could feel the angst <laughs> walking out of that movie. Like, I'm looking at people like, you're hurt. <laughs> you're wounded. <laughs> and there was for a week or two afterwards, I had a T-shirt. I still have the T-shirt um, that I wore just to encourage conversations. And people like check, like like cashiers at the grocery store had conversation, held up the line to have conversations with me based on the T-shirt. And the T-shirt I had was the Infinity Gauntlet. And it said... Um, Thanos was right, and and I had bought that T-shirt like right before I went to see the movie, and, and then I wore it afterwards, and and it, it sparked so many conversations because there were people out there that needed to talk about what they had experienced with that movie, and I'm you know I'm not trying to to say one thing or the other about Infinity Wars. I liked it, but um, I'm just saying that that you know I know it's a Disney product and you know all that kind of shit, but. You know, those heroes are archetypes we grew up with. I don't know about you guys, but Spider-Man, Captain America, 
and Iron Man. Those, those are all people that were prominent in my childhood. Like, because I was a Marvel kid. Like, I think I told you, I was not a DC kid at all. I was, I was a Marvel kid, and those were characters I grew up with, like for good or bad. You know, that, that and I even felt a little. I was like, huh, <laughs> you know, like it's like, oh, that that was kind of rough. <laughs> and now I have to wait a year before I can get resolution on this. You know, and and. Um, and there, people needed to have that conversation. So people were having that. That was the trigger. I wore that shirt to see if people would talk to me. And everybody talked to me that saw that shirt. People would walk up to me in the store and start talking to me or outside on the street. It's like, what does that mean? You know? And I'm like, well, he was half right <laughs> as a joke. <laughs> um, and, and that's, that was the, 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 what I considered to be the closure of the process would have been to have that conversation, not to say what was the right answer or wrong answer, but just everybody could then say, what did you get from it? Um, and what was your experience? Did we, did, did we hear all the stories? Do you have stories to tell us, you know, and just kind of have a coming together of the tribe and everybody talk about it. I just, I just I, that totally makes sense to me. I understand that every reason of doing it. I just wonder if there's some people that would rather just live in it and stay in it. And yeah. And they're welcome to. Yeah. yeah. They're welcome to. I mean, there, there were people that tried to, actually. Uh, Kinsella wrote a whole book about that. Um, the Legend Tripping Online is a whole book about the people that tried to keep going with it afterwards. And But I, you know, unfortunately, and I'm not trying to kick the legs out from under his thesis, but one or two of those people I know were not sincere actors and really believing that it was real, um, but they pretended that they were afterwards. And I think maybe they were trying to start a cult or something, but... Luckily, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, once it was over, it was over. Yeah. I mean, there were some people that did not want it to be over, but it, it was over. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the momentum was gone. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can relate when we did the Pleiades Conspiracies. I felt like there was a Slate article that came out during episode six. There were seven episodes, but basically spelled out a lot of the, uh, the fabrications. And a lot of people really, really turned on us. At that Slate point. did that to you? Yeah, a lot of people turned on us. At that point, share that with um, me, and uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I'm, um, I'm sure I could commiserate. <laughs> yeah, but they, 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 you know, a lot of people turn on us, and I mean, also, it, it actually uh, a lot of people I think got interested. They hadn't heard of the show, and then mm-hmm. read that article, and then found the show because of it. So Good. it didn't have just a, a negative effect. Good, but um, but your commentary, your comment on that was about the intentionality of waiting until the penultimate episode to do that versus w- allowing it to finish out. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that, that almost felt intentional, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. That's it did, because he was, he was on guy. to it by episode two or something. Yeah, this is a yeah. guy that wanted to, to uh, I mean, he, he wanted to be the first. To he was a griefer. Something on... Oh, so I mean, you know, it's weird. He would have waited to the to the series is over if he wasn't. That's what I thought. There were a lot of other things behind it. Like he didn't he didn't want to have an actual conversation with us. Right. He basically, and, and our hindsight being twenty twenty, like we just should we should give him nothing. But instead, he's like, "This is going to publish tomorrow. I need you to get." So yeah. this is all through an email, and, and he didn't have we, time for a phone conversation. Yeah, we kind of. Yeah, I can email you some questions. We kind of balked and got got a little nervous, and and there were some other. Uh, aspects of why we did what we did, but um, it was uh, ultimately it was just it's like, dude, you can be first like five minutes after the the last episode drops. You well, know? he definitely took he a lot of he took a lot of uh, he took a lot of credit for that. Like a lot of people, you know, I you read this. It's been a long time since I've been on his yeah. Twitter page, but said like it, it was almost like it created these like two divisions of people that 
we're into the show and liked it, and then people that thought we were full of shit and the show was full of shit, yeah, and backed this writer and thought he was right on, and you know, and and it just was, it was just no. And I had people playing that game with me too. You know, it's like you know, like. I'm the one that busted it. You know, it's like, what do you mean you busted it? I busted myself, you asshole. You know, it's like... I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just think that... that uh, I mean, it was never, never where we came from while making um, Polybius. We never really were that interested in saying, like, hey, is this, is this real or yeah. not? You know, it was more uh, just sort of discussing how these things... Um, can capture people's imagination. And, and yeah. we wanted to kind of play in that world a little bit, too. And... And uh, we thought we thought by you know just sort of unveiling the, the truth would that would ruin it, it would ruin the entire experience. Yeah. Um, no, I mean that's part of the part show. of the reason I pulled the plug on when I did on Incanabula was there was a person that originally was working I thought with me who you know had like made a lot of noise about not being included and blah blah blah. So I included this person you know in in the the back channel of the information of when things were going to get released and what was happening and then. I found out that really what they wanted to do was was to um, go on go on record as being the one that like broke the story and and you know basically they were they were there to grief it you know like to to do something like what this person did but I found out that that's what they were up to and so like oh no they're not going to get the pleasure of doing that I'm going to pull the plug before they can you know so yeah. And, and those, in fact, one of those people was in the group that Kinsella wrote the book about. That's why I said he wasn't correct in assuming that these people really thought it was real because at least one or two of them did not. Mm-hmm. But he didn't know that. So it kind of kicks the legs out from under his thesis in a way. Um, but, you know, not completely because some of the people didn't know. Um, and, 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 in fact, my pulling the plug as fast as I did when I did was because I found out that they were they were planning on, you know, Basically, they were going to drop um, private emails that where I was talking about the game and the construct, where I was just openly talking about the fact that it was a game, and they were going to blow the TNAC principle completely, blow it, you know. So, and just doing it out of hatefulness. Yeah, they want they wanted to tell me how to run the game, and I said you cannot tell me how to run this game, and then they got angry. So. I, I want to ask you about what you feel. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to try to impose, impose my perspective on this, but I would just say, you know, um, whether you're talking about something like Half-Life, where, mm-hmm. where some people decide that Half-Life is actually where they'd rather spend most of their life, <laughs> or, or you, you know, there's the Hikikomori in Japan where mm-hmm. you've got, um, you know, people everywhere who develop addictions to social media mm-hmm. um, or people who become drug or alcohol, uh, you know, abusers or whatever. It's like, what is the, is there any responsibility on the part of the creator? Yeah. You think there is? Yeah, I okay. do. I think, I think a good faith effort should be made on the part of the creator to um, remind the users, the players of the game that uh, well, first of all, to design games that are not just about immersing uh, completely for the benefit of the bottom line, but rather to create immersive experiences for the benefit of the players, so that they can become uh, 
more rounded through life experience and to meet other people and to have real life experiences with other people and to understand group dynamics. And because that's one of the things that, I mean, I don't know if you, you agree or don't agree with me, but I think starting with television, especially that humans have become monasticized more and more and more and more and more to stay in their little box and not interact with other humans other than through the mediation of electronics. Right. Um, and that's because that can be monetized and monitored. And so... Um, there also seems to be some sense of safety or security that people derive from compartmentalizing their lives. Yes. You know, this idea that, like, I don't want to be approached... I no longer want to be approached by a stranger in a public space. Mm-hmm. But when I'm online on XYZ platform mm-hmm. or, you know, this dating app or that dating app, mm-hmm. then it's permissible because... I understand that that's what I'm here for. So well, because it removes I'm, I'm, the I'm, unper- I'm in a, I'm in control. I'm right? safe behind a, a relative cloud of anonymity. Yeah, and I'm safe behind a relative cloud of physical proximity, and you know, so th- there's like these safety mechanisms. Yeah, definitely. So people people both gravitate towards that, and yet mm-hmm. they are also sort of exploited by that. absolutely. I mean, once you you're encouraged into that position through uh, the constant barrage of 24-7 news media. Like, you know, you never... Rob Bresney once said something like, where's the newspaper that I get every morning and tells me all the good things that happened? Right? You don't get that. Um, You might see one human interest story, you know, in 10,000 terrible stories. Um, And... uh, So you're, you're encouraged into... And I'm not saying there's, like, somebody sitting, again... Never take what I'm saying as like some sort of, of uh, idea that um, there's there's like this uh, hooded figure sitting at the top pulling all these levers like the Wizard of Oz. I, I don't think that's how things work. But because of the nature of, of 24-7 electronic media and the barrage of information that we are now overwhelmed with and the barrage of choices of information that we are overwhelmed with, um, you are kind of backed into a corner of almost fearing to go outside and interact with other humans because you're kind of sold on the fact that, that you're, you know, you're going to be the victim of a mass shooting. You're going to get run over by a drunk driver. Like something bad's going to happen if you walk out that door and maybe even if you stay inside, you know? Um, and so basically, um, you've got that and that's reinforced by your little media device, which has now become your window to the world. And so once that happened, you are now controlled your, your perspective, to the world is controlled through that window, which, you know, is a little six by nine screen or whatever it is. And, um, once that happens, uh, you know, you, you become reliant on, uh, all these things that your information comes from that, your social interaction comes from that, your physical goods are delivered through that via Amazon and all these kind of places. And you see people less and less and less participating in the body politic outside their door. Now, going on Facebook and pressing like on a political concept or ideal is not the same as activism, right? But everybody has now come to the conclusion that it is, or retweeting something is not activism. I'm sorry, it's not. But people have come to the conclusion that it is. And so... Um, which which has been wonderful for police departments everywhere. Absolutely, because not because only... civil disobedience Not is only now, is nothing happening, yeah. but, but your attitudes are now monitored and recorded. Yeah. Right? So I know who you are, what you think, 
Because, you know, on Facebook, I can roll over likes and see who liked it and if they hearted it or if they laughed at it or, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's a that's a monitoring situation right there. Yeah. Don't tell me it's not being monitored by by three-letter organizations or, or law enforcement because it is. Um, and even credit reporting organizations now. And, and I don't know if you've been seeing what's going on in China. With the payment apps? Not just the payment apps, but, but now there is a social score. Oh, I didn't know this. Yeah. That's which, like, has, that's which, like which has a lot to do with how Black you... Mirror. It's exactly like an episode of Black Mirror. Yeah. It's not too long before that happens here, and, and in some ways it is already happening. Um, in, what, is, sorry, what is the social... Like what, what, they, have that epi- they have that thing, it's like My Life or whatever, where yeah. you search people yeah. and you get a 1 through 5 score, yeah. how dependable you are. Yeah. yeah. So China is using a social score, like how dependable you are, what kind of friends you have, what kind of things you like. And then what what your score is will have to will will predicate whether or not you get a position a, a promotion if you're if you're given credit or not given credit like it's not just whether or not you have a good credit score it's a good social score right so this is a new idea that's being brought into the mainstream um, what people don't know is it's already being used in the United States especially in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. if you go for a job at a place like Google now they want to know. They want they want your Facebook, they want your LinkedIn, they want your Twitter, and if you don't have one, they really frown upon that. Like really frown what upon. What are you it. hiding? Thank you. Yeah. When I, when I did a contract at Google in 2014, they asked me for all that stuff, and I had ditched all that stuff by then. And I said I don't have one. They're like, no, come on. Like it doesn't have to be your name. What, what, what's your Facebook? It's like I don't have one. And then it was like. <laughs> you know, HR like really gave me a, a triple look. And then if I didn't have somebody at, at a very high level stepping in and saying, just let him go, you know, we need we need his thought process on this, I probably wouldn't have got hired because I didn't have a social profile. Yeah. That, that happens sometimes in the, in, in the entertainment field as well. I mean, there I have applied to a lot of jobs that... Um, they want your social profiles. Facebook yeah. And I, more so like years ago where I think that they were, they, it was just like currency basically. Yeah. And it's like, well, but you know, where I observe that is, is, um, um, BP, a guy that we, um, met with about when we were, um, meeting around town to develop Polybius into a TV mm-hmm. series. The guy that we really liked, um, I did look him up. And I found his his Twitter because we have a friend in common, um, Vince DiMeglio. And uh, it was really interesting reading his Twitter feed because it felt like a copy-paste kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. you're, wow, you're like retweeting these like really gen- – or just tweeting these re- really generic um, like liberal proclamations. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it felt – almost insincere yeah not not that like he didn't probably support some of that stuff but just like the it way it didn't that, feel personal the way that it was packaged yeah it almost felt like it was geared towards hr like you could review somebody go like oh yeah this is this is a person that we can support yeah. having in this organization yeah. so i wonder how how calculated that was you know, oh so it's very sure. i mean yeah more of the more but then it's it, then it's also interesting kind of like coming full circle this idea of you know, this is not a good look, and your public persona is currency, yeah. social yeah. currency, and and the homogenization because everybody wants to have you know, groupthink essentially. Well, not only that, but the, but the internet, social media, especially, is brought on this concept of the personal brand, and I'm sure you've heard people use that term before. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah develop mean, your personal brand. And it's like I'm not a brand, dude. I'm a person. You know, but but everybody that's grown up on the internet in the last 15, 20 years. 
has been encouraged to represent themselves as a personal brand. I mean, and I'm sure you've seen the memes that are joking about like me in real life, me on Facebook life, you know, it's like, and it's true. It's like everybody has this like Instagram life and then, then there's life, right? Why can't they be the same? <laughs> I'm, I'm more interested in people that are sharing real things with me as a real person. I have no interest in people that are showing, trying to sell me on their brand. If they have a brand, I have no interest in talking to them and looking at them online. I just really don't. I, I, how would you? How I want? I want to actually ask a quick question. If I can interrupt, I'm sorry. How would you connect that to the the way that people would um, interact with like your early ARG? Right. Obviously, they're not thinking of themselves of a brand, but this idea that you have you in real life, and then there's you in the realm of the game. And then, I don't know if there's a connection. No, there's a connection in that. If I had to do it over again, I wouldn't embed myself as a character in the game as myself. It would have been, it would have been a different name. And it would have been, you know, it would have been a character that I managed, but it wouldn't have been me. So, I mean, I thought that what I was doing was, I mean, at the time I was doing it, it you know, it was, it was fine to do that. It's like embedding yourself in your own story was kind of what you did back then. Like, you know, it was like, it made it more real. And I was trying to bring reality to it. Like, because the things I was saying is how I really felt about things. And, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't putting on a persona in that, in that sense at all. I was being very genuine. Um, but I can see how it would appear to be, um, that I was, that I was not being genuine, that I was being disingenuous. So uh, if I had to do it over again, it would be a character with a different name. What was your question? I'm sorry. No, 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 no. My thing was just, I was just talking, it was, uh, it's not worth talking about, but but a co-op that I had to interview last week for Wayfair and about, you know, he's 20 years old, intern, basically, and he was just talking about his his brand, his brand, his brand, and I just thought it was so funny because it just, it was such a different generation, basically. But yeah, I mean, what like of, his professional resume was about his brand. Yeah, I'm doing this because of my brand and all this yeah. stuff, and we'll ultimately hire him because um, he's just an intern. But I mean, he was a nice guy, but just real different experience. No, that, I mean that, that's a concept now that just yeah. it, people don't even think about it. There's, it's just it's just like yeah, my brand. You know, it's like yeah. like saying my fingerprint. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of weird. I, the, but, uh, uh, what we were talking about earlier, though, I do wonder with with uh, the the influencer that you were you were talking about that thirteen year old um, just feels like that's also shitty because you're I mean you're, you're your brand you're, is somewhat and, defined by your your past and your legacy right and you, and, 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 I think and part your thirteen year old brain may, part, may not be yeah opting for the best brand part of yeah. the teenager or twenty something is doing things off brand to, to you know find a different you you know and or and, break things so you know. You know that's how, I mean any any hacker with their salt knows that you learn things by breaking things right, yeah. and so anybody who's thirteen is a reality hacker right. They're breaking things to find out what can break and what can't break or how they can fix it. I mean they're learning by making mistakes, mm-hmm. and they should not be held accountable for those mistakes at the age of thirty. You know it just that should not be something that follows them around. And they they are no they are they definitely are. Yeah. Um, oh, there's a point I was going to make. Um, Oh, so to the point of, of embedding myself into the story, and which I thought at one point was making it more genuine, also um, one of the things that, that made the story very relatable and I think contributed to the synchronicity factor was that I was also taking things out of headlines that were current 
and embedding them as links in the story on a, on a regular basis. Um, and then people were experiencing synchronicities around that. What, what would be like an example of that? Um, you know, like there was a, a sunspot, you know, that, that I, if you went through, a, a, if you went through like two links and, and uh, found the hidden link on the third page, then there was a, a hidden page which had, which had an embedded video of a sunspot that had occurred the day before. And, you know, so, and there was numbers attached to that. And so, you know, people would find that stuff and feel like, oh, I just read about that sunspot. My God, here it is as a page, you know. And so it, it, it felt like a low-level synchronicity for them, and then it would maybe induce later synchronicities for them. But that was just, it was something that I was, that I was doing to make it feel anchored in the now, which was more important than inducing a synchronicity. It was about anchoring it and making it feel very, very contemporary, like yesterday type stuff being in, inside I'm, I'm curious too. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, how did the um, conspiracy theorists who started kind of flooding the forums? Mm-hmm. How were they even seeing parallels between this and and MK Ultra, for example? Well, because if you read the the uh, the brochure, I mean, it talks about using brain machines and, and different states of mind and psychedelics and you know. Um, Meditation and all these kind of things, and one of the things I realized that I began to realize as I started interacting with these people is anything that had a tinge of like esalen um, or human potential is was viewed as highly suspicious and obviously MK Ultra and government driven, which I had no idea that they they viewed it that way, but they really do. Um, so to me. Um, I was always enamored of the human potential movement of the 60s and 70s because I saw so much potential that came out of it, and I thought some great things were done. Um, but to them, they, they saw, you know, for example, uh, uh, you know, like SRI and the remote viewing projects that were done and these kind of things, which, you know, I knew some of the people that, that later that were doing that in the 60s and 70s. I later met them in their older ages and was hanging around a lot of that crowd um, and so I was viewed with obviously more than suspicion. I was I was definitely you know a collaborator in their mind. And, and up until that point, I didn't know that that human potential movement was viewed that way because I'd always looked at it as a positive thing. I didn't have a concept that it could be viewed as negative, you know. But it is highly negative to what turns out to be uh, conservative kind of right wing thinkers. These people always have like those kind of views. A lot of them obviously. Well, maybe not obvious to you, but now I can look back at it, and a lot of them became, um, you know, proponents of the alt right later. Oh, surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> but that was my first kind of, you know, those are the types of people that like this should say everything to you. The types of people that started flooding the forums later, a lot of them showed up in the alt right. Do I need to say more? Right. So the story that I was trying to tell was definitely progressive. <clears throat> and um, gave a lot of uh, credence to the human potential movement in the 60s and 70s, which set me up as a, as a major target for these people. And I didn't know these people even existed in a majority. I thought they were just maybe one or two people out there. But there's a, there's a lot of them. It's half of America, apparently, you know. Yeah, we had a, we had a meeting at Netflix, and they said they're what two of their most popular categories were conspiracy theories and video games, so... Not surprising. Yeah. Um, 
Do you want to uh, go into any detail about your interactions with those people? Like the stuff we were talking about over breakfast, or do you want to skip that? I mean, it's interesting. Um, I'll generally talk. I'll, I'll sure. touch on it generally. I don't want to start any more wars. I don't sure. have the energy for it anymore <laughs> or the interest. Um, the uh, Because of what we were just talking about with the with the, uh, the the viewpoint that the human potential movement and the psychedelic movement and the uh, um, anything to do with that was was you know uh, probably a branch of MK Ultra as far as they're concerned, some sort of government project. Um, the people that started showing up and, and becoming critical, vocally critical and disruptive, um, usually were uh, invoking. Uh, the Stargate Conspiracy, I believe, is one of the books, and uh, Morning of the Magicians, and I'm trying to think of some of the early books that, that they were invoking. Anyway, did, was, did they think that the Ong's Hat thing like was an actual experiment that happened that was centered around mind control, or did yes, they think that the story and, was, you know, like a psyop or something? Yes, yes, and yes. Okay, uh, those that, that would even say that it well, a lot of them said that it happened, but. And then, you know, the thinking that you just expressed or that it never happened, but it was a story that, you know, obviously I was a handler and that I was out recruiting people because that was one of the things that was said is this story is specifically tailored to attract these type of people like myself. Right. So um, none of which is true, but but, you know, that that's what they thought. And, And those are the things they started expressing. One of the things that I discovered was. If you if you have a bunch of people on a forum and you have one person that shows up and says something like that, the wave of reaction that goes through that, that community is like overwhelming. It's like it's like somebody. I don't know. Do you ever see the? Uh, uh, it's kind of it's kind of uh, prototypical in movies where you've you've got a scene in a, in a sane asylum. And then one person starts screaming, and then everybody starts screaming. That's what it was like. It was like being in an insane asylum where one person would show up and make these hysterical uh, accusations, and then everybody would just start screaming. And that's why I'm saying the forums became useless at that point, just useless. There weren't forums anymore. They were insane asylums, which, you know, it, it just became unusable for anybody that was trying to have a conversation, you know. And so I don't know if that was by design. In some cases, I know it was. Um, in fact, like I said, there were a couple people that, that originally I tried to work with that turned out to be, you know, really trying to hijack the project. And then when I kind of, like, told them to F off, um, they became really antagonistic. And they were they were experts at showing up at the forum and making those kind of accusations. And then the same asylum would start screaming. And I could see them. I knew they were doing it on purpose. They knew that that was the reaction they were going to get. You know, did they really believe the things they were saying? Probably not, not all the way anyway, maybe somewhat as we've had this conversation. Um, so anyway, the people that started showing up were, you know, from the kind of the uh, the hardcore abductee, uh, um, you know, great alien experience people, the negative, you know, alien experience people. Because if you remember before the Greys showed up and the, 60s, even the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there were positive UFO experiences where these space brothers would land and they had a great message for us and they were going to share technology. And like only after the Greys showed up, like in the early 80s, like somewhere in the mid 80s, that you started to see the the negative experience happening. And then Whitley Strieber published Communion, Communion and it was over. 
like then it became it's about it's about yeah. it's a victim experience now, yeah. right? Probing and blah, yeah, it's blah. a victim experience. Now it's a victim narrative, um, and those people were about implants and mind control, and then they had a you know they were usually allied with people who were into the MK Ultra thing and the Monarch Project and like all that kind of stuff. And that's a really if you get into that milieu and kind of hang around those people. They're very unhappy. There's most of them are very unhappy, victimized or victim mentality people. And then there's a ten percent of it people who are there where they're predators that claim to be deprogrammers and people there to help, and they're really not. They're there to convince you that this is something that happened to you, and only they can help you. Where we heard this before, um, and so there's those kind of people, and then there's people that I think. Um, that might actually maybe originally think that they're there to help, but but they but they fall in nature to their lesser angels and they become predators. So um, yeah, those those are the people that started showing up. I'm sorry. You're saying people with delusions of fear. How are you thinking about the, yeah our our friend that we had interviewed, um, whether he was mentally ill or whether he just liked to be up on that pedestal. I think a little of both. Yeah. I mean, a good example is like uh, a person I think I told you about earlier that tried to drag my name into the therapy thing and actually did for a couple of years, um, which I had nothing to do with and, and no interest in until that happened. Um, uh, you know, he when he came out the other side and got better and got help and came out to the side, you know, I, I now had an insider telling me what was going on. And he said, when I first started doing this, it was it was a, a very it was an obsession. I was delusional. But then all these media people started talking about me and sending traffic to my website, and it went to my head. He admitted it. He goes, I lost control. I lost my way. I could see that happening, you know? I could definitely see that happening. I mean, it happens to everybody. You see actors who are actually pretty cool people till they get famous. You see rock stars that are actually pretty cool till they get famous. You know what I mean? I've, I've seen people get a taste of stardom and, or fame, and it just goes right to their head, and they become complete insufferable assholes. Like overnight, almost. So, it happens. That's why it pays to get famous after twenty-seven. Exactly. Yeah, the twenty-seven rule. Yeah, I mean, I can't. I can. I can imagine that some of these people maybe really thought that they could help in the beginning, and then when they got all this adulation and and kind of worship from these people, then then they be, it's the guru syndrome. You know, there are probably a couple of gurus that started out with pure intention. That you know, when they had all these people like bowing down and worshiping them, they became dicks. <laughs> well, you, you said Can I say that? On- <laughs> say anything you want, man. You say that you you would have wished that you went by some alias or yeah. something. Yeah. I mean, is there a part of you that that, that also likes? Because I think it's kind of neat to be uh, embedded into the the story. Of the I did too in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, and I just wonder. It felt like the right. Was, it felt like the right artistic move at the time, yeah. and it was at the time. I think. I think. That, I think that it made it more personable for a lot of people to read me in, as a character in the story, and then to show up on the forum and find me there talking. I, I I wanted that transparency. I thought that was really cool, and I thought it made a very strong bond for the for the player to actually be talking to a character. And I had bots actually that were set up that, that would, you know, like if you wrote to emery underscore cranston at hotmail.com, you got emery cranston replying to you. It was actually a chat bot, but I saw people talking to it for like 10, 15 emails and never figured out they were talking to a chat bot. Um, it was really weird <laughs> watching that. That's cool. Um, 
What else do we have to cover? You well, pick I, it up. Yeah, I have some. I have some questions. Um, I just uh, didn't want to derail from where it seemed like you were going down the structure. So, um, I think all of these you sort of touched upon, but I think it would just be good to just ask you directly some of these questions. Uh, so, Ong's hat. What value did this serve for for you personally? The project? Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, there is no such thing as a failed experiment. So it, it wasn't a failed experiment. It was definitely, it was it was an early iteration of an experiment that I would modify if I were to do again. Um, it definitely taught me um, some things, that, some of which became principles in, in alternate reality gaming, you know, which was the TNAG principle. Like, we have to... We have to make a meta declaration that that this is not a game. That means it's a game, <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's still not a, a it's not a declaration. It's not an end user license agreement or anything like that. But it's a meta declaration that we're all agreeing that we're playing this game and we're not going to talk about it. And and so that came out of it, and that that was very important. Um, the uh, the idea of game jacking is something that we need to be started looking for, which we, I had no idea I was going to have to look for, but then I figured out later that I should have been. And now we do, everybody does. Um, so that's something you have to build in. Um, the idea that you can't just take a process that something like that, you can run an ARG, but you can't do something as ambitious as Ong's hat was, which really endeavored to be much more than an ARG endeavored to be a life changing experience. And that's, very powerful psychologically, and that is something that should be vetted as far as the players have to go through some sort of vetting process. So I learned that. Um, yeah, I learned that uh, um, I, you sh- if you're going to be a, a persona in the game, that it should not be your real life. You know, it should not be something that people can uh, track and hack and, and, and attack. Mm-hmm. Um. And how about for the community at large, like the, the people that, and, and maybe more speaking about the positives here than, than the negatives, mm-hmm. but the people who participated in this, what what do you think has been their takeaway before things went toxic? No, I mean, I still to this day get people contacting me and telling me that they had a great experience. And the unfortunate thing about that is that those people, you don't tend to get emails from people that had a good experience all the time. You get you get the negative that want to be in negative people or the people that had a negative experience. Either you drove them crazy, that's been said to me, um, or uh, or they, or they just you know like the haters, as you guys know. There's people that just don't like this kind of thing and they just hate on you. Um, I do. Fortunately, it's been long enough now that the tail has become long enough that, that, that cumulatively speaking, I've got a, a lot of people telling me it was a positive experience for them and a life changing experience. And so I feel better now over a period of time. But when the whole thing collapsed, those people were not there emailing me all at once on the last day telling me that. So, you know, I was a little dejected and despondent and depressed at the end. Um, But over time, that's healed. Um, And a lot of that has to do with people coming forward and telling me, dude, I played that game. That was awesome. And, you know, like, like, you know, people tell me that they went on to careers in animation or careers in programming or careers in, in folklore, academia and stuff like that. And that, you know, that was their inspiration. And so, you know, I have enough of that in my back pocket now that it far outweighs the negative people. And, and in hindsight, I can say, you know, 
80% good, 20% bad, maybe 10% bad and 90% good, honestly, to be honest with you. It was just a very vocal 10%. <laughs> but, you know, but that took time to get that to that 90%. But but I know I did good, and I know that those people have been changed for, you know, for good. And, and I'm not taking credit for that because I, I always tell them the same thing. It's on you. You did that. But, you know, thanks for letting me know that I built something that helped you do that. So that's cool, you know. Yeah, I would imagine there's there's many greater honors as an artist than for uh, people's work to be influenced by your own. Yeah, and there's people that have told me that over and over again. So, yeah. Um, so ultimately, what do you feel? Um, what do you feel is Onyx Hat legacy? I know it's it's maybe not an easy thing to kind of sum up in, in one one answer. Artistically speaking, maybe. Artistically. Speaking. Okay, so artistically speaking, here's the cycle. Um, I do this project, I come out of this project, I was working on Majestic, as I think I told you, and Majestic went south because of 9-11. But out of that came a small community of grassroots people that were building these little, what became the ARG community, Um, people like Dave Sobolski and and, uh, Steve Peters and all these people now that, well, Dave has passed away, but before he passed away, he was working in the industry. that believed like I believed, which is this is a new form of narrative. This is a new storytelling platform and, and really worked really hard on doing that. Um, and so that was very encouraging to see that. And then I got a little discouraged when Hollywood jumped on board and people like, uh, Spielberg's people did the beast. And, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, you know, Microsoft did the uh, I love bees, which, you know, was still a commercial thing. And, and, but I Love Bees was good, so I didn't get too despondent and dejected. But then after that, there was this period of time where it seemed like all the phone calls I was getting were people in Hollywood who were launching some sort of movie product that said, can you do that thing? I mean, what thing? You know, Well, that game thing so that we have this online presence. And it became a marketing tool. And, and, and that... If it was only, it, it only became that for a while. For you know, it really like that. That made me really sad because I'm like that got co-opted really fast. Because <laughs> um, I was hoping that it would be more, uh, you know, this new narrative function that that allowed people to tell stories. And then you know, it kind of like it, it evolved out of that into what was called transmedia, and and that was still commercialized to an extent. But then now I'm I'm meeting these young people. Which I just talked to somebody the other day about this. Uh, there's a guy doing a ARG history documentary that talked to me, um, and, and I wasn't going to talk to him, but he goes, "Dude, we have to talk to you. You started this," and I'm like, oh, "Okay." So I talked to him, and but it was really encouraging to talk to him. And uh, you know, we were talking about all these like really young kids. They're way too young to have been around for Wrong's Hat. That are talking about alternate reality gaming now and they're talking about it the way I was talking about it back then they're saying this is a new way to tell stories that speaks to the current generation they're hitting all the points right I'm like we had to go through the cycle of commercialization but now it's come out the other side and now people are looking at it for what it is which is a platform a methodology for telling stories that is definitely you know, uh, very personable and, and has a lot of attraction and a lot of immersion and can be used for, you know, good and can tell a good story, like a very, a story that really grabs you and like takes over your, your thinking for like a period of time. Cause there's nothing, how about you guys, but there's nothing I like better than picking up a book that I can't put down. 
I just love that. And I will just burn through that. I'll, I'll sit up all night and burn through that book. So I just, so I don't have to stop reading it. And that's what, that, that's what this platform can do. And, and now I'm seeing people that are way too young to have been there for Ong's hat doing that and, and saying that like there's a video on online about them right now where like, if you look at these people, they're talking, every one of them is in their twenties. <laughs> it's like, that's awesome. You know? So, I mean, I mean that, that part of it is, I love that part of it. You know, that's great. And, and you've, and from our perspective, it certainly seems that, that, uh, you definitely are, uh, a major influence of, 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 I don't know if you call it a movement or a generation. Do you feel that though yourself? That 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 I helped start this thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying from an egotistical standpoint, but I'm just like historically speaking, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go on Wikipedia and look at like the history of ARGs, the first one listed is Ong's Hat, 1999, you know, or maybe 98, but and it even really started before then. But online, that's when it really started in earnest. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, the games magazine said that, you know, everything that followed was, was had Onksat in its DNA. And I kind of agree with that. And all the people that I met through majestic, even the majestic people told me you were the, your game was the influence for us doing this. And so, yeah, I mean, I feel that, that, I mean, I feel very humble, but grateful that people actually, noticed what I was doing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Other than conspiracy awesome. people that want to kill me. <laughs> no, but that, I mean, that sounds awesome. Well, that actually leads me to, to the next question is, um, uh, when we're talking about the, not the game, but the, 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 the myth or the, the legend, mm-hmm. uh, how has that story continued to live even after you trying to conclude it? Well, I've, I've worked in the last 15 years, is that how long it's been? Um, since I've closed down the game, I've worked double, triple overtime to inject uh, into the narrative the gaming aspect of this and the academic and folklore aspect of this and not really talk about the conspiracy paranormal aspect of this at all and downplay that other than I chose this context and this content because at the time, and I still do, at the time I felt that conspiracy theory was the modern American mythology. That and comic books. I mean, I think that's where our heroes in our in our stories. So our creepy our creepy bedtime stories are conspiracy theory, and our heroic stories are comic books. America, just America. That's all I'm talking about. But but you know, I'm an American. I grew up here, um, and that to me is why I chose that content and that context in. Um, I have tried, and that got that got shouted down at the end because, like I said, the people that picked up the narrative and ran with it were talking about it's just a hoax, it's not real, and it's like no, it's not. But why do we have to talk about that? You know, it's like that's that was never the intention. It was to try to sell you on the idea that it was real. Uh, I'm not trying to become a guru. I wasn't trying to set up a, a, a school of thought or anything like that outside of an artistic school of thought and an academic school of thought and a literary school of thought. Definitely, I was trying to do that. But I wasn't trying to set up a metaphysics school. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to start a religion. I wasn't trying to become a guru. None of that shit. I wasn't trying to do any of that. In fact, I frown upon that. Um, I was trying to have a different conversation that got overrun by a conversation that I wasn't trying to have by people that wanted to have make that the conversation. 
Um, and so I've spent the last 15 years working really hard to bring it back to the conversation that I was trying to have, which is the game aspect, the legendary, you know, what they call fake lore aspect, the modern folklore aspect, the internet, how that plays into it, all of you know the interactivity. All that's the conversation I've been trying to have for 15 years, which I feel like now has become the dominant part of that conversation again, mm-hmm. which originally started as that conversation, but somewhere in the 2000, 99 to 2001. Mm-hmm. Era and even a little bit beyond the you know the the dominant narrative became you know the conspiracy is it real and oh my god let's nail him to a cross and throw him over a waterfall you know it's like whatever that was not the conversation I was ever trying to have yeah what do you what do you think about this recent wave of interest with Ong's hat where do you think that's that's come from this is not the first Renaissance. <laughs> um, I don't know where it comes from. I really don't. So the first wave, obviously, was the the, the, the late 90s because that was the Internet. Well, no, the first wave was the late 80s, early 90s because that was the bulletin board system and the early Internet. Then the second wave was the web um, and the birth of search engines. And then there was the definite uh, Internet-related rise in the interest in the paranormal because, if you remember, it's the X-Files era, and so that was a big thing. And now the Internet was a new thing for people to talk to each other. And one of the subjects that was popular was UFOs and paranormal. Um, and then there was, uh, there was the, uh, another wave that I saw probably around 2013 is when the, the narrative became about the game part of it again. And so that was a resurgence and an, an interest. Then um, also the folklore part of it got really strong in academia there was tons of papers that were written about it because Kinsella's book came out. And so if you go on uh, my, my personal website and you type in like academia or folklore in the search engine, you'll find like all these papers that were written citing Ong's hat. Um, so that was another resurgence. And then um, the recent one, I, I don't know. I really don't. It's like all of a sudden I'm getting calls from edge to or not uh, uh, Dakota ring and like places like that. And, all these other, there's a lot of interviews I turned down that people were wanting to talk to me, and I, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I tried to figure out where it came from, and it just kind of came out of the blue. I think there's something that triggered it, but I'm not sure what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering if, you, if there's just something kind of culturally going on that's you can you can. I think maybe, um, like I said, there's there's a new documentary in the works about ARGs. There was there's another one that's already up on. YouTube, so it's a new generation of young people mm-hmm. that that are interested in this as a as a storytelling platform. I think maybe that's it. Yeah, is that's where it's coming from, and so it's not. I can't point to one thing. I think it's just like this new generation of people that want to tell stories mm-hmm. that I think you and I were talking about in the car yesterday, which is they look at Hollywood the way I look at Hollywood, which is like, why am I going to sell my story to you to butcher? And, and, you know, and turn it into something that I'm not going to want to put my name on. I, I'm like Alan Moore that way, you know. Um, but when I can do this all myself, I, if I have a laptop and a phone, I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> you know, it's like that's it right there. I have the, I have the platform. I have the means and the method. <laughs> what else do I need? <laughs> um, so, Joe, I mean, clearly um, – uh, you and both John, my my eyes, you would be uh, uh, irrefutably an artist. But I think some would maybe say that uh, those that were critical that you're maybe a 
the hoaxer, schemer, something like this. Not saying they're right at all. I said, I'm not going to deny it. They're not right. But Where do you think the line? I'm a trickster. <laughs> Where do you think the line is between artist and hoax? I don't. Okay. No. I don't. I don't. Um, you know, uh, people forget that David Bowie did a great hoax, a great art hoax, actually. So just Google that. Um, I'm, just, I'm not going to explain it. Just Google it. He was part of a great art hoax. Um, tricksters are are an archetype. The trickster archetype is one that that I definitely uh, use as is is my totem. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in love with coyotes and crows. Uh, I, I like anything that that questions reality, um, that doesn't play by the rules, and thinks outside the box. That is trickster energy to do that. And any good artist has trickster energy. It's just the way it goes. Um, if you're playing by the rules, you're not a, you're not being a good artist. You're, you're you're being a craftsman, maybe that's fine. I have all nothing but respect for craftsmen, right? But don't call yourself an artist if you're not reaching over through the veil and pulling something out. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, one thing, and John and I talked about this. One thing I really loved about um, uh, PT PT Barnum yeah. is that he always would say that I guess he. Uh, he would never feel comfortable about taking people's money unless he were to put on a show. So, I, and I think that for me, that that's kind of the line where it wasn't yeah. for him. It wasn't about just financial gain. It yeah. was about his output as well. No, I had people throw that at me as as, a, as a, an insult. Like called me a PT Barnum, and I'm like, that's not an insult to me. You you, you don't understand. I, I I actually admire PT Barnum on one level. You know, I mean, he was a great trickster. Yeah. The the one I like the best is the one about the the, the through this door lies the great wonders of the universe, and it takes you out to the street. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so uh, let's just make sure. Um, I think this is good. Maybe maybe to end on maybe not on John. Do you have anything else to say? How how do you anticipate uh, from here on out the story will endure? Well, I, I, what I hope is going to happen going forward. Well, I mean, this is the thing. If you if you go to the, my personal website and you go to interviews, uh, Inky Nebula, Onshat specific interviews, reviews, and interviews, there's like three or four hundred links there of like all these sites that just talk about Onshat as if it's a thing. Like you know, like it happened and it's it's real, and, 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 and that's not me promoting that. I've done everything I can to not promote that. Um, but but it endures, um, and so I remember having a conversation with Nick Herbert very early on in this process, and he and he Nick's really funny. He's he's a trickster, um, and and he has this funny way of laughing. If you ever talk to him, you, he does this thing, um, and he and he did that, and he goes, "What are you, what are you trying to do, Joe? What are you doing?" And and I said, hmm, "What am I doing, Nick? I'm I'm spray painting graffiti on the new sphere." And, and 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 he thought that was great, and and then, but I think I did do that in a way. Like so, as much as I, I want to make sure that there's always a place where people can come and see the reality that this was an experiment and this was a, a you know a, a myth it, that it does have some roots in reality, as we talked about earlier. There are there were real things that happened that it's based on. I don't know the the yeses and nos and whys and wheres of them but but they're you know it's, it's got kernels of truth that it's came out of um so there always will be my, a website that I will curate that will have you know like like if you're really having problems with this know that it's this right um 
and that's mainly for the people that are having problems. Like, I don't want to be responsible for those people like flying off the rails. Um, but uh, no matter what I do, and how many times I say that, there are these websites that are going to just publish this uh, this story as fact. And I mean, in one way, that's a success story, right? So what I wanted to do was embed a legend using modern technology, right? And I think I did that. There, there. I mean, if you go out to Ong's Hat, there are people that are repeating things that clearly came off my websites. <laughs> um, but now they're part of the legend, the local legend. And, and there are kids that do legend trips looking for the Ong's Hat ashram. There's YouTube videos of them doing it, you know? And it's like, you know, that that's... That's what I wanted, a playful spirit of local legend. I mean, I don't know if you guys ever did any of that, that legend tripping stuff when you were a kid. There was always, like, some local place where you could go. And, like, we had one um, in Chicago. Like, you went outside the city, and there was a railroad crossing, and you were supposed to park your car and put it in neutral and put baby powder on your back bumper, and then your car would roll across the, the railroad track, and then you would look out back, and there'd be little handprints, you know? It's like, you know... We all knew that was horse shit, but we did it anyway, and we had a blast doing it. Or you went snipe hunting uh, you know, with your friends, or you went out to the woods and you told ghost stories until people, be, some people just became terrified. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's like these are the things, these are rites of passage, right? And, and Ong's Hat has become one of those things to some people, and, and I'm totally fine with that. That's cool. That's great. As long as there's always a place they can return to in Google you know, and find that, that oh, here's the guy, and he says... You know, that it's a legend that might not be a legend. I'm fine with that explanation. <laughs> um, do you feel... Uh, all right, last question, John, unless you have something else. Um, These are good. What's that? These are great. Do you feel you've been... Um, uh, I guess, what will you, do you feel you'll forever be embedded into mythology of Ong's hat? Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> there's, no way, there's no way to leave it. Even I've done what I can. Yeah. You know, I've made I've made my exit statements 15 times, you know, and uh which is why I don't do interviews anymore because like, you know, um for one one thing, uh, you know, this this inter- this interview aside, uh, I usually get asked the same five stupid questions um and I'm tired of answering them and I'm tired of hearing them. Um or I I get uh uh What's the word I'm looking for? Um, people try to uh, ambush me um, and pretend to be something they're not or pretend to be, you know, like, well, I want to talk to you about this thing, but, you know, I'm actually, uh, the thing was cool, you know, but then when they get you on air, they're not cool. And so uh, another reason I don't do interviews anymore because there's too much ambush uh, mentality out there with these so-called internet journalist people that, that think this is how you do things. And everybody wants to be Howard fucking Stern. I mean, I, I don't get it. You know, it's like, but whatever. Um, so, uh, He's changed his ways. And he has. So supposedly I heard him and Terry Gross not too long ago. And it was, I was like, who is this guy? Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, as much as I, I, I prefer probably not to have anything, my name anywhere near it. It's there, and so I think I've at least worked really hard in the last 15 years to get it to a place where I can stand it. And so 99.9% of the, the contacts that I get to my website now are just fine. I, I rarely get a person like I was getting years ago where they were accusing me of all kinds of things, and the things that are happening to them are my fault, and 
I'm invading their dreams and, you know, all the, you would not believe some of the stuff I used to get. And I don't have people showing up my door anymore. That's good. Um, good for them too. Uh, yeah. So, cause I've lost my patience with that shit. So you really, people, you don't want to do that. <laughs> I have guns. <laughs> Um, how do you guys feel? Yeah. And Antarctica is the last one on the bucket list, actually. So, and I guess time is running out. It really is. Yeah. Um, I, I had an ex-girlfriend who went actually. Mm. Uh, yeah. I, I have a, I have a way to get there. I just I, I need the time at this point. So, um, and with Eugenius's going off the hook the way it is, it's not going to happen like within the next. Hopefully, hopefully next year I'll be able to like do an Antarctica trip. Right, T- time to coincide with the uh, the market downturn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so so tell us about your trip to the North Pole. Okay, so um, in 2012, I had a really bad motorcycle accident, and uh, I should be dead actually. Um, and and I was really physically messed up for a while, um, and then as I started to get better. Um, that accident seemed to precipitate a bunch of weird things happening in my life. Um, just personal things that were not, not good. Um, like a breakup with a, in a relationship, you know, those kind of things. Um, and so I did a retreat, um, in Big Sur at a Zen monastery and really kind of just thought about like, you know, uh, this is a turning point in my life and I need to, there's some things that I need to do. And one of those things was I want to go to the North pole and I want to go to Antarctica. Right. It's been something that's been on my list forever. Um, and so I decided that I was going to do one of those and, and I had the time and I had the opportunity. So I just, I just went, I just went to Alaska and I, uh, I, I worked up, you know, uh, rehabbed myself, I spent a couple of years like physically rehabilitating myself and went to Alaska and I signed on to a uh, fishing boat and I actually worked the sockeye season in Naknek, Alaska on a fishing boat, which is one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I'm glad I did it, but I'll never do it again. Um, but it was like uh, 18 hour, 14, 16, 18 hour days, mostly 16 and 18 hour days, um, seven days a week for the duration of three months until all the salmon are in and the fishing game tells you to stop catching salmon. That's how they do it. It's like there is no day off. Um, and so I did that, but then I had a really nice chunk of money, which, cause it pays really well. And I'd done it cause I'd always wanted to do it. And then I was sitting in uh, a cafe in Naknek, Alaska, eating pizza and treating myself to pizza and beer. Cause I, you know, yay, I just made a lot of money. And I, and I felt it, it's like going through basic training or something. It's like this accomplishment feeling when it's all over that you did that. you like, I can't believe I just did that, you know, and everybody's looking at each other like, God, we just did that. We're still alive. And, and, uh, in doing so, 
everybody is, you know, like there's a, there's a really strong feeling of camaraderie and, and it's almost like you've gone through a, a combat situation together with these people. You form some really deep bonds. Most of these people I still talk to like, you know, a lot. Um, cause you, you form these really deep bonds with somebody when you're out to sea like that and you know, you go through what you went through. Um, and I met these Japanese guys who were really cool and, and they started talking to me and they're like, well, we're with a we're we're with the scientific expeditions that's going to the North Pole to measure methane release. I'm like, do tell. So uh, I don't suppose you need any crew, and they're like, well, we need somebody that knows IT and, and comms. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm your man. <laughs> so turns out that uh, they, I showed them my resume, and they they signed me on, and I got on the boat, and I I went north, even farther north than Naknek. Um, and I spent a lot of time up in the Arctic Circle on this boat um, watching, uh, measuring methane release. And my, my job was not to do the methane release. My job was to uh, run comms for the ship, uh, make sure that everybody had uh, Internet, which was coming through a satellite, and make sure that the data that they were uh, uploading was being, as we called it, squirting the bird. It was hitting the satellite and going to the places they needed to go to. So um, I saw some strange stuff when I was up there. I saw I saw land that was covered in, in green that the scientists told me should be uh, permafrost and had not been permafrost for years. Um, I saw melts that were that should not be happening. Uh, I saw methane levels that were off the charts. I saw Russian submarines coming up like, you know, 800 yards away from us just to let us know they were there to like, because the Russians, I guess, are, working really hard up there to stake uh, a claim on the territory for both as a shipping route when all the ice melts and to the natural resources that will be available at that time. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the North Pole, I discovered. Um, and the first time in my life I'd experienced uh, periods of 24-hour daylight followed by periods of 24-hour darkness. So that was interesting. It plays havoc with your head. Um yeah, so that's what I have to say about that. Nothing nothing mind-blowing about it, but it was something that I did. I tend to do that, though. It's like people say, oh, he disappeared. Well, basically, I, I go I go do things, and, I, and, I, and I'm not online for six months to a year sometimes, and I, I don't feel like I have to ask anybody's permission, <laughs> you know? And I, and I have friends that go dark on me, and I don't take it personally. When they come back, they come back, you know? Awesome. No, that, that's super fascinating. Um, I, I will stop recording now. Um, 